Hello and welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well. And of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. Plus, don't forget about patreon.com slash rawattitudepodcast, where you can get all sorts of fun bonus content. All right, so with that being said, it is now time for our Royal Rumble 1999 slash Monday Night Raw mega episode. And for an episode of this magnitude, I had to enlist a very special guest. Joining the Raw Attitude Podcast for the second time, he is the host of the WrestleMania Salvation Podcast and an occasional contributor to the Rundown Wrestling Podcast. He is none other than Sal. So Sal, would you care to remind the Raw Attitude Podcast fans as to what those other fine podcasts are all about? Absolutely. First of all, Henry, thank you so much for having me back. I love this show. It's one of my favorite podcasts. Glad to hear that. Uh, The Rundown Wrestling Podcast has been going on for the better part of six years, and it has now spawned off into different sub-shows, or you can call them sub-podcasts, one of which I host. It's called WrestleMania Salvation. We chronologically go through every WrestleMania, and I give it a review, kind of with a unique perspective. I just finished WrestleMania 15 about a month ago, so this is right in my timeline. So I'm really excited to be talking about Royal Rumble 99 and uh, everything that came with it. Fantastic. And so around this time, do you remember watching the WWF around this time and maybe WCW, ECW as well? I do. Um, I would say that between 96 and probably 2001 was when I was like really watching every single moment as much as I could consume. Sure, absolutely. Right around when uh, from Austin 316 until uh, the end of the Attitude Era pretty much. Yeah, exactly. That makes a lot of sense. But, and you were mainly WWF, you weren't so much ECW and WCW? Not necessarily. Um, once I was introduced to ECW 98, I fell in love with it. I thought it was the best thing ever. And I would channel hop when the NWO was a big deal. Um, sure. I was aware of WCW. Like I, I remember watching like cage matches on Clash of the Champions and things of that nature. Nice. But I did start watching Nitro a lot more frequently when the NWO formed. Um, by this time in 99, I completely stopped because it became garbage. <laughs> but And that's no knock on um, anybody who's reviewing Nitro. But um, yeah. yeah. Oh, I wonder who you could possibly be in that case. <laughs> but, you know, I, I ventured out. I, I, you know, I watched Nitro a lot. I watched ECW. But always, always kept it up with the WWF. Until about '03, when it just really went down the shitter. You're, you're saying when Katie Vick and HLA were going on at the end of 2002, that might have uh, turned you off yeah, for 2003. Yeah, you know, going like going into like evolution and things of that nature, and just you know, um, Booker T versus Triple H, kind of. That was like a uh, yeah, kind of fell off. I didn't come back. I actually left for a while. I didn't come back until um, Punk debuted in ECW in 2006. Oh yeah. Nice. Was that what brought you back? Was CM Punk? Uh, well, actually, it was One Night Stand. 
Oh, good call. Was it the 05 or the 06? The, so I originally got brought back with the 05 because I was like, this is, oh my God, they're resurrecting ECW. And then once I realized that it was just a one-off, I was like, all right, I'm not going to watch anymore. And then, <laughs> and then they did it again in 06, and I was like, oh, okay, maybe I'll maybe I'll like watch for now and start to get into it again, and I pretty much did at that point. Excellent. Well, again, but I'll give a quick shout-out to, of course, your podcast, WrestleMania Salvation. I appeared on one episode. We did uh, WrestleMania 7, I believe it was, right? The, the Sergeant Slaughter versus Hogan WrestleMania. So that was, that was a lot of fun. Obviously, the rundown. Uh, a great show as well. So if you get a chance, I mean, you only have to subscribe to the Rundown feed to get WrestleMania Salvation as well, right? That's correct. Uh, also, there was a guy we used to know. Um, well, there was a guy we used to know, and then there was a mammal we used to know. They were really, <laughs> uh, you know, around for the first part of the Rundown in early years. And he disappeared, but he sounds a lot like you. I got to say, you yeah. guys' voices are just extremely similar. It's, it's I, I get that a lot. Yeah, people tell me I sound like Raccoon Reigns, but personally, I I, don't, I just don't see it. Uh, you know. Yeah. But anyway, that's one of the great mysteries of life, I suppose. So, but on that note, are you ready to dive into the 1999 Royal Rumble? I am, but I believe there was a TV show called Sunday Night Heat that we have to dive into first. Oh, look at that. You're way ahead of me. <laughs> you are correct. There was an episode of Sunday Night Heat to cover before the pay-per-view. And yes, you're right. We would be remiss, of course, if we didn't provide the details there as well. So the show began with Stone Cold Steve Austin showing up in a truck backstage, only to be told by an attendant that it's VIP limousine parking only. So not to be outdone, Austin says he can find himself a limousine, and he then proceeds to peel off in his pickup truck. So we then go to the arena where Vince McMahon, Shane McMahon, Pat Patterson, and Gerald Briscoe are heading to the ring. And when they do, for the very first time, Sal, we get it. The debut of Vince McMahon's new theme song, No Chance in Hell, a phrase which also doubles as the tagline for tonight's pay-per-view. And of course, this is the very same theme song which Vince still uses to this very day. So it's kind of funny to think about how it was created specifically for Rumble 99, and yet here we are 19 years later. Are you a fan of the song, Sal? I am. I was unaware. Uh, even though I watched like crazy, I guess... It just didn't connect with me that this was the theme song for this pay-per-view specifically, mm-hmm. and then Vince adopted it as his theme song. I kind of always thought it was just Vince's song, because you know yeah. he he would just kind of show up with it. Um, but this was the tagline for it was Royal Rumble, no chance in hell. That was the tagline exactly. on the poster. So yep. uh, it was great to hear the song. Um, I I will say about the opening segment, it was a little bit weird that Austin's challenge tonight. To, to buck the authority is to park his vehicle? Yes, and get to the arena in a, in a, a timely amount of time, I guess. Yeah. Time, timely, that's a little redundant, but a, a prompt amount of time. He, yeah, he had a time clock to when he could park his vehicle and, and make it to the arena floor, I guess. Yes, well, actually, on that note, Vince, so he grabs a mic, Vince grabs a mic and says that if Stone Cold can find the employee's parking lot and get to the ring in the next 30 minutes, he will stand face-to-face with Austin right here on Heat. It's a bit of a convoluted explanation, but, I mean, hey, if it gives us an Austin-McMahon face-off, who can argue with that, right? Who can argue? So Vince then says that the WWF champion, Mankind, is probably in the back preparing for his I Quit match with The Rock later tonight, but instead, he is now going to have a tune-up match tonight on Heat against a mystery opponent. 
Mm-hmm. And on that note, we then, yeah, so we then cut to the parking lot where we see a black limousine pull up, and after a quick commercial break, Patterson and Briscoe go to the limo and greet someone, and we can hear Patterson say that mankind is in for a surprise. And out from the limo emerges a large 500-pound African-American man who is wearing a ski mask to hide his face. But I mean, honestly, is there any point in hiding his face whatsoever? This is probably the most obvious mystery man in wrestling history. And he certainly appears to be walking with purpose, so it's quite clear that he is a man on a mission. <laughs> but anyway, but anyway, whoever this mass man is, he will apparently be mankind's mystery opponent later tonight on Heat. So from there, we go back to the arena for our first match of the evening, Job Squad members Bob Holly and Scorpio versus Too Much, the team consisting of Scott, Too Hot Taylor, and Too Sexy, Brian Christopher. And retroactively, watching this match was rather bittersweet, because as we're recording this right now, we're less than two weeks removed from Brian Christopher's suicide in July of 2018. Tragic stuff. But on the positive side, once too much gets repackaged later in the year, there are a lot of really fun moments to relive throughout the course of this podcast. And funny enough, one year from now, at the 2000 Royal Rumble, there's a pretty classic moment involving this team, but I suppose we'll get to that eventually. But yes, in the meantime, R.I.P. Brian Christopher. Very sad news. Yeah. But now, getting back to Sunday Night Heat, in case you need a quick reminder about Too Much's gimmick at the time, they're wearing bright rainbow colors and hugging each other because, yes, they wanted to hint that Christopher and Taylor were homosexuals. Very subtle. Very subtle. And during this match, in the top right of the screen, we saw the Stone Cold Countdown which was counting down the number of minutes Austin had to arrive in the arena if he wanted to have a face-to-face confrontation with Mr. McMahon. So as for the match itself, it was pretty fun and fast-paced for a complete jobber affair. The finish came when Brian Christopher attempted to pick up Bob Holly for a slam, but Holly squirmed out of it, picked up Christopher, and hit him with the Falcon Arrow, and that was enough to score the one, the two, and the three. Your winners, Bob Holly and Scorpio. And speaking of Bob Holly's Falcon Arrow, Sal, do you remember what tasteful name is eventually given to Bob's finishing move? Uh, the Alabama Slammer? That that's the different one. That's the that's the Alabama Slam. As right. for the Falcon Arrow, what is what the name that's given to it is of course the Holocaust. Oh no, I didn't I did not recall. They actually said that on TV. <laughs> no, they, they they didn't hear, but eventually they do take that name. They give it that name, and yes, eventually they do say the Holocaust on television because that is the that is for some reason the name they found fitting to give to Bob Holly's finishing move. Jesus Christ! <laughs> yeah, although that does make me wonder if Bob Holly goes for that move and someone blocks it, would that make them a Holocaust denier? I think it would. I think it would. Uh, These very, are the kinds of thoughts that kind note, of kept me out of the good schools. Uh, as you had mentioned, uh, a Mankind's mystery opponent comes out of the uh, limo, mm-hmm. and it is a mystery to pretty much no one. Yeah. It was just me. Oh, I'm like, oh, Mabel with a mask. Okay. That was... <laughs> Who? What? That was subtle. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler! But yeah, so well, what did you think of uh, our opening tag match? Did you enjoy the, uh, the tag? First of all, um, I don't get the whole thing they were kind of going for in the early days of too much with the uh, rainbow tights because it wasn't like Billy and Chuck where it was like completely in your face mm-hmm. it was more um, these guys just came out in rainbow tights and hugged each other 
Oh, well, actually, I have some notes on this a little bit later because I delve into the uh, the Wrestling Observer from this week, and there, Meltzer has some very interesting notes about what the plan was for too much around this time. Oh, God. <laughs> and, yeah, and also why they lost on this show, because let's just say they weren't exactly comfortable with the direction they were thinking of going in, so but we'll touch on that in a little bit. But yeah, that's uh, that's that's what they were hinting at. Now, I think it was during this match... I popped huge because there was either a commercial or it was just a quick thing before the bell rang of shows that you can see coming up tonight on the USA Network. If you choose not to watch the Royal Rumble, right. you can watch Pacific Blue at 8, oh. Silk Stockings at 9, oh, that's a classic, and La Femme Nikita at 10. Yes. So, Henry, <laughs> that really, were, were you a fan of those uh, USA type of shows? I never watched any of them, but like going back and hearing that gives me a fuzzy feeling because, of course, I remember. I think I have a recollection of Silk Stockings being on after Raw in like the the mid '90s. Raw is like around '96, and I do, of course, remember Pacific Blue because I played a clip of it on one of the episodes actually, where it was China who actually did a guest spot on Pacific Blue, as did Triple H, as did Sable, I believe. That seemed to be like the go-to. For, for all the wrestlers was they just put him on Pacific Blue for some reason. Really wanted to get that show over. And of course, on the first episode of Heat, Mario Lopez, the star of Pacific Blue, got in a confrontation with Val Venus, if you remember that. But uh, yes, uh, basically all these old USA Network shows, I get re- very warm, fuzzy feelings about them. Even La Femme Nikita, which I don't think even lasted very long at all. So yes, th- thumbs all the way up for those USA Network shows. And also, I think another one that debuts around this time is Happy Hour which used to air right after Raw. Do you remember that one with the, the Zappa brothers? I absolutely do not. Uh, I just, I Fair did, enough. I don't recall that, but I thought you were going to say Chris Lee knows best, and I was going to say, no, 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 that, oh. that's a few years off. <laughs> I can't say I've ever seen that one for sure. I've seen plenty but... of commercials for it. I know. I remember back in the days when uh, when Mr. Robot first started airing, they would put a little bumper across the bottom of Raw where it said, like, Mr. Robot coming soon, and I was like, is that a wrestler? Is there going to be a wrestler named Mr. Robot? <laughs> it was kind of vague. But yes. So again, I, I regarding the opening match, I was a fan of it. I thought it was pretty good for what it was, considering there was just four jobbers going at it. But yeah, th- thumbs up. Good start to the show. Absolutely. But after the match ends, Ministry of Darkness members Midian and the Acolytes then hit the ring and start beating the crap out of Too Much and the Job Squad. Midian, by the way, is now sporting a nose ring because clearly he needed to look even more ridiculous than he already does. <laughs> Yeesh. So once the ministry tosses all four jobbers out of the ring, the lights go out and the Undertaker's music hits. And sure enough, Taker then walks to the ring, accompanied by Paul Bearer and three druids. He grabs a mic and basically reminds us of what he said last Monday on Raw. There will be another sacrifice tonight during the Royal Rumble, but he's not saying who it is just yet. You think he's going to give that away for free? Call your local cable company and order that shit if you haven't already, son. Got to wait for the pay-per-view for that. But Sal, did you enjoy uh, Taker's promo here? So a couple of fun facts. Ooh, okay. The Acolytes were originally managed by Jackal. Mm-hmm. And for some reason decided it was a good idea to leave the J off of their name. Yes, but then, the Jackalites. But then uh, the Jackal was fired, mm-hmm. and uh, they didn't really have a plan for Farouk and Bradshaw before sticking them in the ministry. Uh, I would dare say it did work, ultimately. Yeah. 
But I always thought that name was kind of the Acolytes. Like, we just get lazy, or what's what's the deal here? Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess initially they were Acolytes of the Jackal, and then it was like, well, I mean, we could keep the name and just make them Acolytes of the Undertaker instead, I suppose. Uh, why not? And then, um, did they re- like, Dennis Knight seems like a pretty decent wrestler name. They could have even just went with, like, Knight or something like that. Did they really have to sure. change his name to Midian? Yeah, it's kind of it does kind of make it worse actually. Like I agree with you, Knight is actually a good name, especially for somebody hanging out with the Undertaker because right. I mean it, it sounds like Knight N I G H T, which obviously, you know, makes sense. I know I know there's a K, it's Knight as in like Knight in shining armor. Right. But De- but Dennis Knight just saying it sounds like it would make sense for for a Ministry of Darkness character. But no, we're going to call him Midian and go through about, you know, 15 spellings of it before we decide on the right one, so... Yeah, we're gonna call so, a middle-of-the-pack jobber who who drinks blood, like... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> against his will. Against his will. Uh, it's great seeing Taker in this persona because it's new, it's fresh, and, um, God, for the past few years, um, at this, t- at this point in time, Taker's character, I would dare say, is getting kind of stale... Agreed. So it's great to see him doing something new. I was always a fan of the ministry, but I guess I wasn't necessarily a fan of how they started. Like, not really the biggest, ooh, I got Midian as my first stable guy. Like, eh. Yeah. Uh. Like, hey, it's it's one half of Southern Justice. <laughs> <laughs> the one who didn't have to retire. Okay, yeah, great. I was going to say, and I it's think- the ugly one. <laughs> Yeah, Taker, Taker clearly needs to aim a little bit higher. Although I guess if you listen to last week's podcast, the initial plan was for Dan Severn to join the ministry, but uh, obviously that's not in the cards. Uh, I don't know if you heard about that, Sal, but basically Dan Severn says that the plan was for him to join the ministry and have 666 on his forehead because he's the beast and 666 is the number of the beast. And he was like, uh, yeah, no, not happening. So, Well, that is a little so, fantasy that would never happen. Cause you're right. Dan Severn would step into that world of fantasy. Yeah. Cause all this chaos. Yeah, if, if you haven't gotten a chance, by the way, people, if you haven't listened to the previous episode, I play a clip from a Dan Severn shoot interview where he talks about turning fantasy into reality. His his Just his voice does not match how much of a badass he is. I'm just going to say that. No, his voice makes him sound like what you would think Scotty Too Hotty sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> and if you listen to that interview, too, there's one part where he talks about like going into the Rumble, and he says, making everyone look pretty darn silly. And it just sounds <laughs> sounds so wrong. It's like, Dan Severn should sound like a badass, but whatever. But as you know, if you listen to the last episode, he's no longer, he's basically done with the company. He's in the Royal Rumble tonight, of course, but he has no more matches on Raw. He's basically just working the house show circuit, I think with Steve Blackman, until mid-February when they just let him go. So, yeah, sorry. No no, Dan the Beast Severn with 666 on his forehead, people. I'm sorry. He probably uh, would, maybe he would have made it work, but you know, uh, probably, probably not. So we then cut backstage where we see your WWF champion Mankind walking around in the boiler room. Shane McMahon has some words for Mick, so let's hear what Foley has to say in response. And Mankind, it's unfortunate that you have to compete twice here this evening, but speaking for the millions and millions of The Rocks fans, I can't wait to hear you whimper those words, I quit! You are sadly mistaken, you pretentious little twit. You see, mankind does not whimper, but it will not be I. It will be the rock, and he will be screaming the magic words. I quit! I quit! I quit! Thank you very much for those kind words, Mick. 
Now, without spoiling too much here, you may want to remember that particular promo for a little later on in the show. And after a commercial break, we then go back to the arena where your WWF Women's Champion Sable is walking to the ring where she will be interviewed by a tuxedo-wearing Michael Cole. As a reminder, tonight Sable will put her title on the line against Luna Vachon in, of all things, a strap match for some reason. A strap-on match? Uh, yes. Both women will put the strap on and step into the ring. Oh, got it. Yes. And, of course, Sable only speaks a few sentences before Luna does indeed come to the ring and jump her from behind. Uh. Yeah. Luna nails Sable with a backbreaker, then starts slapping and kicking her lower back, so they're playing it up as though Luna is indeed trying to injure her back. Why? Because clearly, if Sable's back is hurt, then she uh, won't be able to swing a leather strap, I guess? Sure, that makes anatomical sense. Sal, did you enjoy this Sable beatdown? No. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Uh, I'm watching this, and, uh, you know, I have so much respect for Luna Vachon. I think she was underrated. I think uh, she was tremendous, not just for her era, but just in general. She could work. She could go. And you put her with Sable, and God bless Luna. She tried, but Sable can't (laughs) even take a beating the right way. I know. This actually looked really bad because, like, when Luna's – so basically they're they're doing it like Sable has her back to the ramp so she can't see, you know, Luna come up and sneak up on her. But, like, Sable is already – by the time Luna gets to the ring, like, Sable is already basically looking over her shoulder when Luna jumps her. So she kind of, like, screws it up by seeing Luna coming. Do, do you know what I mean? Like, she, she basically looked too early because Luna was, like, right there instead of, like, having Luna jump her from behind. She was like, sense? She was like, oh, oh, shit. Oh, shit, I think, I think she's going to yeah, hit me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly what it was. She was like, oh, 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 oh crap, oh, crap. Like, she wasn't defending herself because obviously it called, like, the segment called for her to get beaten from behind. But she clearly saw Luna and was basically just like, eh, you know, like that sort of thing. <laughs> so n- not good stuff. But there, as, as we said there, so Luna has beaten Sable's lower back. And I guess maybe that's supposed to prevent her from doing the TKO. Perhaps I I don't know. What do you think? Uh, was that I was, was thinking, that Luna's mindset? I was thinking the sable bomb, but uh, oh yeah, that that's true too. Maybe it was just trying to prevent anybody from having to see Sable wrestle. I mean, I think I think we all <laughs> would have been better off, right? Well, we'll find out later on if she actually succeeds in that regard. And so, after another commercial break, we then go back to the arena where Vince McMahon, Pat Patterson, and Gerald Briscoe are once again walking to the ring. According to the Stone Cold Countdown, Austin only has about three minutes left to show up, so the clock is ticking. Vince says he regrets to inform us that Stone Cold is clearly not returning to the arena, but he quickly proves to be mistaken. Now, remember how earlier the attendant told Austin he could only enter if he was in a limo? Well, Stone Cold takes that guy's advice, and he shows up driving what is basically a monster truck limousine. He then proceeds to drive over four cars parked in the employee lot and completely crush them before exiting the monster truck and walking into the arena. And funny enough, when Austin comes out from backstage, they don't play his theme music, which is pretty weird to see. He just kind of walks down the aisle without the glass breaking. Bit of a strange sight there. But in case you need a reminder, Austin and Vince will enter number one and number two in the Royal Rumble match tonight, so we know that they're definitely going to get physical with each other at some point. However, on commentary, Shane McMahon informs us that Austin has apparently signed a contract stating he can't touch Vince before the Rumble match unless he's provoked, so that would appear to be why Mr. McMahon feels confident enough to call out Stone Cold face-to-face here. So Vince says to Austin, quote, I've got just one thing to say to you, 
and then he slaps Stone Cold right across the face. And as soon as he does that, Vince immediately rolls out of the ring and runs away as Austin beats down the Stooges, eventually tossing them both out of the ring. Austin then stares down Vince from the ring and points to his watch as if to say that Vince's time is running out. Stone Cold then poses on the turnbuckles and taunts Shane McMahon, and Shane then responds on commentary by yelling at Austin, quote, You're going over, baby! And you know, Shane, I understand what you meant there, but I think Austin going over is the last thing you want to happen tonight. Right. But anyway, but anyway, Sal, did you enjoy the uh, Austin McMahon face-to-face promo? I forgot he slapped him. I completely I forgot he slapped him. And then when he did, I was like, oh, shit. At one, it was a good slap. At one point, and I, I might be jumping ahead, I'm not sure. I, I'm pretty sure it was on Sunday Night Heat. Vince was putting baby oil on himself. Yeah, that's the very last image of the broadcast. Yes, and he says, it's not baby oil, it's man oil. Yeah, I made a note of that too, actually. Um, but, you know, I also was kind of questioning, because I've been following along on the on the Raw Attitude podcast, and why, why is Austin wearing uh, the long sleeve shirt these days, like tucked into the jeans? Did did he run out no, of vests? It's, or... it's January, maybe he's cold, oh, you know, it's January. Yeah, that's a good point, yeah. Wait, aren't they yeah, in California? No, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but the fans watching nationwide may be in a, a cold weather area, and they need their long sleeve shirts. True, true. Got to sell those merch yeah. everywhere. Absolutely. I remember last summer he was wearing the uh, Austin three sixteen baseball jersey during the summer. So you know you gotta you gotta know your audience and what they're buying. Ah, I suppose. You know what? That's a very valid point. Got to dress for the seasons. That's absolutely right. So we then get a lengthy montage of the Austin McMahon feud from this past fall, leading us up to tonight, and then we cut backstage where we see the arrival of The Rock. He has an attendant carrying his bags for him, and amusingly, we then see Rock pull out a huge wad of cash from his pocket, but he only gives the attendant a dollar. Funny stuff. Clearly at this point, though, The Rock possesses much more than seven bucks. And after a commercial break, it is now time for our Sunday Night Heat main event, WWF Champion Mankind versus a mystery opponent in a non-title match. So yes, the 500-pound mystery opponent walks to the ring, still wearing his ski mask and black trench coat, because obviously no one could possibly figure out who he is when he's wearing that stuff. I mean, obviously. And not only that, but when the match begins, he's still wearing the ski mask to conceal his identity. Really taking that reveal down to the wire, aren't they? And I have to say, it looks like our mystery opponent friend could barely move or throw a punch without a ton of effort. At one point, he starts clubbing Mankind on the back with forearms, and it looks like his arms are underwater. Not great. Not great. Eventually, though, Mankind managed to hit him with the double-arm DDT, and then he pulled out Mr. Socko, which got a huge pop from the crowd. And when he put Socko on the Mystery Man, he lifted the ski mask up to reveal that it was, indeed, Mabel. Probably the least surprising surprise of all time. Strangely, neither Kevin Kelly nor Shane McMahon on commentary acknowledged that it was Mabel, despite the fact that his face was clearly on full display, so that made me wonder if the ski mask coming off was accidental. I feel like it must have been. And for those of you scoring at home, this is the first time we've seen Mabel in a WWF ring since his one-off match against Ken Shamrock back on the July 6, 1998 episode of Raw. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. He wrestled mm-hmm. in 98 for the WWF? Yes, oh he my did. God. It was a one-off match. So basically what happened was Shamrock had just won King of the Ring, right? So Shamrock actually beat Owen Hart and Triple H in a match featuring three former King of the Ring winners. And then oh, on the next episode of Raw, okay. yeah, 
So on the very next episode of Raw, Mabel attacks Shamrock, clearly upset about the fact that he, as a fellow King of the Ring winner, did not get an invitation to that match. But now, here he is back once again to slowly lumber his way around a wrestling ring. Dude, I thought he had been gone since, like, beginning of 96, at least. He probably should have been. (laughs) But anyway, once Mankind put Sako on Mabel... The Rock ran out from backstage and hit Mankind with a rock bottom. Mabel then hit Mankind with a splash, and The Rock grabbed a mic to tell Foley that he was looking at the next WWF champion. Rock then continued putting the boots to Mankind until, yes, as you mentioned, we got a quick cut backstage where we saw a ridiculously jacked, shirtless Vince McMahon posing in front of a mirror as Patterson and Briscoe cheered him on. And yes, Vince then gets in that hilarious line when he says what's covering his body right now is not baby oil. It's man oil. <laughs> totally fantastic line. And I like how that's the last image of Sunday Night Heat. Like, call your local cable company now and you can see Vince McMahon's fucking oiled up pecs. Great stuff. But yeah, that was Sunday Night Heat. So what did you think, Sal? Did you enjoy the show? I actually did, um, surprisingly, because I remember Sunday Night Heat being, like, really boring back in the day. But uh, it was a good show. It was a good setup to the Rumble. Uh, I did like the little game they played with Austin, uh, you know, kind of like the thread throughout the show. And Rock is is slowly, like, approaching his prime. Like, mm-hmm. when you see his... his um, his development since when you started this podcast to now he's like he's on the climb and he's like right there to being like what he will be which is like one of the greatest you know talkers and performers of all time and i think i think tonight in like this kind of section of 99 like you can really like see him start skyrocketing more than just like some guy who shot his mouth off in the nation you know what i mean Absolutely. It's funny. I mentioned it on our Survivor Series episode. So like when when he does his, you know, brief face turn in the fall up to Survivor Series, he's, you know, he's the rock, he's coming out basically in just his standard rock tights, but then he does the heel turn at Survivor Series. Literally the next night, he's wearing like, you know, the expensive outfits and it's like, "Oh, okay, this is like he went from being, you know, like kind of uh, just not not generic babyface because the crowd obviously fucking loves the guy, mm-hmm. but he went from being babyface wearing you know just the, the regular tights to the next night now he's Mr. Corporate wearing the expensive suits and he just looks like a completely different guy. He got you know more promo time than he usually gets. He sounded like a different guy. Obviously now going back to being a heel, being a corporate heel this time. So yeah, it was really funny just to see how quickly he made that turn. Literally overnight it seemed he just turned into this corporate guy, which kind of forms the basis for his character, not just heel going forward but also face because he keeps a lot of the same catchphrases and things like that but yeah it's it's pretty much an amazing transformation now shameless re- plug for wrestlemania salvation um please my next episode that should actually be coming out around the same time this drops uh is wrestlemania 2000 and nice. the rock at that event is is peak rock it is like everything like you know the entire crowd weighing on every single word he says like he has reached his zenith at that moment. Yeah, absolutely. And WrestleMania 2000, of course, was the 2000th WrestleMania, <laughs> I do believe. Because <laughs> somehow it went from WrestleMania 15 to WrestleMania 2000. But uh, but yeah, WrestleMania 2000, not one of my favorite WrestleManias, but The Rock, obviously, without spoiling too much, he is in the main event, and it's a... It's an, it's an okay-ish main event, but The Rock is obviously hugely over by that point. Exactly, um, exactly. 
Yeah, and, and wrapping up Sunday Night Heat, I will say, you know, this is still the point where Sunday Night Heat is pretty entertaining. I mean, we got fucking Austin and Vince on Sunday Night Heat, and basically we had Austin doing that whole gag with the monster truck limousine, which was like a throwaway thing on an episode of Sunday Night Heat. You know what I mean? It's like, that's a really big thing that they just kind of like put in there. Like, yeah, here's Steve Austin showing up to wreck a bunch of cars, and then it's just kind of like move on to the next thing. So Yeah, think about God that. Bl- that's like a an 11 o'clock segment on Raw. Yeah, exactly. And they just and it's just like, nope, here you go. Yeah, for free, which is great. I mean, like I said, I think it, it did do what it was supposed to do and probably got people to, to be interested into purchasing the Rumble. Absolutely. And so on that note, this episode of Heat actually ended up scoring a massive 4.8 rating, which is just a hair under what Nitro ends up doing this week. So clearly the momentum is strong on the WWF side at this point. I mean, when your secondary show is putting up almost the same number as your competition's A show, you're doing something right. You're doing something right. That's all I'll say. But with that being said, Sal, are you ready to get into the 1999 Royal Rumble? Oh yeah, fantastic! Well, I just felt like I just so felt like that. the Kool Aid Man right there. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. I saw you burst through a wall there. I was wondering what was going on. So it is Sunday, January 24th, 1999, and we are live from Arrowhead Pond in Anaheim, California, now called the Honda Center in the present day. Some of the other noteworthy events which have taken place in this same venue include WrestleMania 12, uh, WrestleMania 2000 also, six episodes of SmackDown, and a whopping 21 episodes of Monday Night Raw, including the February 14th, 2011 episode where The Rock finally returned to the WWE and announced he would be the host of WrestleMania 27. He did that in Anaheim? He did that in Anaheim, yeah. fuck the Staples Center. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) We're going there next week, but no, let's let's make Rock come back in Anaheim. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, so funny enough, so despite doing all those episodes of Raw in this venue, 21 episodes, they haven't done a pay-per-view in this building since the aforementioned WrestleMania 2000. So that one you're covering on WrestleMania Salvation, that is the last pay-per-view that they've done in that venue over, what was it now, 18 years later? Yeah, 18 years later. So I have no idea why, but I thought that warranted mentioning that they do a fucking WrestleMania there, then they do a bunch of Raws, but they don't do any other pay-per-views. It's really strange to me. That is interesting. So interestingly, if you're watching the 1999 Rumble on the WWE Network, you'll see that it's actually rated TVMA for language and violence, and I assume the violence part is solely due to one match in particular. We also get a disclaimer at the top of the broadcast which says, quote, The following program is presented in its original form. It may contain some content or insensitive dialogue that does not reflect WWE's corporate views. WWE characters are fictitious and do not reflect the personal personal lives of the actors portraying them. Viewer discretion is advised. And then, in case that didn't drive the point home, we get another disclaimer with a big red TVMA plastered across the screen. And this warning says... What you're about to watch contains explicit language, adult themes, violence, and may not be suitable for viewers under 18. Viewer discretion is strongly advised. Well, you certainly can't accuse them of being subtle with the warnings, that's for sure. If you And you have gone back and you've watched many pay-per-views from this era. Not all of them have that last screen. Not at all. Um, I've, I can only count a couple episodes of Raw that were even TVMA. The pay-per-views, I don't think. I don't know if any of the pay-per-views have been... TVMA maybe fully loaded because of the sable bikini thing, but I think I think it's only been a handful of Raws I've seen that have been TVMA. So it, it, it's funny because as I'm watching this, as I turn on the network and I see the 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 viewer discretion strongly advised, I'm like, you know, they're not taking any chances. Just in case 
Some yeah. little kid wants to, you know, in this day and age, be like, hey, I'm like this guy, 1999. Nope, no, 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 no. We warned you. We fucking yeah. warned you. And, of course, if I'm a little kid watching that, I'm going to be like, oh, now I really want to watch this show. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's the way it always goes. So we open with a montage of the Austin-McMahon feud, and you know what? I might as well just play it for you right here to get you into the proper frame of mind. Austin, there is no chance in no. hell. From there, we queue up the opening pyro and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. And frankly, the fans of Anaheim really went all out for this show because there were some great signs in the audience tonight. So here is a list of the ones that I enjoyed, Sal. My sign is the best. <laughs> I'm I'm an asshole. Sable is old. Oof. Your, yeah, I know. Your ad space here. Tig old biddies 36DD. Look, Mom, we're white trash. Michael Cole needs a beating. Sucked it, past tense. Shave the corporate eyebrow. China's love slave. Foley is God and Funk is his prophet. Show me your tits. Demolition deserves a title shot. I gave boss man prison love. Deborah's boobs equal ratings. McMahon's on juice. Is Mr. Sako Y2K ready? There's a literal sign of the times for you. Mm -hmm. Fiber equals poo. Yes. Yes. That, <laughs> that was a big one. That was a big that sign. That one was held by about nine people, and I could have sworn they got it off before the show went live on pay-per-view because you don't see it the rest of the night. <laughs> I don't know why. There, there are so many more offensive signs than that one. I don't know why they take it. Continuing on, we also had Gangrel Fears Count Chocula. <laughs> I'm a hardcore porn champ. Shamrock, one word, decaf. Slap me, spank me, stun me, Steve. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. And even better, Patterson 316, I just bruised your colon. Yeesh. Yikes. I thought that was a secret until Legends House. And playing off last week's infamous angle, Mark, can you feel what Sammy's cocking? So, Sal, were there any signs you noticed that I happened to miss? Uh, there were they were just, there were a few. Real quick on the Pat Patterson thing, um, if you recall a couple episodes ago, maybe it was just a very recent episode, uh, where he fondled China, yes. and then kind of went, ugh, ugh, like, yes. and Lala actually made a comment, like, I don't think Patterson liked it. Yeah. That was when they were jiggling China's breasts, and they had to censor it on on the network. 
Uh, and I think actually on the initial broadcast too, they censored it because even back then they were like, "Oh, I don't know if this is, I don't know if this is okay." No, not okay to have two old men grab someone's breast on live TV. Probably not. Yes. Um, so a couple of the signs that I I noted. It's funny I didn't have any of the signs that you had except for the one. The oh. one sign that said "My sign is the best." That yes. was great because it's like, well, what else do you say at that point? Um, yeah. I saw a sign that said "Hi Colt," so obviously a time travel, and he ended up in the wrong era. Oh, there you go. Uh, Willy Wonka's Sexual Chocolate Factory. Oh, well, nice. How did I miss that one? Somebody stole my sign. <laughs> <laughs> McMahon to Pump Chump. Oh. I saw a pretty big one, and I, I this kind of confused me. Austin sold out, and I was like, wow. This is like when your favorite band like goes from being underground to being mainstream, and now everybody likes them, and then you're like, oh, they sold out, <laughs> man. Yeah. Or maybe they were just uh, maybe they were a time traveler from uh, WrestleMania X Seven. Ah, they wrong, see they ended up in the wrong place. There you and go. the last one I saw very quickly, uh, right near the opening match, it said PDFL for life. And of course, hmm. if you read that quickly, it looks like pedophile for life. Oh, I didn't even think of that. <laughs> when you said PDF, I was thinking of like the file format. I was like, oh, PDF, okay. But yes, PDFL that that definitely does. Seem like pedophile, yes, for sure. Right. <laughs> poor, poor choice of signs. Yes, exactly. So from there, we jump right into the action with our first match of the evening, WWF Hardcore Champion The Road Dog Jesse James versus one half of the WWF Tag Team Champions, The Big Boss Man. Now, before the match begins, Michael Cole informs us that thanks to Vince McMahon, this is actually not a hardcore match, nor is the Road Dogs hardcore title on the line for some reason, so apparently it's just a standard one-on-one encounter. The only the thing match, I could think of was that because of what they're going to do with the WWF title later on, right. they didn't want to like kind of oversaturate the hardcore style, so they were like, That's no, 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 point. make sure that match is like a regular match. Good point, yeah. Although, this match kind of suffered for it, but we'll get into that. (laughs) So, at the start, it's actually really clear that Road Dog is one over motherfucker at this point in time, as he really knows how to work the crowd. Just that subtle stalling he does when doing the 10-count punches, or right before he pulls Bossman's legs to crotch him against the turnpost, the crowd is just loud as hell for him right now. And also, Sal, I don't know if you caught this, but at one point when Road Dog is on offense, Michael Cole says, quote, Roadie with a right hand. Did you notice that? I did notice that. And I was like, are you serious? Did he just really call him Roadie? Or was he just kind of throwing, like, the, you know, nickname on it, like, because he didn't want to say Road Dog? Yeah. Michael Cole's still stuck in the new generation era, it would appear. (laughs) Now, Sal, I like Road Dog, and I like Boss Man at this point in time. But this match went for an unconscionably long 12 minutes, and I'm sorry, but that is way too much time for these guys. Now, at the very least, if you're going to have them go out there for 12 minutes, you probably should make this a hardcore match, but I can definitely see your point that they didn't want to overdo it with the hardcore given the match they do later. But man, 12 minutes for these two, I, I just that's just way, way, way too much. So the finish of the match came when Road Dog bounced off the ropes, but out of nowhere, the boss man grabbed him and nailed him with the boss man slam, and that was enough to secure the one, the two, and the three. Your winner of our opening match, the big boss man. 
And I have to say, I was rooting for the Road Dog to win here, if only because I wanted to see what the hell his finishing move would be. And seriously, Sal, I had to actually go back and check Wikipedia to see if Road Dog did indeed have a finishing move in his singles career. And it turns out that he did. Do you remember what it was? It was the pump handle slam, wasn't it? That's exactly right. The pump handle slam where he would occasionally pretend like he was banging his opponent up the ass before he delivered it, but, you know, truly, truly a classic move there. But as as for the opening match, Sal, what did you think of the Road Dog versus the Big Boss Man? Okay, so we constantly complain, especially in this day and age, about matches that are cut short for time. Um, True. And this one probably should have been. Like you said. <laughs> like cut in half. Yeah, like you said, 12 minutes for this when it's not even for the hardcore title. It was kind of pointless. Okay, I will say this. Road Dog came out to a huge pop. He's mm-hmm. super over. Probably at this point the second most popular person in DX. Yeah, maybe maybe China. True. Well, at this okay. It's DX, close. It's DX itself close. is very very popular at this point in 1999. Yes. Um Road Dog does does his shtick, kind of throws in the word hardcore champion in there. But then he also was like, and the badass Billy Gunn. And I'm like, that he's not in yeah. this match. What the fuck yeah. is that? And he wasn't even at ringside when he said that. Right. The match starts... See, this is this is a sign that things were going to get be bad. The match starts very awkwardly as Bossman decides to run crisscross across the ropes for no <laughs> reason and yell while he's doing it. And then he looks at Road Dog like he just intimidated him, and Road Dog just crotch-chops him. Yeah. Suck it, dude. <laughs> Which was the appropriate response. It was the absolute appropriate response. Um, and then the match went on. It was okay. I mean, there was it was a little bit hard-hitting. I felt like the finish was like an RKO. I felt like it came out of nowhere. Yeah, it really did. Like, all of a sudden, like... he, he... Okay, like, there was a little misdirection, but he catches him with, this, with the side slam, and then they're like, Oh, that's it! One, two, three! Got him! <laughs> yep. <laughs> Yeah, it was a little. I think Road Dog was mounting his comeback at that point because he had been doing, you know, the the jiving punches and all that sort of thing. Then he just hits the rope and bam, out of nowhere, boss man slam, game over. Yeah, it, it was. I, I didn't see a point to this match. It, it, look, the Royal Rumble historically is full of filler matches, like on the undercard where it's just like, listen, we don't really give a shit what happens in the first two hours. We're just worried about the title match and the Rumble itself. Yeah. Uh, Although, and, with that being said, on this very night, with the boss man's win and when he's in the Rumble later, uh, he, he has a very strong night for himself. Let's just say that. Yeah, we'll, we'll keep it that, at that for now. So next up, we had our Intercontinental title match, champion Ken Shamrock versus challenger badass Billy Gunn. Now, the first thing I couldn't help but notice here is that Howard Finkel announces that this match has a one-hour time limit. And how... <laughs> How hilarious would it be if they actually went that long? Sorry, folks, no Rumble match tonight. Shamrock and Billy went Broadway, and we had to cut it for time. Sorry about that. And Sal, in case you wondered if this was 1999 or not, I couldn't help but notice that Billy Gunn is now the third person we've seen so far tonight who's sporting an eyebrow ring. First it was The Undertaker, then Road Dog, and now Billy Gunn. I feel like you really have to suspend your disbelief when you see that, because logically... Shouldn't your opponent want to rip your goddamn eyebrow right off when he sees that? It always kind of bothered me when they would have those during a match, you know? You meant Midian had an eyebrow ring, right? He he had a nose ring. Oh, Undertaker actually had an eyebrow ring? He did, I couldn't yeah. see because of the hood, but he act. Wow, that's bad. Um, 
Yeah, it was the era of facial jewelry at this point. I don't know why anybody would do that. Jesus. Okay, I kind of had my tongue pierced in 1999 too, but that's another oh, story for another day. Um, <laughs> that that one must that must have hurt quite a bit. Uh, it did. I and, and true to its name, I got it at the House of Pain in Everett. I remember that place. <laughs> um, Is that place still around? I I don't think so. I think yeah, they probably not to condos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at this point. So Billy Gunn comes out, exact same music as Road Dog, and he grabs the mic. And he says, if you ain't down with WPMC, then we got two words for you. That's and then right. the whole sucking thing. What the hell is WPMC? It's funny. I actually have a note on that. So I had no idea what that meant when he said it either. I actually assumed it was like a radio station, like a local Anaheim radio station. But one of our fans on Twitter actually did some digging. So at CyberPuroRaisu on Twitter writes... WPMC is apparently, what I learned back in 2014, the Wellness and Pain Medical Center in Anaheim where you could score legal marijuana. Oh, shit. Yes, so great insight there from at CyberProRacer. Thank you very much for that. Got to give a big tip of the cap to him for pointing that out because I certainly had no clue what the hell Mr. Ass was talking about. So I love when our fans feel compelled to do some research when they see something to to contribute to the podcast. That's That's always a nice feeling. So I actually had come up with a couple of ideas of what I thought it was. Oh, please. Uh, first first one was West Point Marine Corps, right? There you go. That's, maybe? Sure. Well, Road Dog was a Marine, so, you know, maybe Billy could have been given a shout-out to his uh, his comrade's unit or something. That's I what know. I was thinking. And then I, when I Googled WPMC, the very first thing that came up was Western Pennsylvania Mushroom Club. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And I'm is like, that a legal mushroom club? I, I like don't know. Maybe maybe Billy was tripping balls. I don't know. Yeah, well, apparently he was. He was scoring that illegal marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> well ahead of his time, too, because that's, uh, that's a much more common thing now than it was back then, I believe. Well, legally, yes, but... Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. Well, legally, yes. It was, it was prevalent, not legally as well, of course. Of course. But, anywho, so, actually, Sal, regarding this Ken Shamrock-Billy Gunn feud... I said it in the previous episode of this podcast, and I'll say it again here. They've actually done a really good job building up this rivalry over the past month, and I wouldn't have thought that I'd have been so invested in a Shamrock-Billy feud, but goddammit, I actually am going into this thing. Now, you know, whether the match actually delivers is another story, but I was definitely excited going in to see Shamrock versus Billy Gunn, also because I legitimately don't remember how this match went going into it. Like, mm. I didn't know if Billy was going to win the title, so... Yes, I, I was I was excited going on. I think forgettable is the word you're looking for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then now like looking back on it, now I realize why I forgot about the match because it was it was a forgettable match. So early on we got a spot that I have never seen before. So Billy charged at Shamrock in the corner, but Shamrock moved out of the way, so Billy ran shoulder first into the ring post, and then while Billy was hunched over in the corner, Shamrock literally just started kicking Mr. Ass right in his ass. I I thought that was funny. Yeah, I I don't think the spot was supposed to be funny, but it was so ridiculous I couldn't help but chuckle. I mean, clearly Shamrock hasn't forgiven Billy for mooning his sister on Raw two weeks ago, obviously. Well, the announcers bring it up enough. Of course he didn't forgive her. (laughs) Right. Uh, I will say there was a lot of intensity to start the match, which I thought was, was, you know, pretty good. Like, Billy kind of matched Shamrock's intensity. Which is tough to do. Right, well, we'll get to that. (laughs) But go ahead. 
Sure, yeah. So a little further into the match, we actually got a pretty amazing moment. And Sal, you can let me know if you noticed this as well. So Shamrock is working over Billy's leg to set him up for the ankle lock. And Jerry Lawler on commentary says, quote, he senses it. He can smell the blood. And Shamrock somehow appears to hear what Lawler says from inside the ring because he then looks over in the King's direction and pretty much repeats exactly what he says. Did you notice that, Sal? I did, and the only thing I could think of was that Lawler jumped ahead in his in his script. Mm. Like, in other words, Shamrock was supposed to say it on camera first, and then Lawler was supposed to be like, Oh, you hear that, folks? He smells blood. Yeah, That's, yeah maybe. That, that could very well be what it was. But you know what? I'm going to let the Raw Attitude Podcast fans decide for themselves because I'm going to play the clip for you right here. Those kicks of Shamrock tonight have been been unbelievably effective. And like I said, he senses it. He can smell the blood. Shamrock is like like a surgeon. I smell blood. He smells blood. You heard him say it. So continuing on, at one point Shamrock went for a clothesline, but Billy ducked, which resulted in Shamrock accidentally nailing referee Tim White, causing him to fall to the ground. From there, Val Venus ran out from backstage and nailed Shamrock with a DDT. Billy covered Shamrock, Tim White recovered, and he counted the one, the two, and the three! Yeah, no, no, not the three, not quite. Which, because that would have made fucking sense. Exactly. But no, Shamrock got his arm up at the very last moment. The crowd, however, totally bought that as the finish, as did I, watching this as you know, did I. 19 years later. I was like, what? That, I thought that was it. So from there, Billy went to the top rope and tried to hit Shamrock with an axe handle, but Shamrock moved out of the way, which resulted in Billy further aggravating his injured left ankle. And that was all the opportunity Shamrock needed, because he then put Billy into the ankle lock, and sure enough... Billy tapped out in short order, bringing this match to a close at about 14 and a half minutes. And by the way, Billy tapped out with both hands, which made him look like a complete bitch. I mean, that, that's how a cowardly heel taps out, not a big-time babyface. But anyway, your winner and still the WWF Intercontinental Champion, Ken Shamrock. So far tonight, the corporation is two for two, and the New Age Outlaws have put up a goose egg. So, Sal, what did you think of Shamrock versus Ass? <laughs> um, like I said, it started off really good. There was a lot of intensity, and then it just went way too fucking long. Absolutely. There was one spot, and you may, I don't know if you glossed over it, but they were on the apron fighting, and it looked like Shamrock was going to throw Billy off the apron. Instead, mm-hmm. Billy grabs Shamrock by the back of his head and then basically kind of face-bustered him from the apron to the announce table. Mm-hmm. But it almost looked like a reverse choke slam. Yeah, that's actually, funny enough, that's a, somewhat of a callback to what happened on the previous episode of Raw because Shamrock did that same spot to Billy on oh, Raw, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I like that. Um I didn't. I really didn't understand why Val Venus inter- like, based on what the story was, with Val Venus trying to talk to Ryan Shamrock, and then we kind of know how that will play out eventually down the line. But why wouldn't Val Venus cost him the IC title? That would make so much more sense. Right. It was kind of like reverse booking, where for some reason they made it seem like Shamrock was the face and Billy Gunn was the heel. Right. Because you might see that. You might see that in like the the opposite respect where. You know the 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 ref gets knocked out, and one of the heels buddies comes down and you know hits the face. The referee recovers and counts, 
and then you know the face kicks out and the crowd's like oh yeah awesome the the you know the good guy the guy we want to win kicked out but in this it was the opposite where shamrock overcame the odds and then made billy gunn tap cleanly like a bitch it was like a complete reverse booking well it's funny you mention that henry because five years prior to this event was the royal rumble of 1994 in which Razor Ramon defended his intercontinental title against IRS. Oh. And after the ref got knocked out, a heel, Shawn Michaels, ran, ran down to the ring, clocked Razor in the head with the with his version of the IC belt. Uh-huh. And IRS pinned him, but then another referee came down and was like, no, 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 IRS interfered. And Razor ended up ultimately hitting IRS with the Razor's Edge. So exactly like you said, it was the reverse, though where another heel came out to try to cost the babyface the match, but in the end, the babyface prevailed. Wow, I totally don't... So wait a minute, they, they actually played it up as though IRS had won the Intercontinental title? He... Well, as you remember, IRS didn't exactly have music, so so referee Joey Morella counted the three. IRS jumped on the, on the top turnbuckle and raised the title... But Earl Hebner was right there arguing with Morella that, no, 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 Shawn Michaels came down, and there was two belts in the ring. So everybody was like, whoa, there's two belts. That must mean that Shawn came down here and interfered. So they ordered a restart, and while he was on the top rope, Razor just grabbed IRS and gave him the Razor's edge from that position. That's awesome. And he was holding the title, you said? And he, yeah, he was holding the title. Wow, I need to go back and watch that just for the image of IRS holding the fucking intercontinental <laughs> title at a time when that belt actually mattered. Hey, everybody uh, gets a title at some point. Even it took ten, fifteen years, but Big Boss Man is the tag team champion on this <laughs> on this episode. That's right, and he had won the hardcore title before that. So, uh, also, very quick side note: when Shamrock puts somebody in the ankle lock, he he tends to go into his zone, right? Oh yeah. How come every time Shamrock goes in the zone, it looks like he caught his wiener in a zipper? <laughs> Well, that's maybe he's channeling that. He's, that's how he goes into the zone as he remembers a time when that happened. He just looks like he's the one that's in the severe pain and his eyes are bulging out of his head. Got, got the zipper caught on the old Ken Shamcock. <laughs> <laughs> oh, second yeah. match of the night, second corporation win over DX. I'm sure the crowd's thrilled at this point. And, yeah, and second boring, way too long match. So as far as I'm concerned, we're 0 for 2. But things are about to pick up, thankfully, because it's time for our next match, and it was for the WWF European Championship, Champion X-Pac versus Challenger Gangrel. Now, Sal, did you also notice that Michael Cole and Jerry Lawler were completely silent for over a minute when Gangrel made his entrance? I did, and I thought that was something that maybe they plugged something and they cut it out because they didn't have, like, the sponsorship anymore. Yeah, I thought the same thing. I assumed that something was edited out there from the commentary, but I went back and found the original broadcast... And it turns out they were just completely silent the entire time. So maybe Funny. Just... that's how I was during this match. Ah, touche. But I think I think clearly what they wanted to do was give Gangrel's entrance the proper respect that it deserves. Even though on this night, once again, we didn't get the Ring of Fire. We just got him walking out from backstage. But still, still a, a good song. Maybe they were just feeling it. Uh, speaking of walking out backstage, very very quickly on a side note, the Royal Rumble entrance way that that little tunnel that they come out of mm-hmm. uh you've been watching the pay-per-views in 1998 going into 1999 have they sure. used that same fucking tunnel ever since wrestlemania 14 
No, I don't think they've used it since, actually. Oh, God, I was going to say, like, what the hell? Is that, is that all they can afford right now? <laughs> yeah, oh, no, they're doing they're doing pretty good business right now. They could probably afford a little bit more. <laughs> I, was, I was just, that's the first thing I noticed when, well, I think it was the opening match when I saw Road Dog come out of that tunnel was, well, that's the same fucking tunnel from WrestleMania 14. <laughs> yeah, well, pretty soon they'll start getting pretty creative with those, uh, those pay-per-view set designs. Uh, eventually. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think nowadays it's pretty much just the the LED board for every pay per view, isn't it? Well, yeah, that's true. That that yeah. is a good point. Wasn't there one, and it might actually be coming up in your timeline, where there was an actual like, there was a King of the Ring, and they had like the thing hanging that looked like, um, you know, the thing that cut your head off. The guillotine. Yes. Oh, may- maybe I don't know. It might have been King of the Ring '99, actually. <laughs> maybe I mean, well, King of the Ring '98 had the guillotine, like sable was on the poster with the guillotine. With the poster with the guillotine, right. Yeah, but I don't think they actually had one in the arena for that, so maybe they do in 99. That's something I could have sworn they did, and it was just weird. Like, wow, I hope somebody doesn't get their head cut off tonight. Hey, maybe it was in 2000 when they were in Boston. We can ask uh, Nitro Mania host Adam, because he was there. Oh. Indeed. There? I might have been there, too. Well, I, I, I definitely was not there. Was that but... the night that The Rock won the title? I think, spoiler alert, yes it was, I believe. Okay, yes, I was there, and it was probably one of the loudest pops ever when he won the title. Nice. Fun fact, too, though, if you go back and watch King of the Ring 2000, uh, Nitromania host Adam, you can actually see him, because they zoom in on him at one point, uh, when he has a sign, he holds up a sign that says King of the Worm, you know, uh, the future move of a certain wrestler who we saw earlier on this show, so you can actually see Nitromania host Adam there if you want to go back and watch King of the Ring 2000, so... Go check that out, and I uh, I am not responsible for any uh, hatred you may encounter when you watch the uh, Patterson versus Briscoe hardcore evening gun match. I'm just saying. Uh. Just saying. <laughs> so anyway, getting back to Gangrel and X-Pac. Tonight, X-Pac is wearing a singlet, which is green, black, and white, so it appears that he has finally realized he's in DX only about nine months after joining the group. Because <laughs> since, since he returned to the WWF, he's pretty much been wearing nothing but red and black singlets. So it's about time his color scheme finally started to match the faction that he's in. Just saying. Well, you got to figure that uh, when they re-signed him, he didn't have any new gear. And he yeah. kept using his old WCW gear. There you go. Wolfpack in the house, even though it didn't exist when he was in WCW, but so, whatever. They were using the black and red, though. Holland Nash is hey, outside. Hey, Vince, Vince, I need some uh, DX gear. Uh, yeah, it's going to be about six months. Yeah. So, good luck. So, during this match, Jerry Lawler popped me once again with one of his lines. He claimed that Gangrel would make a great European champion because Transylvania is in Europe. And honestly, <sighs> that's, that's a pretty good point there, actually. I hadn't thought of that one. So, a few minutes into the match... X-Pac went to the top rope and hit Gangrel with a crossbody block, but Gangrel rolled through, hooked the leg, and referee Teddy Long counted the one, the two, and the three, even though X-Pac clearly kicked out. So your winner and the new European champion is Gangrel, right? Right? Well, not exactly. It appears that Teddy Long messed up the count, so they just continued the match as if nothing happened. And, of course, the astute Anaheim crowd then had to shower poor Teddy with chants of, You fucked up. Top rope again for X-Pac. Caught it this time. Cross body. Into a cover. Oh. Oh, only two. Two or three. Better hurt three. 
I hear it was only two. Referee didn't call for the bell. X-Pac kicked out. We almost had a new European champion. Rambo, I thought you said three. Well, he didn't, obviously. And X-Pac's still the champ. So, yes, the match continues on, and shortly thereafter, X-Pac bounced off the ropes, and it appeared that Gangrel was attempting to hit him with a spinebuster, but instead, X-Pac reversed it in midair and hit Gangrel with an X-Factor. He then rolled over and pinned him, and yes, this time, we did indeed get the legitimate three-count from Teddy Long, meaning that X-Pac is your winner and still the WWF European Champion. So, Sal, what did you think of this match? Okay, th- this is something that I learned from uh, people like Jason and Adam who have been behind the scenes in uh, you know indie wrestling and things of that nature, that if you as a fan notice the announcer, the ref, or any of the cameramen during the match, <laughs> there's a problem. Right. And I did not realize that Teddy Long was refereeing this match until he fucked up. Exactly. And then as soon as he fucked up, I went, is that Teddy Long? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Damn sure. It's kind of like that thing where um, in the NFL, if you know the offensive lineman's name, it's because he's doing a shit job, right? Cause exactly. It's usually because exactly. It's usually your quarterback just got sacked, and they're like, oh, that was blah, 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 who let that up. So, yeah, same sort of principle here when the referee completely fucks up. So, yeah, good good job, Teddy Long, only about a month into his referee tenure at this point. But, yeah, I, I kind of – I would have been okay. I, I, actually, I take that back because I feel like if this was the current day product and he did that botched three count, they would literally just call it – they would have called the match at that point, right? They would have just called it as not a shoot, but they would have basically said, okay, then Gangrel wins, right? Uh, yeah, that's what I've been told is it at this point they've drilled it into the referee's heads that – you don't stop the count, and your count is fluid, and if they don't kick out, it's on them. Right, exactly. And we'll just go with whatever happens. But so not. I, although I don't think I've seen it happen like that, but maybe it's because they're told that if you fuck up, you're fired. <laughs> yeah. In Vince's exact words, clearly. This match itself wasn't bad. Um, my problem is that I suffered from too much, like, DX one-on-one matches at this point. Mm-hmm. Fair. So I, fair. I honestly, like, okay, you start with Road Dog, the most over guy, uh, outside of Triple H. Then you go to Billy Gunn, and I, and I let, and I was into their feud with him and Shamrock. So by the time this match came around, I really didn't, just didn't give a fuck. Yeah. Well, <laughs> also, I mean, they, they gave you no reason to give a fuck because these guys had literally zero face to face time in the lead up to this match. It was literally just like oh, Xbox and Gangrel at the Rumble, and that's it. There was no story whatsoever. Right, and and like I said, I've been following along uh, with the Rise Two podcast, and I I didn't remember these two having like a like a feud that should culminate at the Rumble. Nope, they certainly don't. I think the, the closest you could get was after Triple H beat Edge. They did a bloodbath, but they got Road Dog outside the ring. They didn't get Xbox, but that's pretty much right. the closest. That's like the the only brood DX interaction we've had up to this point in the in this uh, this calendar that we're on so far. It's a shame, too, because Gangrel, I felt, um, not necessarily the character, but the guy who played the character, I thought was really good in the ring. I thought he was, like, competent and he could put on a decent match. Yeah. What if, I really like his move. He does it in this uh, in this match where he does, like, the double underhook of the arms and then does an overhead suplex to X-Pac. I think yes. that looks... That's a really good-looking uh, really good suplex, but... 
one thing I notice now, like going back and watching these old episodes of Raw, so I always in my head thought that Gangrel was getting, you know, somewhat of a push for a while, but going back, like he debuted, I think in mid-August, and we're now, you know, a couple months down the line, and he's just been a jobber for months. <laughs> like, he has been a complete, like, non-factor. Even with the brood being formed in October, he's still just been an absolute jobber the entire time. So, uh, again, if you go back to the previous episode, Road Dog beat Gangrel cleanly in a hardcore title match on the previous episode of Raw, and yet Gangrel gets a title shot somehow at the Royal Rumble, and he loses at the Royal Rumble, too. So... Yeah, he's he's just been a total jobber, and in my recollection, I thought that he was, you know, doing much better than that. But no, he's he's been pretty, pretty jobtastic. So, it's a funny situation. Uh, on the current product that we review on the Rundown Wrestling Podcast, a lot of times we'll complain about how they bring somebody up from NXT, that they bring them up as a big deal, and then they don't do anything with them. Yeah. And going back and watching wrestling from 99 and 2000, I'm starting to realize they've always been like that. <laughs> uh, you're gonna, you specifically are gonna have a few debuts in 99 where you're gonna be like, wow, that guy's debut was great. And then he's going to be doing absolutely fuck nothing for the rest of the year. Yeah. Yeah. So, so to memo to the people who are covering wrestling today, it's, it's been going on for a while apparently. Exactly, and yeah. and uh, Gangrel, I you know I dug the character. Obviously, the entrance was over. Everybody remembers the music. Totally, but yeah, you're not kidding, man. He didn't even really have a feud. He just debuted <laughs> and then just started jobbing. Yeah, well, his his early feud was with Edge, and they blew that off in like the span of a month. And then about you know a month or two later, they were together. So yeah, that was that was pretty much it. But yeah, I, I don't know. It's it's kind of. Kind of a bit sad in retrospect, but there are better things on the horizon for the brood, in my opinion, coming up relatively soon. So at least at least we have that to look forward to. But regarding the Gangrel X Pac match, I actually really I enjoyed this match. It wasn't a lengthy match. I think it probably went like six, seven, or eight minutes. But it was it was good for what it was. It was more fast paced than the first two matches, uh, given the fact X Pac was involved. And I, I was entertained. I thought it was good. I, You're I right on the button, by the way. Five fifty three was the match time for this. Oh, perfect. There you go. So after that, we then go backstage where Kevin Kelly is with Triple H, Road Dog, and China, and amusingly, a completely out-of-breath X-Pac eventually joins them mid-interview, having just finished his match. He's like, hey guys, hey, I'm here for the interview. How's it, how's it going, guys? Make a little noise. <laughs> so, so DX is in agreement that tonight in the Rumble, with a $100,000 bounty on Stone Cold's head, it will be every man for himself, to which China then grabs the microphone and replies, and woman. Good moment there, I thought, got a nice pop from the crowd. And as a reminder, of course, China won the corporate Royal Rumble on Raw two weeks ago, which means she will enter the Rumble at the prime position of number 30. So from there, we go back into the arena where Shane McMahon is walking to the ring, accompanied by that rarely used corporation theme song. So Shane then introduces us to the woman he refers to as the next WWF Women's Champion, Luna Vachon. And strangely, when Shane says WWF, they actually bleep the letter F, which is weird because I could have sworn that several people have said WWF already on this broadcast without it being censored, but whatever. Gotta love how that old lawsuit with the World Wildlife Fund is still fucking up old broadcasts to this day. Speaking of which, I have picked up on something reviewing WrestleManias as I have, hmm. and, and when they decide to censor out the F. To get the F out. Yes. 
apparently, it depends on the person's cadence. Oh. So, so depending on who the wrestler is, like, you can never understand a goddamn word Randy Savage says anyway. <laughs> so when he's like, oh, I want to take the WF title, like, they're not going to censor it. But if somebody actually says, I'm here for the WWF championship, they'll, right. they'll, they'll get rid of that F because it's too, it's too distinct at that point. Like if it was Razor Ramon, someone who talks really slow, like the W W beep, that sort of thing. <laughs> exactly. Where so I guess Shane was Shane just pronounced it too much tonight. Now, Fair enough. Also, I wonder, is there some poor bastard that had to go back and watch every single fucking thing on the network before yeah. 2002, and had to pick out every single fucking time that they needed to censor that? Yeah, well, thankfully, I think now they've settled it, so you can actually go back. I mean, the fact that we can watch the WWE Network without WWF being censored on most of these shows. Ah, do you remember? Thing, but... Do you remember for a while, like when they had oh. used to have uh, WWF 24-7 on demand, the turnbuckles would be censored on all oh, the old so events? I, I think specifically in the Attitude Era, like the Scratch logo was the one where they had the big problem with it for some reason, because you could go back, like any Attitude Era show you watched, for some reason they, they had to... Just completely edit out any any instance of the scratch logo, even if it was like on a fan sign. It was so bizarre. But thank thank God those days are over now because it's just it's I, I I just don't understand it. I I mean I get that it was two companies using the same initials, but I still have no idea why they had to retroactively go back and be like, no WWF here, we can't say it, we can't say it. It's really strange. Yeah. I can definitely uh, well, see, like, if they if the if the lawsuit was like you can't say WWF going forward, I'd be like, okay, sure, that makes sense. But it's like retroactively, you can't. You basically have to like pretend this never happened. That's so. okay. I mean, you want to talk about something screwy? Um, do you know what WWE stands for? I thought it was World Wrestling Entertainment. Uh, nope, hasn't been that since I think shortly after they went public in 2010. Really? Yep. What does According- it stand for? Uh, nothing. Oh. According to Stephanie, a uh, long, long time ago in like a Forbes magazine interview, the name of the company is WWE Incorporated. That's it. No world, no wrestling. N- Jeez. Those words are not associated with her, with her uh, corporation. So it's almost like an XFL situation where it also doesn't stand for anything. Right. I mean, uh, I just think it's Vince's way of... of just because he hates that word wrestling. So I know. even have it like, no, no, my company is just three letters, WWE. Yeah, how much is he kicking himself now for, you know, all those years ago calling it WrestleMania, the biggest show of the year, right? <laughs> he would rather call it, if he could go back, he probably would call it Sports Entertainment Mania. <laughs> yes. doesn't quite have the same ring to it, pointing to the Sports Entertainment Mania sign every year. Personally, I like to think WWE stands for Walk with Elias, <laughs> but that's just me. I, I don't know what that means. I, yep. I <laughs> so Shane McMahon comes out, and he informs us that, unfortunately, Sable has suffered a back injury due to Luna jumping her on heat earlier tonight, so he asks for Sable to come to the ring so she can forfeit her WWF women's title. And sure enough, Sable then does indeed emerge from backstage, literally holding her lower back the entire time she's walking to the ring, because she's a master of subtlety. (laughs) However, she then grabs the microphone from Shane and says, Ring the bell, so it appears that our, our women's title strap match is indeed back on as scheduled. 
Fun fact for you, Sal, this is the first strap match in the WWF since In Your House Mind Games in September of 96 when Savio Vega defeated Justin Bradshaw. Now, that match itself wasn't memorable, but what is memorable yeah, memorable about it, I should say, is that this was the match where the Sandman and Tommy Dreamer were seated ringside and Sandman spit his beer at Savio. And obviously that whole thing was a work, and I'm still exactly not sure how it benefited Vince since he was giving ECW free publicity on pay-per-view, but that's a whole other story. Do you, do you happen to remember that one when the ECW guys showed up in Philadelphia for that pay-per-view? I do. Um, definitely not the same as this match, though. Come on now, Henry. That was a Caribbean strap match. <laughs> That's true. You make a good point. That was... Completely different. I think also Stone Cold and Savio had a Caribbean strap match feud for a while, too, right? They did, and Austin lost, and because he lost, Million Dollar Man was, was kind of like a loser leaves town situation. That's right. And they were like, oh, you know, what are you going to do? You just lost your manager. And he's like, well, maybe I wanted to. <laughs> yeah. You didn't need that, that piece of trash. But yeah, and then from there, yeah, that was shortly after that. It was him, I think he won King of the Ring only a couple of weeks later, maybe like a month or so after that. So. It, it was, yeah, because um, I think that the the strap match was at the In Your House between WrestleMania and King of the Ring. Yeah, I think it was at the one they had to refilm because the lights went out. Yes. Beware of dog. Oh, God. And as as I said when William Rankin joined the show one time, that is, I think, the only WWF pay-per-view to this day which took place in William's home state of South Carolina. So, again, shout-out to the New Blood Rising podcast and William Rankin and uh, and South Carolina. But anyways, Oh, they're, they're from South Carolina. They are, yes, indeed. I would have thought Atlanta. Well, I think they sometimes attend pay-per-views in Atlanta, actually. Right, right. It's not, I guess it's not too far. I know they were... Yeah, they went to one of whatever that Survivor Series in Atlanta was. I remember listening to that podcast, but yeah, so take them back to East Atlanta, as that old song goes. <laughs> that, that old song, that song from like a year ago. That that old song from yeah. from six months ago. How dare you? Exactly. <laughs> old news. Old news at this point. So, Sal, in case you need a reminder of the rules of a strap match, Caribbean or otherwise, in order to win, you simply have to touch all four turnbuckles in succession. And right off the bat, I have to point out that Luna Vachon probably picked the worst possible outfit for a strap match, since she's pretty much wearing a thong during this contest. I mean, that's just setting yourself up for a literal ass-whipping, isn't it? Bad idea. Uh, I agree, but uh, I was kind of surprised at how Luna looked during this match. I don't hey, know hey. Call hey, hey, now. <laughs> Careful what you say, she was married to Gangrel at this point, so... Oh, jeez. <laughs> Gonna get some, neck some, uh, some teeth marks in your neck, I should say. Now, Sable, meanwhile, is wearing a leather top and tights that cover her entire lower half, so pretty much the only areas where she's susceptible to a whipping are her arms and her head. Translation, I was just announced as the April Playboy cover girl, so you're damn sure not putting any welts on my body. Exactly. So this match went about five minutes, which is certainly longer than I expected it to go, and we got a rather familiar strap match finish. So Luna wrapped the strap around Sable's neck and dragged her around the ring, touching the turnbuckles in the process. However, what Luna didn't realize was that Sable was also touching the turnbuckles behind her back. And like I said, this is a familiar sort of booking for a strap match, but in their defense, it certainly wasn't played out yet in 1999 because we hardly ever got a strap match in the WWF at this point. But yes, both women touched three turnbuckles, but before Luna could touch the fourth one, Sable started mounting a comeback. Shane McMahon then jumped up on the ring apron to distract referee Jimmy Corderas, but his strategy backfired because Luna had managed to come close to touching the buckle. 
However, before she could do so, the Sable superfan jumped up on the ring apron and punched Luna in the face. Referee Jimmy Corderas then turned around just in time to see Sable touch the fourth turnbuckle, so that means that your winner and still WWF Women's Champion is Sable. So, Sal, what did you think of this epic encounter? Now, you say the Sable superfan, so that means she has appeared on Raw in the crowd in previous weeks. She has, and she's done a couple runs into the ring to to kind of like interfere. Well, one one was hugging Sable and another was tackling Luna. So she has been getting involved, jumping the barrier, and apparently security just can't stop her throughout the entire country. Yeah, because I vaguely remembered her appearing prior to this uh, night. I didn't really remember it because it's just, uh, you know, they don't, it's not like she has like mic time. And, they, and I don't even think they've given her a name at this point. They just say that stalker. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, lady in the tight jeans and red sweater, I guess. Yeah, which is funny because she kind of looks like somebody's aunt, like, jumping up on the ring apron with, like, the, the sweater tucked into her mom jeans. Exactly, exactly. It's like, who is that? Is that somebody's mother? Like... Yeah, is that Sable's mother? So then she runs away through the crowd, and this guy who kind of looks like Mark Mero runs after her. Yeah, uh, like one of the, the security guys. Yeah, the, that's like the omnipresent attitude era security guy with like the uh, the the paddy cap, right? Yes, yes. But then, like, she gets away, and I'm like, dude, how slow are you? Like, she's like jogging, and you can't catch her. <laughs> it also sends a great message to the crowd, doesn't it? Where it's like, hey, fans, come and interfere in the match. Also, we, if we you can't take stop a him. look at that at that woman, the stalker in the red, right? And you compare her to Luna Vachon. Do you really think <laughs> that one punch from that lady is going to lay out Luna? Because that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, seriously. But yeah, it, as for the match itself, I think nothing special. It, it actually, I expected worse, so I'll give it a little bit of credit there for Sable not looking completely horrendous as she did earlier in the beatdown segment. But obviously, this was you know n- nothing special in my in my humble opinion. Nothing nothing too special at all. Well, Sable's getting the Ronda Rousey treatment where they, uh, and I don't mean to compare her ability to Ronda, but what I'm saying is that at the beginning part of her career, it's, it, everything's going to be very safe and very scripted, and they're going to time out all the moves so she doesn't look horrible. Mm-hmm. However, Sable, because of her level of talent, still manages to look horrible, but I will give you that tonight wasn't terrible. Yeah. So I'm sure she'll end up looking terrible again pretty soon in the future for some of her matches. But, Wait but this till was... you get to WrestleMania. You're right. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point, actually. But now, Sal, it's time for our WWF Championship match. But first, we get a montage of the Mankind Rock feud from the past few weeks, which then takes us live to Doc Hendricks, who's standing by backstage with The Rock. And this promo pretty much just consisted of Rock rattling off all of his catchphrases. So in order, we got... Know your role and shut your mouth. Rudy Pooh Candy Ass. Know your role Boulevard and Jabroni Drive. The Great One. The most electrifying man in sports entertainment today. If you smell what The Rock is cooking. And of course, he finished with the corporate eyebrow. And interestingly, we also got what I believe is the debut of him saying the millions and millions of The Rock's fans. And I say that because he has used that millions and millions phrase before, but this was the first time he put that pause in there which obviously becomes crucial in the coming months. So yes, that was seven catchphrases in a single one-minute promo, and the crazy thing is that this is only 1999, and he's going to have plenty more in the coming years as well. 
Speaking of 1999... Oh, please. Why the fuck is Doc Hendricks still around? <laughs> I oh, mean... D- I, well, I was I saw him when I'm when I'm doing my salvation on on WrestleMania nine in ninety three, and and wow. his his character of Doc Hendricks is still here. Was he wearing a toga during WrestleMania nine? Uh, okay, maybe it might have been ten, but still, okay. still, yeah, that yeah, is I, five six years too long. He's still as terrible as ever. Black oh. Hendricks here with the Rock backstage, and it and and the way they spell it, it's like D O K K. Yeah, what? <laughs> no clue. I Why hate can't... the Freebirds. I'm gonna bury that Michael Hayes. I know you. You can't just be Michael P S Hayes. Apparently, well, although I suppose in in a couple months he will, he will be, be Michael P S Hayes, <laughs> and he'll be with a certain tag team, looking like a complete fucking moron. But that's a that's a whole other story. But then, where was anybody to go? Hey, isn't that Doc Hendricks? <laughs> yeah. What do you mean, Michael P.S. Hayes? That's fucking Doc Hendricks. Uh, I thought Rock was good here. Uh, Rock Oh yeah. being the ever so, I don't want to say violent heel, but definitely intense heel right now. Yeah. Oh, well, we'll get to the violence part, that's for sure. But you can tell, like, what, what I thought Rock did good here was that you could tell that he's like, I can't believe I lost my fucking WWF title. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like he's got that like that stupid piece of trash Mick Foley jabroni is gonna it's gonna rule the day. Yeah. Well, that and that day is coming very soon. Yeah, 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 it is. Because uh, that, yeah, this actually segues us into our next match, and it is the I Quit match for the WWF Championship. Champion Mankind versus Challenger The Rock. And as a reminder, another stipulation for this match is that the corporation is barred from ringside, so not only must The Rock make Mankind quit, which no one has ever done according to the WWF narrative, Rock also has to go it alone without any backup. So it certainly seems like the deck is stacked against the Great One tonight, so I guess we'll see how that turns out. Before we continue, is there not video footage somewhere of Cactus Jack, Cactus Jack tapping out to the Scorpion Deathlock? I mean, like, I'm sure there's gotta be, right? Well, WCW doesn't count, obviously. Oh, okay, got it, got it. Yeah. Not not until they buy them, then then it counts, then it counts. Also, uh, slight side note, uh, Rock, and I'm not sure if he did this at Rock Bottom, I honestly don't remember, he is wearing uh, his black shirt. <laughs> yes, I was going to point that out. One of the few times in WWF history that a man wrestling for the world title is wearing a shirt during the match. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Uh... Uh, that's actually the next note I was going to make, that The Rock is a corporate sellout, and yet he's wearing a friggin' tracksuit to the ring. So, And, of course, he's he's covering himself up because of the breast reduction surgery he had. Right. But really, he couldn't possibly look any less corporate if he tried. Yeah, it's, it's very lame. I mean, it's Rock, so he still pulls it off, but it's like, dude, you got a black shirt on and black Adidas pants. Yeah. How are you, like, you know... The the corporate sellout who shops at Dick's Sporting Goods. <laughs> I get, what a great look for your corporate, well, not champion, but your corporate, uh, the whatever you want to call him. The, but the, when the, he's the, not the wrestling, he's wearing the five hundred dollars shoes, the the you right. know five thousand dollars shirts, the big Rolex watch. He's got that look when he's not wrestling. Yeah. You couldn't have thrown some fucking color on him at this point. <laughs> oh yeah, really, really bizarre. Also, he's got before he even starts the match. He's got a huge sweat stain on his back. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> like, could have been water. He could have poured water over his head. The corporate jobber. But go ahead. 
Well, I mean, it is a tracksuit, so maybe he ran a few miles before he came out from backstage. Banging and clanging. There you have right. <laughs> so, now as a reminder, Mankind already fought Mabel earlier tonight on Sunday Night Heat, but Jerry the King Lawler helpfully points out that, quote, Mankind's had so many concussions, he probably don't even remember that he got splashed by 500 pounds of Mabel. And Michael Cole then furthers that point by saying that Foley suffered a concussion on Raw last week in his match with the Big Boss Man, and yet he's cleared to wrestle tonight anyway. Well, as long as he doesn't take a bunch of blows to the head in the match, I'm sure he'll be fine. I'm exactly. sure he'll be fine. He'll, yeah. he'll be fine. So with that in mind, Sal, are you ready to dive into what may be one of the most brutal matches ever to take place in a WWE ring? Definitely one of the most memorable, and yes, I am. Splendid. So early on, The Rock jumps Mankind, but Foley gets the better of him, sets him up in the corner, and hits that running knee to the face. From there, Foley immediately requests the microphone from referee Earl Hebner, but there's no sound. He requests it again, but still no sound. I just love the notion of them starting this match where someone has to clearly say the words, I quit, into a microphone, and they forgot to turn the fucking mic on. That's WCW-level brilliance right there. It is, but I will say that Foley hitting Rock with that knee, he hit him at such velocity. <laughs> I kind of thought, like, hmm, Rock might remember that. Yeah, right. <laughs> Got a receipt coming pretty soon. So eventually they do get the mic working shortly thereafter, and Mankind asks Rock if he has something to say, to which Rock responds with a few amusing insults, such as, The Rock is going to kick your fat ass. <laughs> and of course... Of course, that doesn't sit well with Foley, so he smacks Rock numerous times with the microphone. And from there, Mankind hits the cactus clothesline, taking both men over the top rope, and when they start brawling outside the ring, if you look closely, you can see Mick Foley's wife, Colette, and his two children, Dewey and Noel, seated right at ringside. Now, Ooh. Sal, as I'm sure, I'm sure you're probably aware, on this very night, a filmmaker named Barry Blaustein has his camera crew at the Royal Rumble because he's been profiling Mick Foley and his family for a documentary called Beyond the Mat, that. which will end up being released in theaters about a year from now, and I'm going to play a clip from that movie later on in this episode. But, Sal, I have to ask you, have you seen Beyond the Mat, and if so, what were your thoughts? I saw it in parts. And it was it was probably a few years later. I never saw it when it was initially released. Mm. Um, and it was a brilliant, brilliantly done documentary, um, kind of showing behind the scenes of what wrestlers go through and what their lives are like. Um, I thought it focused on a lot of different people, you know, a lot of different types of wrestlers and different points in their career. But obviously, um, the footage he would capture on this night to tell his story about McFoley was uh, extremely disturbing. In, yeah, <laughs> disturbing was was a word. I was thinking like interesting, not interesting in the sense like wow that's interesting, but like holy shit, like I can't turn away. Yeah, type of deal. Like um, it's like a fascinating. Movie. It was like fascinating. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I actually saw it because I was such a fucking wrestling mark at this point in time. I saw that movie in theaters twice. Because it actually did come to the local theater near us, back where I was from, back in old Pennsylvania. So, yes, I, I saw Beyond the Mat twice. And, I mean, in retrospect, for us wrestling fans, even 18 years later, there's still a lot of memorable moments in there. Not just the Foley footage, but also, you know, the shit with Jake Roberts where he's smoking crack. 
the of course the draws he's gonna puke that's hugely memorable and uh, I think the Dennis Stamp thing has been turned into a meme over the years too yeah it's so there's become a, its own cult thing yeah so there's a lot of good stuff in there it, it actually is if you get a chance I'm pretty sure the whole thing is available on YouTube so definitely if you want to see it for free go seek it out Beyond the Mat good good documentary now the now it's funny you brought up the Jake Roberts thing because if you want to use the adjective of disturbing. Oh. And and just depressing, and it's like, oh my god, this fucking guy, it, it it's like, it's like when you see those like homeless guys who have the signs that say like homeless vet, and you're like, how how did you go from like serving in like the United States Army to like, you're like begging for change outside of like you know the Boston Garden, like yeah, seriously, that that's kind of how I felt with the Jake Roberts thing, because it was like really hard to watch, like Jesus Christ, this guy was just just on top of the business just a few years ago and it's just are, are you saying it's tough to watch when jake roberts says the only reason he was born was because his father raped a woman are you saying that's hard to watch for that, some reason yeah that that started it and then yeah. you know asking the promoter if he was going to get paid in crack that was another thing that was in oh, that documentary jesus you got R- some crack ringing, for me real ringing endorsements to go seek out beyond the mat clearly but it makes it a little easier now because, in retrospect, I mean, Jake is now, so far, as far as we know, knock on wood, doing fine these days. But yes. anyhow, so but getting back to the uh, the I Quit match, so Rock reverses an Irish whip and sends Mankind knees first into the steel steps. And yes, as a reminder, Mick Foley does not wear knee pads. And after that, Rock once again takes Michael Cole's headset and starts talking trash. But Mankind recovers and starts punching him in the face on the announce table. And from there. Foley grabs a steel chair, or if you're Michael Cole, steel stairs, and he <laughs> nails Rock in the back with it. And let's just say that Mick may end up regretting introducing a chair into this match. And back in the ring, Rock hits, or I should say Mankind hits Rock with a double arm DDT, and then he quickly follows that up with Mr. Socko. And sure enough, Foley has Socko on Rock long enough to seemingly cause him to pass out. So Hebner asks Rock if he quits, but he's unconscious, so Foley instead grabs the mic and says he's going to, quote, split open that ridiculous eyebrow. <laughs> For, just a side note, I always found it hilarious how uh, Mankind's character despised the Rock's elbow. I mean, eyebrow. Yes. He was always like, that stupid, despicable, silly eyebrow. He, he despised the elbow, too, because if you go back to the fall, he was just completely burying the, the people's elbow. Yes, he I think was. It was. I think it was at Breakdown where he actually does a promo where he's like, if you think I'm going to sell that abomination, you're even stupider than I look, or something to that extent. So. Uh, also, I appreciate the running gag that that's going hot at this point of every time Rock grabs the headset from the announcers, yeah. um, the guy turns the tables on Rock. Yeah. If you he, notice, that's happened every himself. time. I know he he just can't help himself doing the uh, the headset bit, and yet he always pays for it. Exactly. Although I will say, actually, the one exception is last week on Raw when he faced Kane, because he like Kane went over to grab him, but Rock kicked him in the balls, which gave him the funny moment where he said that kicking Kane in the balls felt like kicking a pillow. So, <laughs> classic headset line there for the Rock. So both Rock and Foley then proceed to brawl through the crowd for a bit, and with Rock standing next to the guardrail, Foley then got a running start, but Rock turned the tide by hip-tossing him back over the rail. And after that, we get another amusing spot, where the Rock grabs the timekeeper's bell and hammer, puts it next to Mankind's head, and dings it, which I thought was a pretty funny moment. Would you say he got his bell rung? 
I would indeed say he got his bell rung. In fact, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and play that clip for you right here. Rock now with a bell and the hammer. Uh oh. All I can say is that I hope Rock rang that bell on the side of Mick's head where he's already missing an ear, because that would probably lessen the damage a little bit. Mm. But anyway, from there, Rock puts Mankind on the Spanish announce table and picks him up in an attempt to hit him with a rock bottom. But before he can do that, the table collapses underneath them. And after that happens, we can clearly see Foley holding the back of his head as though he may have landed on his skull. Not sure if that was the case or if that was just him selling, but either way, it was definitely an ugly-looking botch. And Sal, I'm pretty sure this is a clip they used to show in one of those old please-don't-try-this-at-home PSAs that they used to do. Do you remember that? I do, and I believe you're correct. I believe this was the clip. God, you know, we're at the Royal Rumble. This isn't a fucking house show in Poughkeepsie. <laughs> Get your goddamn Spanish announce tables right. Right? Ridiculous. Although I do think it's funny that very shortly after that, Rock picks up a water bottle and takes a sip of water and spits it into Mick Foley's face. Right. Because obviously that clearly hurts. Right. When you when you when you spit water in someone's face or hit them with a plastic water bottle, I mean that's you can't come back from that. Right. Compared to you know falling on the back of your skull on concrete from a bocce table. Right. Well, on that note, actually, so both men pretty much make the decision not to sell the botch at all, which is probably the right call, because it was clearly not even close to being a successful rock bottom. So they start brawling up the aisle, where Rock ends up hitting Foley with a DDT out of nowhere, right onto the concrete. Out of nowhere! Yes. DDT on the concrete, out of nowhere. And by the way, this ends up getting a huge Rocky chant from the crowd, so apparently the Anaheim crowd is enjoying the great one at this point of the match. Maybe not so much later, but at this point they're liking him. So Rock then asks for the mic, but of course, Mankind refuses to quit. So Rock disappears for a moment, but when he comes back, he's holding a ladder. Mankind gets the better of him by kicking the ladder onto Rock, knocking him down to the ground. However, Foley then positions the ladder on top of Rock and goes for a running elbow drop, but Rock moves out of the way, so Mankind just crashes down right on top of the ladder. And in terms of sick bumps Foley would take in this match, that one easily has to be in the top 20. Yeah, because and, and, and I noticed that when Rock moved, it just felt like like Foley took that fall ribs first. Oh, yeah. Like completely, like when you look at how his body landed on the rungs of that ladder, there was just no way to protect himself. <laughs> Yeah, the funny thing too is that even if he did successfully hit that move onto the rock, he still would have been just throwing his body onto the ladder regardless. True. So it's really really a no win situation for Foley. So Rock then gets the bright idea to position the ladder next to the stage, where he climbs about twelve feet up toward the balcony seats. So mankind follows him and starts getting the better of Rock, but Rock kills his momentum by hitting him with a low blow. And from there, Rock nails Foley with a punch which causes him to fall off the balcony and onto the nearby electrical equipment. And Sal, I guess you could call that one giant leap for mankind, huh? Uh, (laughs) Uh, Maybe not, maybe maybe not. not. But then, of course, to make this even more entertaining, sparks start shooting out from the circuit board, and the lights in the arena go out entirely. 
Now, I'd say this looked pretty awesome, but one negative part of this is that Michael Cole seems determined to imitate JR on this call at this point. Mm. But instead of giving us instead of giving us a good God Almighty, he just randomly blurts out, Christ Almighty. <laughs> so way to go. Way to go, Cole. So such a random call just goes, Christ Almighty. I enjoy that because it's something I would say in real life. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Rock Oh yeah, sorry, God. These guys fighting on top of that structure before Foley falls um, in the crowd. Just like, Jesus Christ, I can't even imagine. Like, this was ECW-esque of levels of uh, extreme. Like, nobody at that point, like, teetered on the edge of a balcony, you know, with the crowd right there. At any point, they could just throw a beer at your head and you fall off. Like, you know yeah, what I mean? yeah. Yeah, at, 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 in terms of ECW, I mean, yeah, they were doing those balcony falls quite a bit. I, I'd like to think this one was a little safer. I hope it, that, it was. Know, that it was because it was like a little bit of like a, a a ledge where they could stand. But right, I guarantee you, they don't try this spot at a show like in Philly. Like you know what I mean? Like no, you don't do yeah. that shit in Philly because you will get like stuff thrown at you. Yeah, they're they're in Anaheim tonight. It's Disney territory. No problem. <laughs> Um, I, I enjoyed the sparks flying after Foley hit, like a good right. solid, like five seconds after he hit. Right. Um, so, yeah. are, are you saying those, those, uh, speakers were somehow gimmicked? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, and I also appreciated Shane coming out, but I, I don't want to steal your thunder. So please. Oh yeah, no, that's perfect. That actually segues right into what I was going to talk about. So yeah, Rock then climbs down from the balcony and makes his way over toward Foley. And at that point, like you said, we get a little bit of the Russo-esque blurring of the lines as Shane McMahon comes out from backstage and tells Rock that they need to stop the match. But Rock, however, refuses to accept that. So yes, the match must continue. And shortly thereafter, the electricity is fully back up and running, which is good since it would be pretty anticlimactic to say I quit into a microphone that doesn't work. <laughs> so Rock manages to roll Mankind back into the ring, and from there, things proceed to take a turn. Why? Because the Rock rolls out of the ring, goes over toward the timekeeper's table, and grabs a pair of handcuffs. He then rolls back into the ring, and yes, he cuffs Mankind's hands behind his back. Also, it should be noted at this point that Foley is clearly bleeding from his head, presumably from that fall onto the electrical uh, electrical equipment, easy for me to say. Now, I assume that was hard way because there'd be no point in doing a blade job when you bump onto a circuit board, but who knows. So Rock starts slamming Mankind's head into the turnbuckles, but Foley manages to escape by hitting Rock with a low blow. However, that momentum is only temporary because Rock then gets a running start and nails Mick with a clothesline since he obviously can't protect himself with his hands cuffed behind his back. Rock then rolls out of the ring again, grabs a chair, and positions it on Mankind's face. And from there, yes, he hits Foley with a corporate elbow onto the chair right into his face. Ouch. So Rock asks Mick if he quits, to which Foley responds by saying that he can go to hell, but Rock then ominously says that Foley will be going there first. And from there, yes, Rock grabs the steel chair and, well, I'm just going to play the end portion of the match for you here, and feel free to count all of the unprotected chair shots Mick Foley takes while you're listening to this clip. Oh no, not this. Come on, stop this damn thing. Don't! No! Oh! That's enough. 
Did you hear this sickening thought? Everybody said, and I think The Rock will do it. You better say it. And mankind out of his feet. And another one. What the hell is McFoley doing? He's coming for more. Sickening thought of steel against skull. So what you heard there was Rock laying out Mankind with chair shots, followed by Foley rolling out of the ring, where Rock continued hitting him with the chair as Mick was walking up the aisle. And by my count, Rock nailed him with not one, not two, but ten unprotected chair shots to the skull while Foley's arms were handcuffed behind his back. And these were not weak Lance Storm chair shots, by the way. The Rock was fucking laying in with those swings, including the last one where Mick completely had his back turned to Rock and presumably didn't even know it was coming. And for the record, even though I did slag Michael Cole a little while ago, he and Jerry Lawler do a great job on commentary when Rock starts swinging the chair, mainly because they had to have been legitimately concerned for Mick Foley's well-being. Even the heel Jerry Lawler says that's enough on numerous occasions while this is going on. And another thing to listen to is the fan reaction. So for the first few chair shots, you can hear them loudly going, oh, but when The Rock keeps hitting Foley, the reaction becomes a lot more muted, like, um, can you please stop? He may be dead. 
And as I mentioned earlier, Foley's head was already bleeding from that bump off the balcony, so when Rock starts hitting him with the chair, he really opens up a wound on Mick's head. If you watch Beyond the Mat, they show him getting medical help backstage after this match, and it looks like there's a small vagina on top of his skull. It is not pretty. So after Rock lays out Mick with all those chair shots, with Foley face down in the aisle, Rock sticks the microphone into his face, and as you heard in that clip, Mankind clearly screamed, I quit, into the mic multiple times. So that means that your winner and the new WWF champion is The Rock. And after posing with the title for a little bit at ringside, Rock then starts walking back up the aisle, where doctors are now tending to the bloody Mick Foley, and Rock pushes them away so he can stand over Mick and hold the belt in the air. Because clearly, almost murdering the man wasn't enough. And after Rock walks away, EMTs then bring out a stretcher for Mick, but, just like at King of the Ring 98, he refuses to go out on one, and instead he walks backstage with the help of one of the doctors. And that was how we wrapped this match up. So Sal, what did you think of the Mankind-Rock-I Quit match? I had to watch this twice. Ooh, ouch. Um, because, let, let's go back. Let's go back to January 24th, 1999, when I first watched this. Mm-hmm. And I remember it being, like, actually worse than what ended up happening. Because, like, I, mm. for some reason I had it in my mind that he hit him 20 times. But it kind of felt like 20, so I guess that makes sense. Yeah, seriously. Um, but I remember, okay, so 1999, I was, like I said, I loved ECW, I was a teenager, so the violence, to me, not knowing the backstory and not knowing the real lives of these guys was great, I loved the blood, I'm not, I'm not ashamed to admit it, I did, but even back then, in my, you know, teenage years, I remember being like, Jesus Christ, this, that's like enough, like, what are you doing, like, (laughs) Now rewatching it as an adult, and as I mentioned, I watched it twice. Couple things I wanted to point out. First and foremost, let us not undersell Mick Foley's offense before Rock grabbed the chair. Mm-hmm. While Foley is handcuffed, he manages to mule kick Rock in the nuts, <laughs> True. bite him on the forehead, and then knee him in the nutsack yes. while All Rock while is on the ground. All while handcuffed, which I thought was great. Now you go back. And you listen to Foley in certain interviews after this match. And then even today or more recent interviews, he's kind of softened his stance a little bit. But as the story goes, there were supposed to be five chair shots. Correct. I actually have an audio clip I'm going to play where he says that too. So, yep, totally. But You're right, pro- it was five. But for whatever reason, there was 11 or 10 or 11, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And and you're correct. These weren't Landstorm chair shots. So, okay, we at this point in the timeline, we've seen Ken Shamrock get hit, you know, flush across the face with a chair. That's one. Also but after, by The Rock. <laughs> yes, also by Mr. Fucking Dangerous over there, The Rock. And that's one, and that that's fine. But then, you know, like you said, you can even feel it in the crowd. After the fifth and sixth one, people are like, all right, Jesus fucking Christ, dude. Yeah. Like... What the fuck? And then, even in 1999, when uh, Foley was face down on the ground in the alleyway and Rock stuck the microphone underneath his hair, uh, you could kind of tell, and I think that was the point, that um, the audio of Foley saying, I quit! I quit! I quit! Hmm, that seemed awfully familiar. 
Yeah. Almost like we had heard it just a couple hours before. Oh, strange. But, uh, you know, that storyline aside, um, obviously it makes sense for The Rock to get the title back at this point. Um, but obviously, uh, for whatever reason, this match took the wrong turn and, uh, people got too, uh, like, uh, they, they turned their fucking work into a shoot, basically. Yeah, a little, got a little carried away. Exactly. And, yeah. you know, l- years later when I watched Beyond the Mat and I saw, uh, the reaction of, of Dewey and Noel, it was, it was heartbreaking, man, because it's like... You can kind of downplay what you do in the ring so much to your little kids, but when they literally see you get hit in the face that many times, yeah, uh, it's it's, it's going to be traumatizing. Yeah, it's funny because you think of like mankind. Mick Foley knew what he was going to be doing going into this match. They obviously had to agree on that handcuff spot. So why would you want your family to be, you know, ringside for that? You know what I mean? I, I know Mick tells the story that, you know, they were in Anaheim and, you know, he, him obviously being a big kid at heart, he took his family to Disney the weekend before. But even still, don't bring him to that match. You know, if you know that your family's about to watch you, and obviously, as you said, the agreed upon number was five chair shots, even seeing your father get hit with five chair shots to the skull where he can't protect himself and he's a bloody mess – that's probably pretty traumatic, I would imagine, even if it was only five, and obviously it'd end up being ten. But, I mean, if I was Mick Foley, I, I, I feel like I'd have to, you know, maybe revisit that decision, uh, even if, you know, it meant getting to hang out in Anaheim for the weekend. I, I feel like the the family's memory from that weekend is not going to be Disney, but rather their father almost being murdered in front of them. There but, are a number of uh, of wrestlers from that era who have gone on record to say that when they were going to be involved in a, in a you know, a, even like a culmination of an angle, not even something like this, but even something where like it's going to get physical, that they leave the wife and the kids at home. Right. Because they don't want, and I'm not blaming Mick, trust me, I, I'm not blaming Mick, but like you don't want your family exposed to that type of intensity, even just from a fan's point of view. Because, right. you know, depending on if you're playing heel or face, you know, the fans can get pretty rabid at this point too. Yeah, Absolutely. So it, it sucks because um, I'm pretty sure, you know, Foley, world champion, he wants to have his, his wife and his kids there. But in retrospect, oh, man, I, I never would have done that. Yeah, it's also another thing, too. Like, when his kids are at a young age like that, because there are certain aspects of wrestling where you could be like, oh, it's okay, daddy didn't really get hurt, you know, that sort of thing. But, like, it's another thing when, you know quote-unquote, it turns real, you know what I mean? Because he's obviously really getting hit with those fucking chair shots. He has his arms behind his back. He's not putting his hands up to protect himself. So it's as, you know, in a wrestling ring, it's as real as it can get there because he's taking 10 goddamn chair shots to the skull right in front of his family. So it's a lot harder to make the case like, oh, no, daddy daddy wasn't getting hurt. It's like, nah, even I think kids can tell that he was, you know, he was quite clearly being being hurt legitimately there. But um, I will say, though, I mean, in terms of the match itself, um, you know, up to up to even the point where the handcuffs come out, it was still a really entertaining match even up to that point, uh, let alone the final end segment, which obviously does a, goes a long way toward getting Rock over not just as, you know, um, Mr. Corporate, you know, goofy guy with the catchphrases to now being like a sadistic bastard. Um, so, I, I mean, I did – the match is hard to watch, particularly that last couple minutes with the chair shots – but I did think this is, you know, really good match. Easily, in my opinion, match of the night on this card because everything else pretty much sucked. But 
I I will you know I'll, I'll go on record as saying that that it's a it's a really good match. It's a great match. Um, it just you know your mileage will vary as to how much enjoyment you get out of it when the when the handcuffed chair shots start coming into play. So no, don't don't get me wrong. This was a great match. This was definitely match of the night. You established Rock as that main eventer, although I don't know that he ever was established as uh, the sadistic heel, kind of like Triple H would become. Right? No, he never was. Uh, for, for this night, he was. Right. But it was not really his character going forward to be that sort of like you know crazed maniac. And the only thing I can say about establishing Rock at this point is is you set up the perfect storm for him being you know that white hot heat going into a match at WrestleMania against Stone Cold Steve Austin, it, it works perfectly. Potentially. I mean, Potentially. Well, Stone Cold still has to win the Royal Rumble, so I guess we'll, you know, we'll see what happens. Um, but, but you, you know, so, so I definitely get the psychology behind uh, making Rock this super heel. But yeah, like you said, the match to the point of the very end was great. And um, I actually enjoyed... Uh, the little Russo, you know, spot of Shane coming out and being like, you know, this got to stop because even at that point, Rock kind of looks in the camera and he's like, it doesn't stop until his monkey ass says I quit. Right. <laughs> he would, so he wouldn't accept was like, it, yeah. He would not, even his boss, you know, basically the boss being like, all right, this is enough. He's like, nope, nope, we're not ending it. And you know what? I, I appreciated that as far as a storytelling device. Absolutely. And yeah, you know, as we said earlier, this this match definitely causes this pay per view to earn that TVMA rating because this, uh, in my opinion, this is one of the more brutal things you'll ever see in a WWF ring. Certainly, uh, I can't necessarily speak too much to ECW because I didn't watch ECW as as avidly, but I mean, I think this still stands out from a sheer brutality standpoint, especially in the WWF slash WWE. You don't really see too much more, thankfully, that's as as brutal as this. Certainly, nobody is getting you know, 10 chair shots to the skull anymore. But, uh, yeah, the only thing yeah. on par at, for, at this point in time would have been the, the King of the Ring match with Taker. Yeah. And that point. was brutal because of the fall and, you know, all the things that went wrong with Foley's face during that match. But, <laughs> but, but even in that match, nobody was taking 13 or whatever hit headshots. Right. You know, there was tax, there was a giant fall, and there was the tooth that went through the side of his lip, but it wasn't like scrambling your fucking brains over and over again. Yeah. Yeah, pretty brutal. Also, I will say, though, actually, on that note, about a year from now at Royal Rumble 2000, Mankind, or Mick Foley, I should say, uh, also provides us with a memorable moment that was probably going way, way, way too far, but that's a... That's a whole other story. We'll get there at that point. But yeah, again, you know, as always, a tip of the cap to Mick Foley, who just, you know, just put his body on the line so many times for us just to make a good match, just to get his opponent over. Uh, again, you know, we can, when you look at uh, King of the Ring 98, when you look at Rumble 99, when you look at Rumble 2000, all of that is with the purpose of making his opponent look like an absolute boss, you know, an absolute force to be reckoned with. And so many of these guys, if you talk about... Uh, the Rock, if you talk about Triple H about a year from now, and if you talk about even further than that, Randy Orton and whatever that was, 2004, that, that uh, hardcore match they had, or even Edge, Edge further down the line. Yep. Yeah, he just, he'll put his body on the line, always, almost always being the one to take the majority of the punishment just to make his you know fledgling guy, the, the next guy who's, you know, they're trying to boost up just to make them look like a badass. So as always, huge tip of the cap to Mick Foley for being willing even to take five 
which was obviously the agreed upon number, for agreeing to take five and then, you know, obviously taking 10. It, it just insane. So as always, Mick Foley, just amazing, huge, huge. I don't know if you could call him an unsung hero in the Attitude Era because he certainly gets a lot of a lot of uh, praise. But yeah, just amazing, amazing stuff. Well, I would call him unsung in the sense that he's a star maker. He's he's right. giving up his body, his health, you know, uh, not just for the fans, but to make that guy across the ring from him a star. And he's been doing it his entire fucking career. You can go back to Sting. You know, he, yeah. his whole purpose in that feud with Sting was to get Sting even more over. And that's what Foley's done. Is And then, you know, years later, he's doing it with Randy Orton and Edge. You know, he didn't have to do that at that point. He was already a legend. Right? Yeah, it's just, man. So so many guys he's been responsible for helping give a boost to. So, yeah, great, great stuff. But now, Sal, it is time for the 1999 Royal Rumble match. Now, as a reminder, Vince McMahon forced Stone Cold Steve Austin to enter at number one, and Vince then made himself number 30 in the Rumble, but Commissioner Shawn Michaels reversed that decision and changed Vince's number to number two, guaranteeing that both men would begin the Rumble together. However, Vince has an ace up his sleeve because he has offered a $100,000 bounty to any man who throws Austin over the top rope. And as for Stone Cold, he's riding quite the hot streak when it comes to the Royal Rumble match, as he has won the last two, eliminating Bret Hart to win in 97 and eliminating The Rock to win in 1998. However, if he doesn't go the distance tonight, as Vince McMahon has said, there will be, quote, no chance in hell that Austin will ever get another title shot. So with that in mind, let's get into it. And Sal, if you're like me, I assume you also enjoy the annual tradition of Howard Finkel giving a long-winded introduction where he explains the rules of the Rumble match at the beginning, right? Did you also enjoy that? I love when Fink used to do that. And nobody does it like him since. I've I've watched every single Royal Rumble, um, and I've never heard anybody quite give the introduction that Fink does. I'm sorry, JoJo. It just doesn't work. (laughs) Sorry, Lillian Garcia. Well, in fact, I'm actually going to play the Fink's announcement for you right here to get you in the proper frame of mind. So let's take a listen to Howard Finkel. Let's go up to Howard Finkel. Ladies and gentlemen, it is now time for the 1999 Royal Rumble match. Here are the rules. In just a moment, those individuals who are numbers one and two will enter the ring and the match will begin. Then, every minute and a half thereafter, another superstar enters the ring according to the number that they drew. Remember, in this contest, it is every man for himself. Elimination occurs when a superstar is thrown over the top rope and both feet must touch the floor. Okay, Howard. If an individual is thrown through the ropes and onto the floor, that does not constitute elimination. All right, Again, we over the top and onto the floor, both feet touching. What a the blowhard. The winner of this contest will be the last person that is in the ring after all participants have entered, and that winner of the match will then meet the World Wrestling Federation champion at WrestleMania 15. Anything else? We only got an hour left, you moron. 
Huh, I wonder why the Fink placed so much emphasis on that part about how it doesn't count as an elimination if someone is thrown through the ropes instead of over the top. He must, he must just be covering his bases. I bet that's it. Right. So from there, Stone Cold Steve Austin then does indeed enter at number one, followed by a shirtless Vince McMahon at number two, and let's just say that Vince's physique certainly doesn't seem all that natural for a 53-year-old man. A little too much Ico Pro, if you ask me. And once the bell rings, Stone Cold does indeed proceed to start whipping the chairman's ass for the next 90 seconds, including stomping a mud hole in him, hitting him with a low blow, and nailing him with a clothesline. Austin then teases throwing Vince over the top rope, but he puts on the brakes. It appears that instead of eliminating Vince right away, he wants more time to put a beating on his boss. He then knocks Vince down and starts hitting him with mounted punches, but at that point, we get the countdown, and the number three entrant emerges from backstage, and it is... Golga. Michael Cole helpfully informs us this is Golga's Rumble debut, but of course that's not technically true since he almost won the whole damn thing back in 1991. So with Austin punching Vince, Golga then sneaks up on Austin and nails him from behind, drawing tons of boos. Apparently, Golga wants that $100,000. So Vince then takes that opportunity to roll under the bottom rope, remember he didn't go over the top, and the chairman escapes through the crowd. Stone Cold then quickly eliminates Golga, and when he realizes that Vince has fled the scene, he runs off through the fans to go after him. Stone Cold quickly catches up to him and starts beating on Vince, fittingly right near the fan who's holding up the sign that says, McMahon's on juice, which, shockingly, Jerry Lawler actually acknowledges on the air. Memo to the king, maybe next time don't openly acknowledge steroids on the air when your business has been plagued by steroid scandals. Just a thought. Just a thought. (laughs) So we then follow Vince and Austin into the concession area, completely ignoring Draws, who enters at number four. I guess that shows you where he falls in the pecking order at this point. So Vince tries to escape Stone Cold by running away into the women's restroom, but that turns out to be a bad idea for more than just the obvious reason. Why? Because when Austin follows Vince, Ken Shamrock, Test, and the big boss man ambush him. Amusingly, the cameraman falls on his ass, so we don't get a very good view of what happens next. And that's probably for the best, because I'd imagine it must be illegal to film inside of a women's bathroom in public. However, later on, we do get a few cuts back to Stone Cold, who is lying face down on the bathroom floor. Gross. Eventually, they bring a stretcher in for him, and they take him away in an ambulance, so it appears that Austin may not be able to continue in this match. And that strikes me as pretty amusing, since we just saw Mick Foley almost get murdered earlier tonight, and he refused to be taken away on a stretcher, but apparently Stone Cold has no such qualms about being put on one and taking a little ride out of the building. What a puss. But so, so my question is this. If you're going to do this whole angle where Stone Cold gets incapacitated by the corporation, why would you do it in the women's bathroom? Isn't that kind of humiliating? I mean, you mean to tell me they couldn't have just beaten his ass backstage? Am I, am I off base on this? Is that just kind of like a weird place to do this beatdown? Yeah, I mean, the only thing I could think of was, like, Vince is running from him, so he's going to, like, look, thinking, like, if he runs into the women's room that, like, Austin will leave him alone because he won't go in there, or, like, maybe 
you know, Vince is such a pussy, he's hiding in the women's room. But, yeah, man, like, why the actual women's room at the Anaheim Pond? I didn't, <laughs> I didn't fucking get that. And then, like you said, he's laying there down, he's laying down in there, fa- you know, face down on the floor. And I'm like, I don't give a fuck how many times you scrub that floor. <laughs> there is no fucking way in hell. Yeah. And then not yes. only that, but why, that you got, like, the entire corporation is in there kicking right. the shit out of him. Like, they the have no qualms going in the women's room. Yeah, the corporation was just hanging out in the women's room the entire time while they planned this ruse. Somewhere there was an old lady in the crowd who was like, I have to use the bathroom. <laughs> and, like, they were like, no, ma'am, you can't go in that bathroom. And she's like, God damn it, I have to use the bathroom. <laughs> Excuse me, Mr. Bossman, can I cut ahead of you in line, please? <laughs> So we then cut back to the ring where poor Draws is standing there all by himself, waiting for the next man to enter for about 45 seconds. A wrestler with more charisma would probably hype up the crowd at this point, but because it's Draws and he's not exactly Mr. Personality, he just kind of stands there and puts his arms up in the air like, I don't know what's going on, guys, I don't know. What a fucking jobber. (laughs) I'm sorry, but like, seriously, the camera cuts back and I'm just like, do something. Yeah. Do something, asshole. Do something. <laughs> nope, just toss his arms up in the air completely helplessly. But mercifully, the fifth entrant finally arrives, and it's Edge, so I guess the rest of the Rumble match can now begin. Now, Sal, at this point, I'm not going to list every single thing that happens during this match because that would take too much time, but I will be sure to hit on some of the important stuff which occurs throughout the match. So, first of all, in an amusing moment, Gilberg enters at number six, and he immediately stands on the bottom rope to pose... So Edge dumps him out of the ring in just a few seconds. <laughs> Funny stuff. And Dan the Beast Severn entered at number eight, and contrary to what he said in that interview I played in the previous episode, he did not end up turning the Rumble into a shoot and injuring people left and right, and that's just a damn shame. What happens if I go into your little silly Royal Rumble <laughs> and I start tossing guys out? What are you going to do about make, that? Make you look pretty darn silly. You know what they would do? They would send Ken Shamrock out there to legit break his leg. Yeah, oh, we have a UFC rematch. And I Shamrock hope Sh- and, I, and I hope Shamrock, what, if, if Severn actually did start shooting in there, I hope Shamrock just goes in there and low blows him. <laughs> well, he's got to keep that heel persona going, clearly. <laughs> so for entrant number 11, we had an instance of that frequent Royal Rumble occurrence where we got the 10-second countdown, and then no one showed up. I However, they do that. I really fucking do. I, well, we actually got an explanation, though, because they then cut backstage where we saw Mosh getting beaten down by Mabel. And in yet another frequent Royal Rumble occurrence, as we all know, if you beat someone's ass before they can make it to the ring, you then take that person's spot. So Mabel has now replaced Mosh in the match. And let's just say that his name is Mabel, but he certainly isn't mobile because he can barely move. Nice. Thank you. <laughs> Now, at this point, I want to hearken back to something Jerry Lawler said on the previous episode of Raw. So Lawler said that the 1999 Royal Rumble would be, quote, the most star-studded Royal Rumble in history. What a bunch of crap! (laughs) Yeah, now now with that in mind, when Mabel enters the Rumble, here's the list of wrestlers who were in the ring at the time, okay? Mabel, Edge, Draws, Dan Severn, Steve Blackman, Tiger Ali Singh... And the Blue Meanie. So lots of stars in there, huh, Sal? Maybe they're just saving them all for later, I guess. So speaking of which, I'm watching this, and I'm like, wow. 
they really backloaded everybody in this rumbo. <laughs> yep. Like, usually they sprinkle, like, some big names in, in the beginning, maybe, like, at number 10, maybe at number, you know, 11, 13. But, other, okay, obviously Austin at number one and McMahon at number two. But right after that, it is Job Boy City. Yeah. You're, you're saying Tiger Ali Singh didn't do it for you? I'm I'm saying Tiger Ali Singh came out there and people probably didn't even know who the fuck he was. It's <laughs> a fair point. He hasn't been on Raw in a couple of weeks, actually. They're like, who's that guy? Is that is that one of the local talents? Yeah, who the hell was that? But uh, anyway, so Ed, yeah. Edge has a little... I mean, no, at this point, too, Edge is still too new. He doesn't even have any star power. No, he doesn't at all. Not at this point. Not brood Edge. I mean, he's got, like, you know, he, he's kind of cool. Like, I think people might react by seeing him. But like you said, man, draws, Tiger Alley Singh, Steve Blackman. Blue Meanie. Blue Meanie. It's just a little <laughs> Yeah. Well, mercifully at that point, Mabel quickly eliminates every wrestler except for Edge, and we then got our next entrant, and it was the Road Dog, who then promptly did indeed eliminate Edge himself, which left only Road Dog and Mabel in the ring together. And from there, well, things proceeded to get rather interesting. And now Mabel and Road Dog going at it. Man! So, wait a minute. So yes, as you heard there, the lights went out, and when they came back on, the Acolytes and Midian had attacked Mabel and thrown him over the top rope to eliminate him from the rumble. They then started walking up the ramp where The Undertaker and Paul Bearer were standing. We could hear Taker ask Mabel his new catchphrase, Will you accept the Lord of Darkness as your savior and allow the purity of evil to guide you? And when Mabel shook his head no... The Acolytes and Midian continued beating on him all the way backstage. Unfortunately for Farouk, though, at one point when he was punching Mabel, he slipped and fell right on his ass. I not, saw that. <laughs> yeah, not a good look for the Ministry of Darkness there. And as for why The Undertaker would want Mabel on his side, my personal theory is that Taker remembered when Mabel legitimately crushed his orbital bone back in 95, and he's thinking that having that fat bastard on his side is much better than being his enemy, so he's doing what he can to keep his eye socket in place. That's just that's my personal theory. And also at this point, I, Sal, I don't know if you noticed this, but Michael Cole was saying that The Undertaker had Mabel in some sort of trance while this was going on, which was clearly not the case because Mabel was obviously saying that he did not accept The Undertaker as his savior, and that's why the Acolytes and Midian continued to beat his ass. So, again, more stellar commentary from Michael Cole, as always. Be forewarned, Michael Cole has no idea how to call the Ministry of Darkness version of The Undertaker, <laughs> and he's going to say things over the next few months in your timeline where you're just going to be like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, yeah. seriously, Michael Cole, are you really that fucking dumb? Yeah. 
Um, also, because, by the way, as you mentioned, oh, he was not in a trance. Um, although I felt the only thing missing from this was a a comically large uh, net gun, where they just <laughs> where they shoot like a net gun over Mabel, and then like he's like trying to fight his way out of the net, but they just like drag him to the back. You know what's funny? On a random side note. Adam and I were at an episode of SmackDown, which was back in the days when they used to tape it in advance, obviously, where it was uh, Stone Cold was having his feud with the NWO, and infamously Stone Cold, you know, had a what he thought was a what what uh, the NWO thought was a gun, so he pointed it at Hall, and Kevin Nash literally yelled, "He's got a gun!" <laughs> and live at the time in the arena, again, this was pre-taped, but while we were there live in the arena, the gun didn't go off, so. <laughs> Austin was like standing there trying to fire the gun a couple times at Scott Hall. It didn't go off a couple times. It finally did. But like when you watched it on uh, on SmackDown, you know, when it actually aired a couple days later, it looked pretty seamless. They but edited they, the whole thing. Yeah, they edited the whole thing because like Austin definitely clicked that net gun a couple times and it did not fire when we oh were there live. God. So I, that probably had to be on a SmackDown sometime in like 2002 around um, – or what it, yeah, around 2002 when the NWO was first brought in. So so go do some digging and find that. It was in Boston, so there, there's a little a little frame of reference for you. But for real, you have 500 pounds of Mabel, and and you just get asked by the Undertaker, who you have history with, will you accept the Lord Darkness as your savior, blah, blah, blah. And he says no, and then he just, huh, no, but I'll continue to get punched in the back and just waddle my way backstage. <laughs> yep. And actually, on that note, so basically, on the Raw before the Royal Rumble here, The Undertaker does a promo where he says there's going to be a sacrifice at the Royal Rumble, and he specifically says something to the extent of, you know, your feeble minds won't allow you to believe who we're going to sacrifice. But, I mean, Taker didn't know Mabel was going to be in the arena, did he? I mean, or he didn't did know... he? I guess so. He's got, he's got the power of... Uh, of clairvoyance, I suppose, now that he's in the ministry. But now that you mention it, it does seem like Taker just made a decision on the fly. Like, I yeah. don't know who we're going to sacrifice. Hey, let's get that big fat bastard. That'll work. Yeah, Mabel's cleaning house in the Rumble. Let's take him. <laughs> and and although, really, I mean, he said there was going to be a sacrifice. They didn't sacrifice Viscera. I mean, they didn't sacrifice shit. They didn't sacrifice Damn Mabel it. at all. <laughs> Well, I'll have to go back and edit that out. <laughs> but literally, they didn't sacrifice Mabel at all like they did to Dennis Knight with the whole, you know, slitting of the wrist and all that shit. They just kind of beat his ass for a little bit. There was no sacrifice. It's false advertising. I know. I, I want my 30 bucks back, Exactly. <laughs> but anyway, continuing further on in the match, the 18th entrant was Kane, the Undertaker's brother. And this is the first Royal Rumble for Kane, although technically he had appeared in other Rumble matches previously when he was Isaac Yankum and Fake Diesel, but this is his first Rumble match as the Kane character. And for those of you scoring at home, your newly elected mayor of Knox County, Tennessee, holds the all-time record for Royal Rumble match appearances with a whopping 19, and he also holds the record for most career Royal Rumble eliminations with 44. And speaking of eliminations, Kane immediately tosses out all four men in the match when he enters, leaving him alone in the ring by himself, and he gets a huge pop in the process. However, presumably because Kane refused to lie down for The Rock on Raw last week, Vince McMahon then sends the men in white coats to the ring to take him back to the insane asylum. After choke slamming one of them, however, Kane does the throat slash gesture, 
and walks over the top rope, eliminating himself from the match. And when he does that, you can actually hear the crowd groan. They were really loving Kane when he tossed everyone out, and they didn't want to see him go, which was actually cool to hear. But damn shame, Kane is out. And alas, he chases the orderlies off through the crowd, so yet again, we have an empty ring. That's riveting oh, yep. TV for you, by the way. I know, right? <laughs> We get we get an empty ring or one person in the ring on three separate occasions, I believe, on this show. Boy, so, I'm so glad I paid 30 bucks for an empty ring. I know. The, the Royal Rumble match with, like, three massive pauses built in. But thankfully, the empty ring, I guess, doesn't last too long because Vince McMahon then reemerges from backstage, thankfully now wearing a shirt to cover his oily pecs. So Vince heads over to Cole and Waller grabs a headset, and proceeds to join them on commentary. And yes, he is still an active participant in the Rumble match, having never been thrown over the top rope. And a few minutes later, we got another cut backstage, where we saw the Acolytes and Midian still beating up Mabel, and they eventually threw him inside of a hearse as the Undertaker looked on. However, while that was occurring, an ambulance drove past them and into the arena. Yes, that's right. Stone Cold Steve Austin commandeered the vehicle, and he returned to the Rumble. Just like Vince McMahon, Austin also did not go over the top rope earlier, so he is still an active participant in the match. And speaking of Vince, when Austin returned to the arena, he did indeed go after Mr. McMahon, but because several corporation members were in the ring at the time, they were able to prevent Stone Cold from getting to the chairman. And at one point in the match, Austin was booted out under the bottom rope by Val Venus, and then... This part blew my mind, Sal. Austin re-entered the ring by climbing to the top rope and hitting Val with a double axe handle. Stone cold from the top turnbuckle. When the fuck was the last time you saw him do that? When he was teaming with Brian Pillman? Blast from the past there, my God. I was and just going to say, stunning Steve Austin. <laughs> yeah, when he, when he still had hair. And then a few minutes later, DX members X-Pac and Triple H teamed up to hit Jeff Jarrett with a standing clothesline. And then X-Pac hit Triple H with a spinning heel kick. And the strange thing was that X-Pac just kind of walked away from Hunter after he did it, as though it wasn't even a big deal. Usually spots like that where the guy hits his own friend get a lot of buildup. But no, the match just continued on as though nothing had happened. That was really bizarre, I thought. Maybe he thought it was Test. <laughs> Maybe. They, they do kind of look similar, yeah. Oops, wrong guy. Just walk away like it never happened. Uh, uh, real actually, quick, did you notice, sure. by the way, when Vince came on commentary, we got just a glimpse of old school Vince McMahon? Oh, nice. Like, he started, even if he did it unintentionally, like, he, he started calling some of the things in the ring like he used to back in, like, the early 90s. Except at no point did we hear him say, one, two, he got him! No, no, he didn't, no, he didn't. No, but he, but he definitely brought out the, what a maneuver! Oh, Jesus, I, I totally missed that. That is a classic, though. What a move. That's a classic Vince line. And then he started doing his way, like, over-the-top, like, Vince McMahon, like, announcer, when he was like, Oh, boss man! Oh, boss man! Oh, he got him! He threw him over the top! Yeah. Landed on his keister, as it were. <laughs> Fucking keister, another great Vince McMahon word. But, yes, so, uh, also on the note, speaking of Triple H, shortly after that spot with X-Pac Sal, did you hear Hunter deliver the loudest spot call in wrestling history? I did not. I must have missed that. Oh, my God. I'll play it for you here, because at one point, you can clearly hear him say to Val Venus, quote, If I throw you, can you hang on? 
<laughs> so I'll play that for you right here, because if you watch this on the network, it is loud, especially if you have headphones and you can hear it. So I'll, I'll play it for you right here. You can be the judge. Austin's now in the corner. So D'Lo Brown then enters at number 28, and he is still being accompanied by PMS, despite the fact that he accidentally caused Terry Runnels to have a miscarriage. Forgive and forget, I suppose. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and speaking of Terry Runnels, Jesus Christ, the top that she wears tonight is completely see-through. I mean, literally, you can see her breasts. She might as well not even be wearing a shirt. God bless her. <laughs> And finally, at number 30, it was no surprise who would be coming in last. It was, of course, China, who earned the right to become the final entrant by winning the corporate Royal Rumble on Raw two weeks ago. So by virtue of entering the Rumble here, China ends up making history as the first woman to ever participate in a Rumble match, so that's pretty cool. And right away, she goes directly for Mark Henry, hits him with a few forearms to the face, and then, yes, she tosses sexual chocolate right over the top rope. However... As soon as she does that, she makes the mistake of turning her back on the action going on in the ring, and when she turns back around, Stone Cold Steve Austin clotheslines her right over the top rope. And I've got to be honest, Sal, it kind of pissed me off, actually, because they gave China all this buildup by having her win the corporate Royal Rumble, then she defeats the Stooges on Raw last week in a handicap match, and it seems like they're building a lot of momentum for her, and then she gets eliminated from the match in 35 seconds. You couldn't at least let her go a few minutes? I mean, stupid booking in my opinion, but what do I know? I, what, what did you think, Sal? Did you think that was too little time for China? Henry, are you trying to say that Vince McMahon would allow a woman to compete in his Royal Rumble and then immediately eliminate her to make sure that he, he established men's dominance over women? Oh, no, of course not. No. <laughs> Typical Vince. Vince gonna Vince. That's what I know. Gonna do. It just—it's um, it just not the—it's not the first time. Uh, we're gonna see this in the Royal Rumble a few times, actually, where a woman gets in and it either ends up being a comedy spot or she's in there for a very, very short amount of time. True, but then thankfully, 19 years later, the women get their own Rumble and they'll pat themselves on the back for it, probably for the next I'm fucking years. I'm sick of these guys, these girls being in my Rumble. Give them their own goddamn Rumble. There you go. There you go. Oh, yeah. So, anyway, for those scoring at home, it eventually came down to four men in the ring. Stone Cold, Owen Hart, D'Lo Brown, and the Big Boss Man, plus Vince McMahon seated at ringside on commentary. And at one point, Owen actually got a little bit of offense in on Stone Cold, which I thought was interesting because, by his own admission in that Rolling Stone article which came out one month prior to this, Austin really does not like Owen since he didn't really apologize for almost breaking Stone Cold's neck at SummerSlam 97. But then, of course, in short order, Owen charged at Austin in one of the corners, and Stone Cold just backdropped him out of the ring. So that ended pretty quickly. D'Lo and Bossman then teamed up to work over Austin, with Bossman knocking Stone Cold to the canvas, then D'Lo hitting Austin with his top rope frog splash. And I assume that has to be the highlight of D'Lo's career right there. What a maneuver! <laughs> yes. But unfortunately for D'Lo, though, he stopped to show off for the crowd... So the boss man tossed D'Lo over the top rope, which left only Stone Cold and the boss man together in the ring. Yes, that's right. The big boss man has made it to the very end of the Rumble. Star-studded indeed. Clearly your winner right here. That's right. But then, almost immediately, Austin nails the boss man with a stunner, and I have to point out that it's only in the Royal Rumble where Stone Cold hits you with a stunner, and you immediately get right back up to your feet. That Unless... never happens. Oh, unless... You're Scott Hall. 
<laughs> oh god, that's that's true. That's true. Because Scott Hall would take the stunner and immediately get up and hit get hit with another stunner. Right, and then jump about six feet into the air when Ugh. he takes the second one. But yes, but typically you're right. That taking taking the stunner and then getting back to your feet almost never happens in any other match. But it happened multiple times throughout the years in the Royal Rumble match. Why? Because once you get back to your feet, Austin tosses you right over the top rope, which is exactly what he did to Boss Man here. And so that means we are down to two men in the Rumble, and it's the same two men who started the match, Stone Cold Steve Austin and Vince McMahon. And of course... Austin immediately walks over to the commentary table and starts pummeling Vince. From there, he throws the boss over the guardrail and into the crowd and starts beating on him there for a little bit as well. And when they come back over the rail, Stone Cold then grabs a chair from ringside and, because we haven't had enough disgusting chair shots to the skull tonight, Austin fucking levels Vince with the chair. I mean, that chair shot may actually have been harder than any of the ones that Rock gave to Mankind earlier. It was that brutal. Uh, yeah. Uh, but you know what? I kind of didn't feel bad for Vince like I felt bad for Vince. <laughs> well, he only had to take one, so it's okay. That's true. And of course, Vince is probably, you know, of the mentality like, well, if somebody else is going to do it, I, I've got to do it too. So yes, Austin tosses Vince back into the ring, and although Mr. McMahon briefly manages to gain control with a low blow, it ends up being short-lived because Vince goes for a clothesline, Austin ducks, he kicks the chairman in the stomach, and yes... He hits Vince McMahon with a stone-cold stunner. It would appear the only thing left to do at this point would be for Austin to throw Mr. McMahon over the top rope so he can earn the right to once again main event WrestleMania. But a familiar face then shows up on the scene and attempts to distract Stone Cold, so let's pick it up from there. So yes, as you heard there, your new WWF champion, The Rock, showed up on the scene to distract Stone Cold. He jumped up on the ring apron and started brawling with Austin, but while that was going on, Vince McMahon snuck up from behind and dumped Stone Cold out of the ring. That means that your winner and the new number one contender for the WWF championship is Vince McMahon. And as soon as the match ends, Rock and Austin resume brawling, with Rock then fleeing up the ramp and backstage as Stone Cold chased after him. Shane McMahon, Pat Patterson, and Gerald Briscoe then emerged from backstage and entered the ring to celebrate with Vince. All four men then had beers tossed to them, and they proceeded to chug them in a celebratory mocking of Stone Cold. And of course, 
Michael Colden had to get in another terrible line when he says that Vince winning the Rumble is, quote, the biggest shock in history. Not, not the biggest shock in wrestling history, but the biggest shock in the history of the universe, apparently. I feel the like history even, of anything ever. Clearly. <laughs> I think Michael Cole may have actually even won up Tony Schiavone with that one. And so we go off the air with the McMahons and the Stooges celebrating, and that was your 1999 Royal Rumble. So, Sal, what were your thoughts on the Rumble match itself? Not good. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. Um, so... Man, I just I didn't agree with the booking. I didn't agree with Austin taking half the rumble off. I'd rather have seen him in there for an hour and actually fighting the whole time. Even if he was like under the like ropes or like, you know, was on the floor like for you know, 5 minute periods getting beat up. That would have been fine, but him getting carried off in an ambulance just screamed of he's going to show up in an ambulance. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and then when we got down to the final, I'd say final few guys, I instantly was like, and I remember this back in 99, I was like, oh, they're going to have fucking Vince win. Because <laughs> you looked around, it was Bossman, it was D'Lo, it was Owen. None of those guys were winning. <laughs> and they kept, every two minutes, they'd be like, well, Vince McMahon's still part of the Rumble because he never went over the top rope. Well, Vince McMahon's still part of the Rumble because he never went over the top rope. And I'm like, okay, I get it. Vince is winning the Rumble. You didn't buy D'Lo Brown as a WrestleMania main eventer? No. And I and I kind of had a feeling with Vince hanging around that he was going to end up winning. I mean, there was like a sense of maybe, okay, Austin's just going to beat him up and throw him over. But that's kind of anticlimactic, so I didn't think they were going to do that. Yeah. Um, I will say that that chair shot that Austin hit Vince with was great. It just made that great mm -hmm. sound. Uh, clanged. Um, and then, you know, it was cool seeing Rock come out. And because he's a heel, I agree with not playing his music when he comes out. Right. It makes for a better, like, visual. And then when Vince just tossed him over the top, you could just tell all Anaheim was like, ugh. Yeah. <laughs> Which is great heel heat. I mean, the beer celebration afterwards with the Stooges and Shane was great. Um, I want to clarify one thing. Vince did not say... If I'm correct, that Austin would never would have no chance in hell at getting a title shot. He said he would have no chance in hell at winning the Rumble. Am I correct? Oh, okay. I, I thought it was no chance in hell at getting a title shot, but you could be right. You could be right. Well, because if it was no chance in hell at winning the Rumble, then Vince delivered on his guarantee. So <laughs> Right. And also, we should give a tip of the cap to Shane for training Vince so well in the weeks leading up to the Rumble, clearly, because his training just allowed his father to win the Rumble. Get the chicken. Get the chicken. Grease lightning. <laughs> yeah. Grease lightning. Oh, man. If you go back and listen to the outtake I played, there is one where the chicken is not moving and Shane is literally yelling at Vince. He's like, drop the elbow. Drop the elbow. <laughs> on, a, on a defenseless chicken. Just drop the elbow. On him. <laughs> Great stuff. But, yeah. So I'll give you a quick list of my problems with the rumble, if you don't mind. Oh, absolutely. So as we covered early on, this rumble was really jobber central. There were very few wrestlers who were legitimate contenders to win this thing. And like you said... When D'Lo Brown and the Big Boss Man are in the final four, that pretty much tells you all you need to know. And number two, they already did the gimmick where the number one and number two guys start the match and also finish it. Just four years prior, at the 95 Rumble, they did it with Shawn Michaels and the British Bulldog, who both started the match and finished it. And I feel like that should probably be something that only happens once in a lifetime, but instead they do it twice in a four-year span. So that kind of pissed me off. 
And also, as you also kind of touched on, it really annoys me that guys can just leave the ring for huge stretches of time, and it still counts toward their overall time spent in the Rumble. To this day, Vince and Austin are both in the top 10 for longest amount of time spent in a single Royal Rumble match. And uh, no, I'm not counting Daniel Bryan's 76 minutes in the greatest Royal Rumble in Saudi Arabia. It's not canon. doesn't count. But anyway, technically Vince lasted 56 minutes and 38 seconds in the Rumble, even though he was probably only in the ring for... Six minutes? Yeah, maybe, maybe even four. I don't know. But like, yeah, six at the most. So, but apparently it counts as 56 minutes. And perhaps what irks me the most is that the Royal Rumble is supposed to be a sacred match with real stakes to it. You know, you win it and you go on to WrestleMania. So essentially, because everyone thought Stone Cold was going to win going in, Vince Russo came up with the idea to swerve everyone, bro, and just have Mr. McMahon win instead. And I know he's the biggest on-screen villain in the company, but he's not a wrestler. So you, you just can't have him win that match. I'm sorry. But... With that being said, Sal, when I first watched this show back in 1999, I absolutely loved the fact that Vince won solely because I didn't want Austin to three-peat. And, and don't get me wrong, I fucking loved Stone Cold at the time, but I just kind of hated the predictability. So when Vince eliminated Austin, I actually fucking loved it because I just assumed that Austin was going to win. So, But now, uh, watching it back, you know, 19 years later, I, not not a fan. Not a fan. So the problem is... And, I, you know, where I'm at in my timeline, it, it, it's kind of very similar situation where whether it's Vince Russo or, or post-Vince Russo, the WWF gets into a bad place of, well, everybody already knows the finish, so let's change it just to change it. Right. And Vince Russo himself, he, he flat out says that on his podcast and interviews. He flat out says... You know, if it's going to be predictable, I'm going to just change it because everyone knows what's going to happen. But it's not always a bad thing for predictability, in my opinion. I mean, at WrestleMania 14, everybody under the sun knew that Stone Cold was going to win the fucking match. Did it make it any less awesome when he won the title? I would say not. You know, I mean, it's still it's still enjoyable, even if we know what the outcome is going to be, if you book it well. You know what I mean? Does, does that make sense? So... Not only does it make sense, it rings true even in today's wrestling because uh, I will tell you that myself and other members of the Rundown constantly, constantly predict uh, the NXT TakeOver cards. Like, top to bottom, there's usually only five, uh, five matches for each TakeOver. And normally we're getting four out of five regularly. And it's not a bad thing. Because even <laughs> though we can... Because you know what? First of all, it's concise storytelling. It's like, okay, we've built to this point, so now we're going from A to B, and this is where we're going to end up at C. And right. we enjoy how we get there more than the end result. Don't fucking change the result just to change the result because everybody already knows the result. You know when right. else they did that? They did that a few years ago at the Royal Rumble when everybody knew Jericho was winning that Rumble. Oh, that's right. Everybody fucking knew because he just came back, another return, he had a new, like, kind of... I'm, you know, the end of the world as you know it type of deal. And instead, Jericho's part of the last two, and they were like, fuck it, give it to Sheamus. Yeah. Why? Why did they do that? And tonight was a perfect example. Uh, well, fuck, we can't have Austin win again. Which, okay, you could have used that to build someone else. Even if that's. Even, right. Even if this person doesn't end up competing at Mania, if you put Test 
or Shamrock as the actual person who eliminates Austin. You know what I mean? That puts them on a pedestal. Yeah. And then, you know, do whatever you got to do next next month at No Way Out. But instead you let 50-something-year-old Vince McMahon win the Royal Rumble. This is as bad as when later on in his career he would win the WWF title. Like, it's just it's <laughs> not something that's believable when you're putting all this stock into your wrestlers and then all of a sudden this 55-year-old owner can just be like, nope, I'm going to win it. <laughs> right. It also is a bit, in retrospect, I think it's a little bit worse because from 1997 to 2001, all the Royal Rumble matches, without spoiling too much, the only person in that time frame from 97 to 2001, the only man who eliminates Austin from a Royal Rumble is Vince McMahon. <laughs> Over the span of 97, 98, 99, 2000, 2001, Vince is the only guy who manages to put Austin over the top rope. And it's, so that's... it's really hard for us, especially for as long as we've been watching, to be like, oh no, it's because of the story that he did that. And it's because his character was such a good heel. Because you know, like, in the back of your mind, no matter how much you try to put it out of your head, it's like, no, it's his ego that made him do that. <laughs> right. Well, Sal, so here are some quick stats on the match for you just to wrap up. Aside from Austin and Vince, do you know who lasted the longest amount of time in the Rumble? I would say probably... Was it Boss Man? You are correct. It was the Boss Man. 18 minutes and 53 seconds. Now, of course, Stone Cold scored the most eliminations with eight of them. But funny enough, the person with the second most eliminations was Mabel with five eliminations. Oh, shit, I thought it was Kane. Nope, he, he got rid of four people, I think, in his brief time. But okay, okay. Mabel tossed out five during his very brief tenure. So you, you got to make that big, immobile bitch look strong, clearly. And also, I'm pretty sure that Vince is the only guy to ever win a Royal Rumble match and eliminate just one person in the process. So usually those Rumble winners are booked pretty strong, but the only person Vince tossed out was, of course, Steve Austin. So there you have it. And so with all that being said, Sal, what were your overall thoughts on the 1999 Royal Rumble pay-per-view as a whole? Before I give those thoughts, just a quick side note because it just made me remember something. Um, Mm -hmm. John Cena entered in at number 30 one year in the Madison Square Garden. I think it was 2008. So he Mm -hmm. was the last person in, and I believe he still eliminated five people. (laughs) <laughs> you know what I'm I mean? Sure. There wasn't even that many people left, and he still managed to eliminate five or six people before winning it. So <laughs> Vince, like you said, eliminates one person. Congratulations, you fucking Jack LaLine ripoff. Um, <laughs> now, this pay-per-view, I actually thought was a good pay-per-view, um, especially given the storylines we've we've kind of had, and obviously DX is over. Um, they're going to continue to be probably one of the most over people in the company besides Austin. Uh, the Austin McMahon feud or rivalry is still white hot at this point. Um, oh, yeah. So as, as much as I despise having Vince r- win the Rumble, I do like the fact that in, at this point in 99, you can't wait to see uh, where they go from here. You just want Austin to get his hands on Vince so bad. Uh, and, totally. And Rock... Obviously, as we talked about, he's established himself as a top guy, as the guy. Um, Foley, once again, just giving a fucking legendary performance, whether it was by design or not, even if you exclude the handcuffed chair shots, he still put on a fucking hell of a show tonight for everybody in that arena. So I think this pay-per-view is particularly remembered for that match, and as you mentioned, for Vince 
uh, doing the swerve at the end and winning the rumble. But mm-hmm. obviously the undercard it was what it was. It was a rumble undercard. It wasn't that good, but it wasn't the worst thing in the world either. Yeah, I'll, I'll say on my end, I for me it's a thumbs down just because the only match I really enjoyed was Rock versus Mankind. Uh, Gangrel versus X Pac was okay, but I mean like that undercard was was pretty bad. You know, Luna and Sable, Road Dog and Boss Man, Billy Gunn and, and Shamrock. They, they was all pretty bad stuff. The Rumble match again, I'm not a huge fan of just because I don't like Vince winning. There, there were parts of the Rumble I guess that were enjoyable, but for the most part, I'm not not a huge fan overall. So for me. I must say, much much like Rock Bottom last month, which you also covered with me on this show, it was a it's a thumbs down for me on the, on the Rumble pay per view. But uh, I, I mean, if you have if you have a strong stomach, go ahead and seek out the I Quit match, I suppose. But uh, everything everything else you can pretty much avoid, in my opinion. So also, so you're entering a very uh, interesting part in your timeline where you're going to start noticing if you haven't already that the stuff that happens on TV is way better than the stuff on pay-per-view. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, if you go back to the Rock Bottom episode we did, you know, the, that was the night after. The, the Rock Bottom pay-per-view was bad, but the night after was that one where uh, we get the DX impersonation of the corporation and Rock doing the WCW mm-hmm. catchphrases mm-hmm. and test debut in the main event. That whole show was hot. That was a great show. And it was much better than the pay-per-view. So uh, I'm thinking maybe Raw will be even better than the Royal Rumble. What do you think? Maybe it will be. I guess we'll see. So before we officially wrap things up, here are just some more quick numbers on the Rumble for you. Royal Rumble 99 did a ridiculous 650,000 pay-per-view buys, which is way up from the 1998 Rumble's 351,000 buys. In fact, Sal, this is the second most purchased Rumble of all time, behind only the 2002 Rumble, which did 670,000 buys. And if you want to compare the 1999 Rumble's numbers to what WCW had going on this same month... Sold Out did roughly 330,000 buys, so the Rumble pretty much doubled their number. Another resounding success for the WWF. And lastly, here are some quick notes from that week's Wrestling Observer regarding the Rumble. So Christian beat Jeff Hardy in a dark match before Sunday Night Heat went on the air, and, hmm, I wonder if we're ever going to see those two guys in the same ring ever again. <laughs> I guess I guess we'll have to see. Clearly not. They obviously have no chemistry. No. And getting back to what I mentioned uh, earlier on in the show, according to Meltzer, too much have been de-pushed because the initial plan was for them to have a gay wedding at next month's pay-per-view, but neither Brian Christopher nor Scott Taylor wanted to go along with it. And frankly, I can't say I blame them because I can only imagine how tasteless Vince Russo would have gotten with a gay wedding angle back in 1999. I mean, remember, we do eventually get Billy and Chuck, but that's in 2002. That's well after Russo, so... And even that didn't go very well either, to be honest. So Meltzer also refers to the 1999 Rumble match as the worst of all time up to that point. <laughs> so I think on that we might actually have to agree because I'm, I'm I'm starting to think of like ones that were worse than that. Maybe actually maybe 95 with Sean and, and Bulldog that was pretty bad. But that one, but not like completely because I believe they lowered the the time in between entrance to like yeah. 60 seconds or something. It was so, 60. Yeah, so at you're least right. that went kind of fast. Whereas True. this one just was so filled with jobbers and stalling and things going on outside of the actual Rumble match. Right. Very Attitude Era. 
And then finally, Meltzer notes that roughly 90% of the people who called into the Observer hotline that week were fans who were actually pissed off at Mick Foley for agreeing to take all those unprotected chair shots to the head. Wow. So I know the com- I know because I know the common belief is that you know we were all kind of like a rabid, bloodthirsty fans back in 1999. But if you go back and read the Observer, it's pretty clear that the bloodthirsty lunatics were a minority, and there were plenty of fans who were actually very concerned about mankind or about Mick Foley's well-being. So I actually feel pretty good going back and reading that that they were like dude what are you doing you know in an age of ecw when things were, right. were so violent so bloody it's one thing when a guy can defend himself and you exactly. can go back in ecw and you can watch any of those matches and there are ways that the guys protected themselves and as you said the crowd was into it for the first couple chair shots and then after that it was really uncomfortable watching a guy who couldn't get his hands up yes but yeah, so but again, like I said, I, I feel good about the fact that even back then, wrestling fans were like, you know, we're we're worried about this guy. I mean, especially after coming off King of the Ring, they were probably like, is this guy just going to like kill himself at some point for our amusement? You know, we 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 don't want that. We don't want that. So so that 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 gave me a little bit of hope for humanity there. But yes, so that was the 1999 Royal Rumble. So with that in mind, Sal, are you ready to dive into Monday Night Raw? Absolutely then that's exactly what we'll do after a short break. Before we get there, though, I'm going to play a clip from when Mick Foley stopped by Stone Cold's podcast, and the topic of this very pay-per-view came up. So one quick note, during the interview, Austin and Mick both say that it was 11 chair shots. I personally counted only 10, but I think maybe they're counting that corporate elbow onto the chair into Foley's face, so I guess maybe that could be 11. You can make whatever argument you want. Either way, it was either 10 or 11. But anyway... Let's take a listen to that clip from that interview on Austin's podcast, and we'll come right back with Monday Night Raw, the night after the Royal Rumble. At what point does a work environment damn near turn into a shoot when you take the barometers off the violence at hand, you know, with all the bullshit that the foreign objects and the hardcore style matches? For me, that point was Royal Rumble 99. And... Luckily, you know, you know, and you're going to say WWF rather than yeah, ECW. Yeah, I think so. Um, that's the match that made me turn around. It also happened that it was you know documented on f- film by Barry Blaustein beyond the mat, and I I wasn't aware of how out of hand it had gotten until I saw my children react like I, I don't know if i would have thought it was that bad but it was this is the match with you and the rock yeah yeah and it was just violent you know it just got out of hand and it, it was what was your now because here's the deal you and the rock have a match yeah you get handcuffed and he's gonna hit you with about what five. eight or ten five five cheer shots five. it seemed like a hundred when you were backstage watching i was there and, man, I watched those first couple, and, I mean, he was laying them in because he had to. Yeah. And it was agreed upon. Yeah. I didn't realize how how beneficial your body's ability to give. Not not taking anything away from the brutality of a chair shot, but at least when your body, you can give a little bit. I didn't understand it. It's like the Cinderella song, Don't Know What You Got Until It's Gone. Once that ability was gone and my hands were cuffed behind my back, and that first chair shot came, and it hurt me down to my toes. Like I realized this was a whole new level of pain. And my reaction to that shot was to, like, fi- fire up. 
You know, it was, it was a strange thing. It was a suspension Good. of disbelief. Like, I became that character in the worst possible scenario. I became mankind, believing completely in the character with the rock and a steel chair and my kids in the front row. And by the time we got to the agreed-upon number, which was five, I'm still in the ring. You know, like, I'm supposed to be two-thirds of the way up the aisle. And it took 11 to get up there. And... uh so it was agreed upon five and ended up five. Being eleven. Yeah, it just because it kept going on forever. When you said five while ago, I said, "Dude, there's more than that." And the the mindset was at the time he was getting ready to work with you, right? Uh, for for Mania, right? Uh, Mania '99. Rock was really he was um, entertaining. He was funny, and I thought we needed to show a meaner side. Like that was my 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 job, and I wanted to make money while I did it. You know, I had right. no question about that. But I thought that's what I owed the company. That's why I owed the Rock was to reveal that 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 mean streak, and we did it. And we have returned. So, Sal, are you ready to get into Monday Night Raw? Absolutely. Fantastic. Then let's do it. It is Monday, January 25th, 1999, and we are live from America West Arena in Phoenix, Arizona, which is now called Talking Stick Resort Arena in the present day, and that's in the running for worst arena name I've ever heard. Some of the other... Yeah. Talking talking Stick? What? I, I, I don't understand. Some of the other noteworthy events which have taken place in this same venue include 16 episodes of Raw, 10 episodes of SmackDown, and 4 episodes of Nitro. Fun fact, Sal, one of those episodes of Nitro was the October 26, 1998 episode, which is noteworthy because it is the final episode of Nitro to ever defeat Raw in the ratings. Oh, that's poetic. And there are quite a few pay-per-views that actually occurred in this arena, too, including... Elimination Chamber 2017, where Bray Wyatt won the WWE Championship. Money in the Bank 2012, where John Cena and Dolph Ziggler each won ladder matches to earn Money in the Bank contracts. And the 2013 Royal Rumble, where The Rock ended CM Punk's 434-day WWE Championship reign. So do any of those bring back fond memories for you, Sal? I don't like to remember any of those events. (laughs) <laughs> save Bray Wyatt winning the title. So everything else that happened that uh, on pay-per-view at that arena can go straight to hell. Well, Bray Wyatt, I think he only held the belt for like a month, right, until WrestleMania? I, I don't like to remember that either. Fair enough. <laughs> fair. But, but at least now we know that this is the event, which is probably, or this was the venue, I should say, where Bray Wyatt basically had the highlight of his career so far. Mm. <laughs> I, guess, I guess that pretty much sums it up. Uh, he's side note. He uh, might be doing solo stuff again, as Matt Hardy is uh, too injury ridden to continue the gimmick. So, oh, what a shame! I uh, hope that Bray does get a chance to do some solo stuff and get back to uh, what he used to do best: being evil as opposed to deleting things. I'll put you this way: since I am the WrestleMania Sal guy, um, his first four opponents at WrestleMania: John Cena, The Undertaker. Then he had a segment with The Rock at 32, and then he fought mm-hmm. Randy Orton. This is a guy Not... who should be main eventing. Well, I mean, he was almost at the top of the main event for that segment with The Rock. I mean, he was pretty close. And wasn't it, uh, what's his name, Rowan ate the pinfall in like six seconds or something like that, right? Shortest match in Mania history. Oh, lovely. But anyway, so we open this episode of Raw with something I always love seeing in retrospect. 
Still photographs from the previous night's pay-per-view, courtesy of WWF Magazine. You want to see video? Buy that replay tomorrow night, you fucking cheapskate. <laughs> that used from to be there, a famous stable because they would do the replay on, on Tuesday. That's right. So they would not and show I think you actually, any video at all. Yeah, and I think actually, um, this wasn't covered on Nitromania, but the the Nitro after... Uh, what was it? Bash at the Beach 96, where Hogan turned heel. Hogan was not on the show, but the whole night they were talking about, oh my god, I can't believe what Hulk Hogan did. I'm pretty sure that whole night was just done with the express purpose of getting people to buy the replay on Tuesday nights. I feel like that was what that entire episode of Nitro was. Um, you know, Adam didn't cover that particular part on Nitro Mania of how it was just a cash grab for the replay, but I mean, it was, I think it was pretty blatant if you go back and watch it now. It's funny because they, they hyped up the still picture still to come by the end of the night like they were, you know, Elizabeth on a centerfold or something. Oh, yes. Oh, fond memories there, too. And that angle was just kind of dropped. Remember, I think Perfect and Flair were supposed to reveal that at WrestleMania 8. We never got it. Never got Literally it. Literally the interview before the match. They're like, we're going to come out there with the centerfold. And then no one ever spoke of it again. She'll be wearing nothing but a staple. <laughs> Not quite, because we never saw the pictures. Of course, there, there's literally no way Randy Savage would have allowed that to happen anyway, so it was I guess it was irrelevant, but wouldn't have happened in PG-era WWF anyway, that's, alas. That's true. So, yes, from there, we queue up the opening credits and the obligatory scanning of the crowd, but no pyro. What is this, 2018 or something? Aww. That's crazy. <laughs> so some of the noteworthy signs in the audience tonight include I live on Know Your Roll Boulevard, X-Pac equals Crack Rock, Deborah wants some Mexican in you. I like beer. Sexual peanut butter. I just had some ass 316. Kane is my girlfriend. Blow me. Climb aboard the ho train and get off at the Heartbreak Hotel. McMahon is on roids. Mom, I love you. I just thought that was a rare, nice sign and I had to mention it. And, amusingly, a woman wearing a pair of denim overalls is holding up a sign which says, Triple H, remember these? With a drawing of boobs on the sign, which are presumably supposed to be her own. So let it be known, Triple H digs a woman wearing Oshkosh Bagosh. But anyway, Sal, I must once again ask you, were there any signs you noticed that I missed on this night? Well, uh, I did notice a couple of the signs you had mentioned. I didn't jot them down. Um, and I'm very excited to share that I have found signs that you did not find on this night. Oh, my goodness. In the opening promo, you can blatantly see a guy holding a sign on the hard camera that says, Coke Monkey. Oh, okay. Uh, near that was White Trash with an arrow pointing down. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a sign that just said Testicle. I don't know why there was only one. I could assume, but I'm not going to go there. Well, that is that like uh, Stacy Keebler about uh, five years early <laughs> before she started doing that thing with Tess? Time Traveler's caught again. There you go. And the final sign I saw, which I thought was kind of harsh, said, Shamrock, two words, nose job. Wow. I didn't think Ooh. his nose was that bad, but okay. It is It is a bit crooked, I think, from getting punched in the face so many times. Well, there you go. A little, little Luke Wilson action going there. <laughs> or is it Owen Wilson? No, it's I, Owen Wilson. I always sorry. thought he was Canadian, <laughs> I thought this. So, yes. I thought this just how, that's just how their nose looked all the time. I mean, look at Owen. Yeah. Oh, the other Owen you're talking about. Yes. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, yes, we kick things off with almost the entire corporation standing in the ring, minus just one member. So Shane McMahon grabs a microphone and introduces us to your 1999 Royal Rumble winner, Vince McMahon, who then emerges from backstage. 
and as soon as he gets to the ring, he's triumphantly hoisted in the air by the big boss man and Tess, which I thought was a nice touch. Now, by the way, Sal, it was at this point that I realized that the corporation won every match it competed in last night. So Bossman beat Road Dog, Shamrock beat Billy Gunn, Rock beat Mankind, and Vince won the Rumble. So that's four for four right there, and certainly that's a that's a great way to send the fans home happy when the, the big heel stable wins everything. And despite Bossman and Shamrock's absolute disrespect for their respective titles, the corporation held all the gold in that ring that uh, to start Raw. Oh, yeah, that's an interesting point. Now, you would never know it because Shamrock and Bossman had their tag and IC titles on the floor, pretty much. But they were the tag champions, Shamrock himself an IC champion, and, of course, The Rock just won the WWF title back. That's true. As long as you're not counting hardcore, light heavyweight, or women's. Eh. <laughs> in fairness, they those are, you're talking about all the big, the major titles were in the corporation. But, yes, I, I you're, you're completely right about that. I mean, really... Hardcore light heavyweight and uh, and women's are kind of in a separate a separate little bracket. But anywho, getting back to Raw, Vince then takes the microphone from Shane and yells out, I'm going to WrestleMania. And then he goes even further by saying, quote, I came, I saw, I kicked Stone Cold's ass. And Vince then gives props to The Rock for making mankind scream, I quit last night. And because Rock was generous enough to come to ringside and watch Vince throw Austin over the top rope, the chairman is going to give that $100,000 bounty in cash to Rock tonight. Very generous indeed. But now, of course, that begs the question, what will happen in regard to the WrestleMania 15 main event since it is now scheduled to be The Rock versus Vince McMahon for the WWF Championship? Well, Vince came up with a solution. Early this morning, he signed papers officially waiving all rights and privileges to the number one contendership, but he does reserve the right to appoint a replacement for himself. However, once Vince reveals that information, some familiar foes show up on the Titantron, and they have something to say about his plans for WrestleMania. And this is a bit of a long segment, but screw it, I'm going to play it for you anyway, since it sets up some really important events and puts them into motion, so let's take a listen to what happens next. Hey, jackass, look on the big screen, I'm up hey, here. Hey, what? Oh, what look, at me, you look at me, you sorry son of a bitch. You're, you're up where? Where are you? I'm in Texas. Oh, okay, you're in Texas. I'm in Arizona. That makes sense to me because I'm sure that you've been humiliated. I'm sure you can't even come out of your house. I'm sure people are coming up to you and saying, hey, aren't you the guy? Aren't you the guy that Vince McMahon threw over the top rope? <laughs> yes. I doubt it. Yeah, I think that sounds all. That sounds fine, Vince, but uh, I'll tell you this. I'm going to WrestleMania. What? Well, I, I guess as a fan. Uh, you mean you mean you're gonna buy a ticket to go to WrestleMania? No, you dumb son of a bitch. I'm telling you, I'm going to WrestleMania to face the champion. What? Uh, no. What? Well, you must be chewing on some local weed or something down there in Texas. Yeah. I have no idea. I mean, what? What are you saying? I don't know what you're talking about, all this local weed, all the little crap you're talking about. I'm telling you right now in English, read my lips if you've got a hard time hearing what I'm saying. I'm going to WrestleMania to wrestle the champion 
I'm telling you that, but not just me telling you that. The guy right beside me is telling you the same damn thing. That's the commissioner! Commissioner Shawn Michaels is with Austin! Hey, man. And you gotta admit, I'm healing damn well, alright? I can't believe Stone it! Cold. Mikasa. Sukasa. <laughs> now I'm sure everybody's wondering what old Stone Cold is doing in my home. Now, Steve doesn't need protection, but in fact, that's what I'm going to give him anyway. I'm going to protect Steve from Vince McMahon and the corporation, but more importantly, what I'm doing is protecting Stone Cold Steve Austin from himself. Because, Vince, you know as well as I do, if Steve was in that building tonight, He'd open a can of whoop-ass on you, the likes of which you have never seen. No doubt about it. Now, Vince, it's my understanding that you filed papers giving up your right to go to WrestleMania against the WWF champion. I also understand that you plan on appointing a replacement to go to WrestleMania. Well, Vinny, my friend, that just ain't gonna happen as long as the Heartbreak Kid is the commissioner of the World Wrestling Federation. And he still is the commissioner. So what's he talking about? Well, Stone Cold and I have been reading over the WWF rulebook. What? Or, or no. <laughs> That's not the... The, the official one, it's here somewhere. And it says that if the winner of the Royal Rumble either is unable or unwilling to go to WrestleMania to fight the champion, then the runner-up gets what? all rights what? and privileges. What? Stone Cold is going to WrestleMania? Because Mr. McMahon... Well, I guess what I'm telling you is this. Last night, when you filed those papers, you checked yourself out of the main event at WrestleMania, and Stone Cold Steve Austin has been checked in. A rule technicality is sunk, Mr. McMahon! This is not right! What do you mean it's not right? It's the rule! This is an impeachable offense, Michaels! The bottom line is that's what the rule book states. Mr. McMahon, speechless. Think I don't know something. what to say. I wish you were speechless. Uh. Rock Austin at WrestleMania. Vince, I'll tell you what. I'm sure I scrambled your brains with that chair the other night. But I don't want you to get your panties all in a ruffle just yet. Because I got a proposition for you. What I'll do is this. I would love to have the World Wrestling Federation title back on my shoulder once again. And that's the bottom line. And that for damn sure is the truth. But I'll tell you this. I think I might want to beat the living hell out of you even more than I want that title. What? So to get your ass in the ring before that, 
on Valentine's Day, what I will do is I will put up my right for the WWF title at WrestleMania if you will face me in a match. Wait a minute. Uh, wow. Now, if I now, lose that match, well, then that means I lose the right to face the champ at WrestleMania. After the humiliation you suffered last night, you want some more of me? Damn straight. Shut up. Let me just tell you this. At any moment last night, I could have thrown your ass over the top ropes. It was stupid on my part. I made the big mistake, and then Rocky brought his square-headed ass, square ass out there, and it was a bunch of BS off from the start. I screwed up, and it ain't going to happen again. On your best day, Vince, on your best day, you can't lace one of my boots, and that's the damn truth. Well, you got me interested, okay? I'm interested. Go ahead. Well, what it seems to me is what you do best is run. So that's the kind of match that I want this to be. I don't want to be any kind of wrestling match because I could beat you any day of the week. So what I suggest we do is we wrestle in a cage match. Whoa! You and me in a cage. Wait a minute You now. ain't got to pin me. You ain't got to make me submit. All you got to do is run around that damn ring long enough, and if you beat me out over the top and on the ground, then that means you win. Uh, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's your specialty, yeah. Vince. You, you're a chicken. You run. That's what you do. Let me think about it for a minute. Wait a minute. King, there oh, is no all way. The time in the world, you son of a bitch. King, there's no way the corporate team can let Mr. McMahon get away with it. There's no way they can let him go into a cage. Is get over the damn cage. What do you say? You and me, WrestleMania title shot on the line. You will never ever see Stone Cold give me another beer. You will never ever see Stone Cold Steve Austin in another title match. That's what we got at stake on Valentine's Day. If you got that damn guts, or let me say this, if you've got the balls uh -oh. to do it, give me a damn answer. All right, Austin, you're on. You got your match. No. Mr. McMahon's crazy. Then let me tell you this. Let me tell you this, you dumb son of a bitch. I will guarantee. There's that famous word again. I will guarantee you. I will guarantee the world that I will beat your ass all over that damn cage. I will walk right over your limp, bloody carcass, and Stone Cold Steve Austin will walk right into WrestleMania to face The Rock. And if I can't beat that son of a bitch, I should never wrestle in the first place. And that's the bottom line, because Stone Cold sets it. So, as you heard there, Stone Cold Steve Austin interrupted Vince while he was live via satellite in San Antonio, Texas, side-by-side side with Commissioner Shawn Michaels. Now, why Austin flew from Anaheim to San Antonio instead of coming to Raw, I do not know, since he probably could have just made a phone call, but I bet quite a few fans were a bit disappointed with the realization they wouldn't get to see Stone Cold in person tonight. So both Austin and HBK are drinking beers, by the way, which I imagine is not a good thing in Sean's case, since he just had his back surgery a few weeks ago, and is probably still down in quite a few painkillers, but that's a whole other story. 
But yes, as HBK said, because Vince filed papers to give up his right to the number one contendership at WrestleMania, as stated in the WWF rulebook, that automatically makes the runner-up, Stone Cold, the new number one contender for the WWF title. However, Austin is willing to put that title shot on the line if Vince will face him in a steel cage match at the upcoming St. Valentine's Day Massacre pay-per-view. And surprisingly, Mr. McMahon actually agrees to that stipulation, so in three weeks, it will indeed be Austin versus McMahon in their first ever one-on-one match on pay-per-view. So Sal, what did you think of the opening segment? First of all, I love how they addressed the fact that the winner of the Royal Rumble gets a WWE title shot. Segment one. They weren't going to let that thing hang over them for a month. You know, will Vince challenge? Will he not? No, no. They got that right out of the way. And I thought it was smart because Vince kind of put himself over first. He was like, Rock, I know you woke up in a cold sweat at the thought of facing me at WrestleMania. Right, right. Which I thought was great. But then he's like, but I signed it away. You don't have to worry about it. I'll name someone later. Then we get Austin on the Titantron. And I was, you know... I saw it said that he was in Texas. For some reason, I didn't put two and two together that it didn't say Victoria, Texas. It said San Antonio. Right. I thought that was a great promo. I thought it was great the way they panned out and Michaels was sitting there with them. I will say that I popped huge when, when Austin said, you know, do you got the guts to face me in a cage? And then he's like, yeah, no, nah, nah, screw it. Do you got the balls? <laughs> That's very very stone cold of him to have to, to say balls. You got you got to throw the profanity in there. That was great, and um, I thought I thought he roped Vince in in a way that kind of made sense. I mean, you're gonna go into a cage with Steve Austin, you better have the balls. But he he, he did it smart because he was like, oh, all you have to do is escape. That's all you got to do is run away, and that's what you're good at. So I thought it made sense, and I love the fact that he took a shot at the Rock while Rock was standing there too. Called him like yeah, square headed, square head, yeah. <laughs> I, I did. I agree with you that it made sense from from this perspective. That you know, Vince obviously Stone Cold and, and Shawn Michaels just put one over on him to be like, well, guess what? You, you gave up the rights to it, so the runner up gets it. So Vince is kind of like in an impossible position where he either concedes to Austin, like, yeah, you can be the number one contender, or he has to agree to this match. So I think it is actually a pretty smart setup because you, I would see. I think from the the perspective of Vince McMahon, the character. It would make sense that he'd be like, ah, crap, I guess I got to do this. I can't just bend over and take it from Stone Cold. So, yeah, we're going to have a cage match. One thing I will say that this podcast has opened my eyes to, if you had asked me, you know, before you started this show, hey, uh, you watched uh, WWE during the Attitude Era, I would have said, of course. And if you said, how many Raws do you think Austin was on in 98, 99? I would have been like, well, probably almost all of them. Right, But that's the thing. He was not on a lot of them. And I don't know if that was necessarily due to injury. There's a lot of stories that have come out that Austin wasn't exactly the easiest person to work with. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think he got a good amount of time off. He was on that uh, Hulk Hogan schedule a little bit where he kind of showed up once a month. (laughs) Yeah, at this point, yeah. It it, it is interesting because, I mean, I I don't know – necessarily what the reasoning is for him being in San Antonio or quote-unquote San Antonio. I don't know where he actually was, but he was not in the arena tonight, the night after the Royal Rumble, which if you're a fan in the arena that night, you have to be thinking you're going to be seeing Stone Cold live, right? So I don't know exactly 
you know, what the logic there was. Maybe, again, like you said, they just wanted to give Austin a night off. But you could tell he actually, when they put up the Via Satellite, I assumed it was just going to be, you know, a pre-taped segment. But you can actually see when the, the crowd starts chanting Austin, Shawn Michaels, like, puts his hand up to his ear as though he's acknowledging it. So they really were live Via Satellite, not just, you know, quote-unquote Via Satellite like they did with The Rock a couple of years ago during his comeback against John Cena. They were actually there. So very, very interesting stuff. But, again, I... I would love to know the reason as to why Stone Cold flew from Anaheim to San Antonio instead of Anaheim to Phoenix tonight. But, you know, I feel like the fans are probably a bit bummed. But in the WWF's defense, they do have some good stuff on tap for tonight. So the the absence of Austin is not hugely felt. No, that's true. But just a month ago, like the entire month of December, didn't he pretty much miss like every Raw? (laughs) He did. Yeah, he was injured at the time for that one. Yeah. He was out from from basically the rock bottom pay per view when he won the buried alive match right. up to that moment when he comes that, back. Yeah, that moment with Foley. So with Foley, uh, yep. It, it's nice to be the WWE champ at this point. Or no, well, not the WWE champ. I'm sorry, the face of the company at this point. Yes, absolutely. And so, after a quick commercial break, we cut backstage where an armored car is pulling up to the building, which presumably contains that one hundred thousand dollar bounty, which will be presented to the Rock. And Sal, I have to say, at this point in time, it's a bit weird to see a vehicle enter an arena when it isn't being driven by Steve Austin. <laughs> at this, I mean, at this point, he's commandeered so many different types of vehicles. I'm just waiting for the day when he runs out of ideas and has to steal a horse and buggy. Mm-hmm. It's coming soon, folks. It's coming soon. Although it would have been funny if, if the uh, camera panned out and he was like the driver of the armored truck. Yeah, I know. Right? Rock, you it want your actually... hundred thousand? You're gonna have to get it through me, son. It would not have been out of character at all at that point, especially when you think that just the night before he commandeered a limousine monster truck completely out of nowhere. And, and the ambulance. The building, so. And the ambulance. And, oh, that's right. The ambulance, too. I, I totally forgot about that. He commandeered two vehicles last night. Jesus Christ. So, well, yeah, then he really should have taken that armored car as far as I'm concerned. But then we go back inside the arena for our first match of the evening. Goldust, who is still in possession of Al Snow's head versus Billy Gunn, who is accompanied to the ring by Triple H and China, but strangely, no Road Dog. And on that note, Sal, was it as much of a disappointment for you as it was for me when the Outlaws music hit, and it was Mr. Ass doing the Oh You Didn't Know intro? Oh, man. I, I thought I missed something. I thought my network, like, cut off or something. I was like, well, the fuck's Road Dog? <laughs> this is my yeah. first reaction. And then Michael Cole says, Triple H and China accompanying... Uh, Billy Gunn, and at first you don't even see Triple H. I was like, oh, it's literally just China. And then like eventually yeah. Triple H came into the shot, and I was like... That's true. Jesus. Yeah, you should have listened to it when Mr. Ass does the Oh You Didn't Know intro, because like, he sounds like the lamest person ever, because he literally takes the mic and he's like, Oh, you didn't know? But Henry, you're you're talking about the best pure athlete in the WWF. Oh, God. How many times did they reinforce that over the years? Uh, dude, God, they were so desperate for him to get over. Yeah, and honestly, of all the people, is Billy Gunn really that great of an athlete compared to some other people? I mean, he does a press slam, he, so he does a drop kick, he does a pile driver. I, I, I guess that's athletic, but I, I, I never understood that. Well, he's just like they. Jim Ross, of course, was the best. When it came to that, just calling, just constantly putting over Billy Gunn as like best best pure athlete in the WWF. It's like, did I miss something? First of all, just why does, does he run like a fast four, like you know, forty yard dash? Like, is <laughs> yeah. he doing chin ups in the? I don't. I've never seen this guy be quote unquote athletic, but you know, what do I know? So, 
I, Jim Ross puts him over as so athletic, you think he played college football or something. <laughs> Billy Gunn went to went to Texas State. Not not a fucking know. Actually, are you surprised that Jim Ross doesn't reach in his bag and go like, Jim, you know, Billy Gunn was a great linebacker at Marietta High School. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Well, I remember back when they did when they were doing the smoking guns gimmick. I'm pretty sure there were quite a few times when Jim Ross stated that they went to college on a rodeo scholarship, oh, which I assume I assume that has to be entirely fictional. So, but if it's not, kudos to uh, Mr. Ass for, for being a good bull rider. I feel like that has to be fictional though. But anyway, so before the Mr. Ass Gold Dust match can begin, Triple H grabs a microphone. So let's take a listen to what the leader of DX has to say. Now I know what you people want to hear, but you're not going to get it tonight because I got some business to take care of. Rocky, since last night, I've been listening to you in the back run your mouth about making people say I quit. Well, Rock, I doubt you made mankind say I quit. And I damn sure know you can't make me say it. What? So, Rock, here's a proposition. You and me, tonight, right here, in this ring, Wait a minute. I quit match. Wow. Wait a minute now. Triple H and The Rock tonight. Wait, Rock, wait, wait. I know how you think. And I'm a step ahead of you. Bring that belt, Rock. I know you know last time you and I got in the ring to dance and there was a belt on the line, I walked out of MSG five pounds heavier carrying your gold. That was at SummerSlam this past August. But Rock, I'm asking you once in your life, just one time, be a man, Rock. Put the belt on the line. You and me. I quit rules for the WWF title. No, wait. Rock, this is your chance. No guts, no glory. And if you're not done with that, I got two words for you. Suck it. So as you heard there, Triple H began his promo by expressing some skepticism as to whether or not The Rock actually made mankind say, I quit last night. Hmm. Not, sure what he's, not sure what he's talking about there. I mean, we clearly all heard mankind scream it, but maybe Hunter knows something we don't. But from there, Triple H then challenges The Rock to yet another I quit match tonight on Raw for the WWF Championship. Now, I do have to correct Hunter on one thing, though. In his promo, he said the last time he faced The Rock with a belt on the line, he beat him for the Intercontinental title at SummerSlam. However, Sal, you and I both know that isn't true because on the last episode of this podcast you and I did together, The Rock beat Triple H with the WWF title on the line on the December 14th episode of Raw. So I think Hunter needs to consult his history book a little bit there. But anyway, so there you have it. Will The Rock accept Triple H's challenge for an I Quit match tonight on Raw? I suppose we'll find out a bit later on. So after Triple H finishes his promo, the bell rings and the Billy Gunn Goldust match is finally on. And speaking of Goldust, by the way, tonight he is sporting some strange face paint, which makes it look like he has black tree branches all over his face for some reason. Not sure if that becomes a recurring thing, but it probably shouldn't. (laughs) 
Oh, and hey, Sal, remember how Billy Gunn's ankle was so fucked up last night that he limped to the ring for the Rumble match without a boot on his ankle because it was presumably in too much pain to put anything on top of it? Well, well, Henry, I didn't remember, but then Michael Cole and Jim, uh, Jerry Lawler brought it up while he was walking to the ring. Right, con- and not constantly. Yeah. He was not selling that injury anymore, but they were still bringing it up like, oh, is it Billy Gunn's ankle? It's like, um... He's he's doing just fine actually. Yeah, look, look, as, as look as like he was right doing now. all right. Yeah, it didn't seem like yeah. it was bothering him. Yeah. Oy. So about a minute into the match, even though Goldust is already in the ring, his music starts playing. Someone then emerged from backstage, and we saw that it was Blue Dust. Yes, that's right. The Blue Meanie was dressed up as a blue version of Goldust, complete with his own customized robe. Blue Dust then proceeded to grab Head, so Goldust walked over toward him. And Blue Dust smacked him in the face with head behind referee Mike Kyoto's back. From there, Billy Gunn hit Goldust with a pile driver, and that was enough to score the one, the two, and the three. Your winner, badass Billy Gunn. And after the match, Blue Dust did indeed walk backstage with head, and, well, let's just say you may want to remember that little tidbit for later on in the show. So, Sal, what did you think of our opening match? I I will say this. I think Goldust did try to kick Billy in the ankle at one point. So at least, Hmm. like, he was trying to sell it. I don't know. But Blue Dust, for those of you who may not have been ECW fans in the mid-'90s, this was kind of a rehash for the Blue Meanie. He used to do the Blue Dust character in ECW. Did he really? Oh, yes, he did. And you know what? It's nice to see that on Raw they decided to tone it down. (laughs) Because you have to understand... Uh, ECW was very good and very famous for doing parodies. And if they're doing parodies of Goldust in the mid-90s, they're not exactly doing it in a PG fashion. Oh, jeez. Well, I remember they did. It was him and Stevie Richards and... Who was the third one? Raven. Oh, Raven. Oh, Oh, no, no, no. Nova in the Blue World Order, yes. That's correct. Yeah, yeah, the Blue World Order, and they would do a couple other skits where they dressed as other people. But uh, I didn't realize that uh, he did Blue Dust in ECW. That's funny. He did. In fact, uh, it was during a skit, one of those uh, kind of backstage uh, Mercelu promos that Paul Heyman was so famous for. With oh, the, the Pulp Fiction theme yes, song? Yes, yes. Raven was trying to find a new girlfriend, and Stevie was trying to help him find a new girlfriend. And he brought him to a, a children's playground at night where a thong-wearing, and nothing else, Blue Dust was sitting on a swing. Oh, God. Into which Raven, of course, no expression, just was like, Stevie, you're a fucking idiot. And, like, walked away. (laughs) That's such a strange combination to have, like, three guys doing commentary along with Raven, who's, like, the most dead serious character they had going at the time. Very bizarre. Well, I mean, as for this match, as I said, I think it went, like, 90 seconds in, in that 90-second frame, we did get Goldust attempt Shattered Dreams, but the referee actually got in the way, so so he couldn't kick Billy Gunn in the dick, which I thought was kind of funny. I mean, realistically, shouldn't you just let Goldust do that and then disqualify him? I, I guess, I don't know. And then we also got, of course, Billy Gunn showing his ass in that in this brief portion of the match. But yeah, in, in terms of the match itself, obviously, it was nothing special. But uh, I was pleasantly su- surprised, I should say, by Blue Dust, because I honestly had no recollection of the Blue Meanie doing Blue Dust in the WWF, so uh, yay, I guess. Yeah, that's one. That, that's one way of putting it. Yeah. From there, we cut backstage where we see the arrival 
of mankind who is sporting a large white bandage on his head. Michael Cole tells us that Foley isn't scheduled to wrestle tonight, to which I say, Thank fucking Christ! Did you see the punishment he took last night? Good lord! Can't make that guy wrestle. But after commercial break, we go back inside the arena where the oddities are dancing in the ring, and if you're watching on the WWE Network, they're dancing around to their horribly dubbed theme music instead of their usual insane clown posse song. However, they only get to dance for a little bit before they end up being quickly interrupted by your new WWF champion, The Rock. I certainly was not expecting that. The Rock interrupting the oddities. Neither okay, was Michael then. Cole, who was like, well, obviously he's not going to fight the oddities. <laughs> yeah. Why not? I don't, I don't see why not. Four on one. So Rock enters the ring, grabs a mic, and tells the oddities to leave before he lays the smackdown on all four of them. And sure enough, Kurgan, Golga, Giant Silva, and George the Animal Steel all end up exiting and heading backstage like a bunch of bitches. The oddities not exactly being booked strong at this point in time. Speaking of Giant Silva, though, Sal, did you see him jump from the ring over the top rope and down to the floor? I thought that guy could barely move, but he's hurtling the top rope like a goddamn seven-foot lucha libre. Very surprising, uh, but he still sucks, though. We we have two legit seven-footers. We have two pretty much 400-pounders in there as well. And all four of them are just like, ooh, I don't want to get smacked down. I'm just going to leave. I know. Yeah, we, we can't possibly, all four of us can't possibly, you know, set, go one-on-one -on -one or go four-on-one -on against The Rock. He's just, he's too strong for us. So anyway, The Rock says that he will indeed accept Triple H's challenge tonight for an I Quit match for the WWF Championship, so our main event is officially on. However, no sooner does Rock make that announcement than we see Mankind on the Titan Tron. He walks up to the two security guys who are guarding the armored car, and he proceeds to beat the shit out of both of them, which is usually a good way to get yourself shot. But thankfully, that's not what happens here. I was going to say, I, I need to stop you right there. Because if it's that easy to rob an armed an armored car, <laughs> sign me up. Exactly. <laughs> I was going to say, though, I think even if they did shoot Foley, he'd probably just no-sell it anyway. <laughs> that's true. So then after beating them up, he opens the door of the truck... And he pulls out a green bag, which presumably contains The Rock's $100,000 bounty. Personally, I was hoping it would be a burlap sack with a dollar sign on it, like you see in the cartoons, but alas, not this time. I actually thought that's what we were going to get. <laughs> that or a briefcase for some reason. <laughs> well, Vince Russo is a television junkie, so it wouldn't surprise me. So from there, we follow Mankind as he walks around backstage, and he eventually grabs a microphone before heading into the arena. Foley then proceeds to start tossing some of The Rock's money to fans seated by the aisle, as though he was Andre the Giant at the original WrestleMania. Mankind then recounts the events from their match last night, and it appears that we may have an explanation as to why he said, I quit. And I'm going to go ahead and play his promo for you, and I know this is a bit of a long clip as well, but, eh, screw it, it's my show, and once again, it sets up some very important events. So let's take a listen to what Mick Foley has to say. After last night's match, well, I felt like I'd been hit in the head with a chair about 11 times, and I, I guess I had. I felt like my head had been split wide open, and well, I guess it had. 
Tell you the truth, Rock, I felt like I'd been damn near electrocuted, and I guess I had. But I also felt like something was very, very wrong. You see, I may have been unconscious, but I do not remember saying the words, I quit. What's he saying? You hold it right there. Which means either I've completely lost my mind. A long time or ago. I never said those words at all. So what we had, Rock, was a little bit of a mystery. So what I did is I woke up early, and with the help of the very talented production team, I I think I've solved the mystery. Let's start with Sunday Night Heat and a little verbal exchange with Shane McMahon. You are sadly mistaken, you pretentious little twit. You see, mankind does not whimper, but it will not be I. It will be the rock, and he will be screaming the magic words. I quit! I quit! I quit! Thank you very much for those kind words, Mick. Now, what, what did Shane mean? Thank you very much for those words, Mick. Then we go to the match, don't we, Rock? And no matter what you did, you couldn't get me to say the words. Let's take a look. Michael, I heard him say it. Say I quit now, you piece of monkey crap. <laughs> of course, Rock. You tell the great one, you quit. <laughs> no, no. Say you quit, you piece of trap. <laughs> <laughs> no! Now you tell The Rock, after the most electrifying move in sports entertainment today, you quit! <laughs> Go to hell, Rock! Say you quit! Help <laughs> kill me! And then, Rock, even though I was knocked unconscious, well, magically, the two big words appeared, didn't they, Rock? Let's take a look. I'm speaking pretty well for a guy who's unconscious. Mankind, your monkey ass says I quit. I quit. I quit. I quit. Now what the hell, Rock? You think these people are stupid? Don't those words sound identical to the words I said on heat? Absolutely. So the way I look at it is, you didn't make me say the words, you didn't win the match, and you sure as hell are not the champion. I knew it, King, I knew it! Nick Foley never said I quit! Wait a minute, this is... Boy. I heard him say it! Whoa! You take another step, and I've got a real loose hand. You see, Rock? I've got an idea. The way I see it, there's going to be an awful lot of bored people. Millions and millions of bored people during halftime of the big game. So what I'm saying, what I'm asking, what I'm demanding... It's you and me, Rock, in a rematch during halftime heat. Wow! The 
stays oh. away. But wait a minute. But it's just not any rematch, Rock, you see. Don't get me wrong, Phoenix. I dig all of you. But during halftime heatway, Rock, I don't want any people in that arena. You see, it's going to be you and me and 22,000 empty seats. And one of us is going to walk out the WWF champion. And the other one is going to get his ass beaten all over an empty arena. Don't do it, Rock. So, Rock, you make up your mind and make it up real quick. And, hey, I'll give you the money back, but you know what? I think it's going to be a couple dollars short because Mr. Sacco is going to go on a little spending spree. Uh, will Rock accept the challenge? Look at this guy. He's the race. He's the man the Rock. Nick Foley should still be champion, King. He should still be wearing the gold. What do you say, Rock? I'll tell you what. You make no mistake about it. One on one with the great one. Halftime, big game. You got your shot. Your cellulite ass piece of crap. Yeah. Halftime heat. And Rock, have a nice day. Has Rock let his ego get away from him again? Rock, mankind, in six days for the title at halftime heat. So now we have an explanation. Mankind did not actually say I quit at the Royal Rumble last night, but rather they played audio of his promo from Sunday Night Heat over the PA system. With that in mind, Foley then challenges The Rock to a rematch for the WWF Championship this Sunday at Halftime Heat, which will be broadcast during halftime of Super Bowl 33. And according to Foley, it would not just be any type of match, but rather it would be an empty arena match. And surprisingly, The Rock does indeed agree to the stipulation, so it is now official. Once again, it will be The Rock versus Mankind for the WWF Championship. So, Sal, what did you think of the Rock-Mankind showdown here on Raw? Well, first of all, great explanation by Foley, taking us back to exactly the moment he said that in Sunday Night Heat. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Shane's comments right after that. Thank you for those kind words. So it's really letting everybody know, like, hey, they set me up. Mm-hmm. Very clever. Very nicely done by Foley. Jesus, if I'm like, you know, a Steve Blackman or something, I'm totally coming out and challenging The Rock tonight for a title shot because apparently <laughs> he's just handing them out left and right. Absolutely. But no, I thought I, it was I a also great probably, I probably wouldn't want to face Steve Blackman in an I Quit match either, though, because I feel like it'd be point. tough to make him to make him quit. No, but fuck it. Challenge Rock to like a, you know... A submission match or something, or or a best karate move match, and then, they, but, yeah, there you go. But make it for the WWE title and tell me he has no balls, and then and then he'll accept, and you'll be WWE champion. And really, it's a good thing The Rock accepted that match because otherwise they'd have nothing to do at halftime heat. So now now we actually have a match to go to go on at halftime heat. And I do actually think it's pretty clever um, the way that I I mean, Mankind doesn't really provide an explanation as to why he wants it to be an empty arena match, but I assume the logic is probably because if they do a match with no fans, it won't get spoiled before they air it during halftime. Uh, and actually, as speaking of spoilers, as a quick spoiler, Halftime Heat does really big ratings, so it was obviously a very effective ploy there. So, yeah, 
good stuff all around. And yet again, so we had our initial Rock versus Mankind match at Survivor Series. We got another one at Rock Bottom. We got another one on that January 4th Raw where Foley won the title. We got another one at the Royal Rumble. And now we're getting our fifth match at Halftime Heat. And the funny thing is, none of this seems stale yet. Like, I'm still totally on board for this rivalry based on how well they've booked it over the past couple months. Like, none of this seems like, oh, God, you know, another Rock-Mankind match. It's all really great stuff, because now Mankind just lost the title, obviously, in screwjob fashion. So you want to see him get his hands on the Rock again, even though it is matchup number five over the past, you know, six, seven, eight weeks, however long it's been. So I I think it's actually a very—it's been a very well-booked feud so far between these two. And each step has been logical. Like, when you go from Rock Bottom to January 4th, to the Royal Rumble, to now it's going to be halftime heat. It actually all makes sense storyline wise. It's very concise, which is a rarity, even for this, even for 1999 WWF. Yeah. Um, I will say that I all there was a part of me for one second that thought that mankind was going to say, "Well, I know nobody's going to buy tickets to a WWE event on Super Bowl Sunday, so we're going to have an empty arena match." <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> but that I'm is like, true. I don't think he'll actually go there. But for a second, I thought he was going to go there. Yeah, the funny thing is, I'm pretty sure they actually do an episode of Sunday Night Heat that night as well. But they, I think they pre-tape it on like Tuesday, so it's it's you know well in advance. But yeah, there's a Sunday Night Heat episode, and then about like half an hour later when it ends, they do Halftime Heat when the Super Bowl's uh, halftime show starts. So, yeah, smart, very smart idea. And actually, speaking of the, the Mankind Rock rivalry cell, I actually forgot to do this in part one, but will you indulge me for a moment here as I read a very brief excerpt from Mick Foley's 2001 autobiography, Foley is Good, where he covered what happened after the I Quit match? Of course. Excellent. So Foley right now, he's writing about how he was being tended to by a doctor backstage after the match, and I'll, I'll let him pick it up from here. I had many visitors while I lay in that room, all of them asking how I was. Billy Gunn, who I usually shared only a joking relationship with, was very kind, as was Darren Drozdov, who offered up this sentiment. You are the fucking man. When I left the arena, I was troubled by the fact that one wrestler had not come in and checked on me. This would bother me for a long time, and in truth, it is something that I still have not forgotten, nor entirely forgiven. Of all the visitors who came into that room, The Rock was not among them. So there you have it, Sal. If I recall correctly, Mick has done interviews where he said he harbored a grudge against The Rock for a very long time after the Rumble. I think it might have actually been several years. Obviously, it doesn't prevent them from doing business together, and they've since patched things up. But really, I mean, I can't say that I blame Mick very much at this point, because, I mean, if you're The Rock... You kind of have to go check on the guy who you just bludgeoned with a chair, don't you? That seems like a no-brainer. I would only argue that Rock, as young as he was in this business, maybe he knew that he kind of took it too hard on Foley and was it was kind of scared to go see him. Like, not scared that, like, you know, Foley would be hurt or, or that Foley would kick his ass, but kind of like, I know I fucked up, and I'm, like, right. way too embarrassed to, like, see you. Well, you know what I mean? But... Yeah. But still, you got to swallow it at that point, and you really do got to go, go by. Yeah, it's interesting, because hearkening back to something I said in part one there, when you know Stone Cold and Owen Hart were in the ring together in the Rumble, I remember Austin was, as, as he said in that Rolling Stone interview, he's still very pissed off at Owen, because Owen didn't really apologize for breaking his fucking neck mm-hmm. at uh, mm-hmm. at SummerSlam 97. So I, I don't know if this is just like a culture of wrestling where you're just, 
you're like, oh, I'm, I'm too big of a man to admit I did something wrong. But it seems like it would be a no-brainer when you hurt someone that badly to at least offer condolences. I think also when Booker T at uh, King of the Ring 2001, where he kind of makes his debut and, and injures Steve Austin by throwing him through the table, he just leaves the arena without apologizing to Austin because I think Austin, I don't remember what the injury was. They might have been like a broken thumb or something like that. But he didn't check on Austin afterwards. And I know he got a lot of heat during his initial run because of that, where it's like, oh, this WCW guy comes in and injures the top star and then doesn't apologize for it. So really strange stuff. But memo to to wrestlers out there, if you fuck up your opponent, just uh, just apologize, you know? Yeah, because I think there's there's a mentality that if you don't say anything, then you didn't know that you fucked up. That that doesn't right. work. You have like everybody else knows you fucked up. You gotta own it. Yeah, totally. So after a commercial break, we go over to the commentary table where we see that Michael Cole and Jerry Lawler are once again being accosted by Midian. He tells them that evil is coming again tonight, so there's a uh, one more thing for us to look forward to, I suppose. Got it, evil, writing that down. Yep, yeah, exactly. E V I L, I think. <laughs> I believe so. Just ask Kevin Owens. He has it tattooed on his arm, right? <laughs> the, the the live evil backwards tattoo. Yeah. Very, very clever. So as soon as Midian leaves, we see that the oddities are now once again in the ring, and Draws is emerging from backstage. And shockingly, Draws actually gets a bit of mic time while he's walking down the ramp, and he proceeds to call out George the Animal Steel. Or, if you're Michael Cole, George the Animal Stale. <laughs> nice one. Nice one, Cole. Although not entirely inaccurate. And sure enough, it appears that the WWF Hall of Famer accepts the challenge, so it is on Draws versus the Animal, not to be confused with his former tag team partner, Animal. And when the match begins, we see that the rest of the oddities then once again leave the ringside area and head backstage, which may end up proving to be a bad idea. So fun fact, Sal, this is one of only two matches that George the Animal Steel ever wrestles on Raw. The other one was actually covered in episode number two of this fine podcast, which discussed the December 29th, 1997 episode of Raw. And on that show, the animal teamed with, of all people, Taka Michinoku to take on the team of Jerry Lawler and Brian Christopher. But as for tonight, he's facing draws, and right away, the animal removes his shirt to show us that, yes, he is still sporting his trademark look of having a whole shitload of body hair. And surprisingly, he got a nice pop from the crowd for showing off his natural sweater. So yes, Arizona loves hairy men. <laughs> and just a few seconds into the match, George proceeds to get his shit in as he then does his trademark move of biting the turnbuckle and tearing it apart with his teeth. However, that proved to be the Hall of Famer's undoing as Draws then snuck up on him and rammed his head into the newly exposed steel. Draws then went for the pin, and referee Teddy Long counted to three. Thankfully, this time he didn't botch it, and that was enough to give the victory to Draws in only about 45 seconds. However, after the match concluded, Draws was apparently not finished because he continued to beat the crap out of old George. Additional referees ran down to the ring to try and get them to stop, but Draws then threw several of them down to the canvas. Eventually, the rest of the oddities ran back down to ringside and chased Draws away, but clearly, the damage had been done. So, Sal, what did you think of Draws versus George the Animal Steel, and perhaps the introduction of a newer, meaner Darren Drozdov? Oh. Okay, so... <laughs> that reaction says it all right there, doesn't it? <laughs> they, they, a lot of times in WWF or E, they will try to uh, push somebody 
in a role that was never meant for them. Mm-hmm. And uh, Draws as a heel, no. Are you saying you're not on board for the legend killer Darren Drozdov? Nope. <laughs> I mean, I'm not on. I, I, I've never been on board with Draws as a performer in general. But at fair. least, at least when he was uh, briefly in Legion of Doom, it kind of made sense. But Draws, like you said, trying to be the legend killer, no, just no. Well, I mean, he almost killed a literal legend in Hawk just a few months ago. So, I mean, you know, that that goes without saying. You pushed him off the Titantron. Yeah. Also, why why George Steele? You know, poor George Steele. Like, what the fuck? Like, what they call him up and be like, dude, we'll give you 500 bucks if you come down to the arena tonight. And he was like, oh, all right. Yeah, I had literally no recollection of him joining the oddities, but he did that about a month ago, and he's still with them now. So, yeah, I, I do not recall this whatsoever at all. But it got him a match on Monday Night Raw in a very highly rated show. So, you know, good, good for him. George the Animal Steele still keeping that name relevant, I suppose. Oh, yes, the gym teacher's salary doesn't exactly pay that well. Is, oh, is he a gym teacher? He was in real life, yes. No way! Yeah, go look it up. It's crazy. Man, I, I would not fuck with him on uh, on on a day when... Can you uh... imagine? <laughs> oh, yeah. Run more laps! <laughs> exactly. On a day when George is feeling a bit angry, I'd be like, you know what? Whatever the gym teacher wants today, uh, he's got it. He's got it. <laughs> exactly. I'm, I'm trying to think of, like, if you wanted to be the teacher's pet, instead of giving him an apple, would you just give him a turnbuckle? Give him a turnbuckle, there you go. Yeah, you have to, you have to. <laughs> so after a quick commercial, we then get footage from during the break where Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe were encouraging the WWF Tag Team Champions, the Big Boss Man and Ken Shamrock, to drink water with saltpeter in it in order to make themselves immune to Deborah's advances. And in case you're wondering what the hell saltpeter is, it's a chemical compound which, according to folklore, helps to prevent sexual urges. Essentially, it's the opposite of an aphrodisiac. Now, of course, it's just a myth, but hey, maybe the Stooges didn't realize that. And from there, we cut elsewhere backstage, where Kevin Kelly is with the aforementioned Deborah. She says that no man can resist her, and that statement causes her to be interrupted by... Mark Henry. Mark says that no woman can resist him, which is a bit of a strange statement since we just saw China reject him last week on Raw, but sure, okay. So so Deborah then responds by saying that she may indeed have a sweet tooth for sexual chocolate, and that provides a fitting segue because it is now time for our WWF Tag Team Championship match. Champions, the Big Boss Man and Ken Shamrock versus challengers Jeff Jarrett and Owen Hart, who are, of course, accompanied by Deborah. So at the start of the match, Deborah does indeed walk up to the Boss Man and attempt to put the moves on him, but perhaps the saltpeter was actually working because he refuses her advances. And despite the fact that this was a heel versus heel tag team match, the fans were surprisingly into it, as you could hear them chanting Nugget at Owen and, well, yes, take it off to Deborah. It was a different time. And then a few minutes into the match, with Shamrock taking it to Owen in the ring, Deborah does proceed to give the fans what they want as she steps up on the ring apron and opens her suit coat, revealing her ample cleavage. Shamrock, however, completely ignores her and continues to work over Owen. Not to be outdone, Jeff Jarrett then flat out removes Deborah's coat entirely, so now she's just standing there in her bra, and yet still, Shamrock is not distracted. He then puts the ankle lock on Owen, but before he can tap, Jarrett runs into the ring and boots Shamrock to break it up. The boss man and Jarrett then exit the ring and start brawling with each other, and that distracts referee Tim White. And so, let's pick it up from there. 
So as you heard there, while referee Tim White's back was turned, the Blue Blazer ran out from backstage, grabbed Jeff Jarrett's guitar, and nailed Shamrock in the head with it. Owen Hart then covered Shamrock, Tim White turned back around, and he counted the one, the two, and the three. Your winners and the new WWF Tag Team Champions, Owen Hart and Jeff Jarrett. And also, as you can hear Jerry Lawler say on commentary, this version of the Blue Blazer was, indeed, African-American, which was actually a pretty funny visual after all those months of Owen and Jarrett trading off wearing the costume. And Sal, do you happen to know who it was who was wearing the Blue Blazer outfit on this night? Coco Beware. That is correct. No, was it real? Oh my it, God. No, stop. It actually was Coco Beware, according to some reports. I, I literally just put that down as a joke. I didn't actually think it was Coco Beware. Yep. The Birdman still getting a paycheck in 1999. Now, I had to wonder, though, like, were they trying to go, because we just saw Mark Henry with Deborah in the previous segment, were they trying to hint that it was Mark Henry in the costume? Because the, the guy who was in the costume, from what we saw as fans, you know, not knowing it was Coco Beware at the time, I mean, he was a lot smaller than Mark Henry, so it was obviously not Mark Henry doing the run-in. My actual legit guess was I thought it was Mo. I figured Mabel was back. Mo had to get himself a payday. Oh, that's pretty genius. Oh man, but no, I guess it was uh, it was Coco Beware. So that's a thing. Um, that's a thing. <laughs> I will then, say uh, this: that uh, wait. okay. No, oh yeah, I was just going to say, after the match, Owen and Jarrett walked up the ramp where Kevin Kelly was interviewing them, and Owen said he has now been vindicated because everyone can see that he's not the Blue Blazer, and Jarrett says that Bossman and Shamrock clearly shouldn't have pissed them off, and that is how we wrap up the segment. So, sorry there, Sal, I interrupted you. What do you think of this, this match? I actually enjoyed the match um, for as interest—well, I want to say interesting— Trying to be a little bit PC. For as <laughs> excited as the fans were to see Deborah, you know what always bothered me about Deborah is she had a little bit of a five head, kind of had like oh, a Peyton Manning <laughs> thing going on. <laughs> oh God! I'm, I'm just... I wonder. I wonder how many people have ever compared Deborah to Peyton Manning. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it it was also funny too. Did you hear Michael Cole at the very beginning of this match uh, calling the substance that Patterson gave Bossman and Shamrock? Soft Peter? No, I didn't hear that actually. And then Lola got mad at him. He's like, "No, not Soft Peter, you idiot! Salt, Salt Peter, Salt Peter." Uh, although Salt Peter apparently does result in a Soft Peter, so I guess <laughs> exactly. that makes sense. I thought that was actually kind of funny. Also, it's so that's like really like a like a folklore that that that's supposed to like kill your drive or something. Yeah, apparently it's it's not actually true, but it was like a common belief for a while. Apparently, oh, God. 
I I just thought it was just old man Patterson, like some type of old like French like trick or something. Yeah, right. <laughs> you have to you have to drink the salt, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> they like literally poured it into Shamrock's drink too. Like Bossman caught like a couple drops, and they were like, "Nope, give Kenny the whole bottle. He needs yeah. it." Yeah, although really it was Bossman who needed it more because he was the one who was distracted when they had the non-title match on Sunday Night Heat a few weeks ago. Deborah completely distracted him, and I think it was Jared who just rolled Bossman up for the three count. So, yeah, Bossman definitely needed that saltpeter, I think. But even with the saltpeter, they still lost, and that actually that ends their month-and-a-half title reign. The Bossman and Shamrock, no longer tag team champions. Are, are you okay, I guess, with that, with the corporation losing the tag titles? Uh... It was weird seeing a heel-on-heel tag uh, and it working, because usually they don't typically do that. Agreed. And I'm fine with, with Jared and Owen having it. it, it like you said, though, it, thought, I thought they would hold it on to it for a little bit longer, Bossman and Shamrock, but, I mean, Shamrock could give a shit less. He's still the Intercontinental Champion. That's true. But uh, all in all, I'd say it was a pretty decent segment. Yeah, I agree. It, it seems like they had bigger plans for the Owen and Jarrett tag team because, you know, at this point, I mean, the corporation are, are clearly the most, uh, the, the biggest heels on the roster. So Shamrock, if you wanted to make the point that Shamrock and Bossman don't need the tag titles, I think you can certainly make that point because the corporation is just a hated group on its own. But having Owen and Jarrett get the tag titles kind of elevates them up a little bit because before then they were pretty much just, you know, middle of the road tag team that no one was really, you know, taking too seriously. But now I think you can say that it does a good job of bumping them up a little bit. And especially over the next couple months, without spoiling too much, they do become a very formidable tag team. So, yeah, uh, good stuff. Good stuff, Owen and Jarrett getting their first tag title reign. Well, I mean, Owen's had <laughs> Owens had more than one tag title reign before, but uh, getting his first one with Jeff Jarrett, I should say. Right. And, and you know, not to dive too far into this, but... um. It is a shame that the talented Owen Hart is just been relegated to the tag division since what? Since 95? I mean, this is a guy who was main eventing SummerSlam in 94. Very believably, I might add. And, I don't know, it's kind of like Cesaro. Vince just always saw him as a tag team guy. Yeah, and it's kind of, um, it's very strange because when Bret Hart obviously got screwed last year and Owen came back, he was getting cheered big time like people were all on board for Owen Hart as a top babyface and then pretty soon it was just like nah you know a couple months down the road you know we're gonna have him join the nation of domination for no reason turn heel and now they have him in a tag team and you know they had the blue blazer stuff going on in the fall as well where Owen was the blazer after he I guess he had, you know he had retired because he injured Dan Severn they were just doing a lot of really stupid stuff with him when he could be much higher up on the card and as I said the fans are clearly all on board for hating him as a heel at this point, even though he's in a middling gimmick at this point uh, in time. So, yeah, I definitely missed the boat on Owen for sure. Yeah, I forgot about uh, the DX pay-per-view at the end of 97, right after Survivor Series. He main evented that with Sean, didn't he? He did, yeah. Shit, and it looks see, like... I forgot about that completely. Yeah. Oh, no, sorry, he didn't main event. Shamrock main evented with Sean, but then Owen jumped him after the match. Oh, oh, oh and they never, okay, they never actually capitalized on, on the momentum he had then. Okay. Yeah. I think it was in late December, they actually did Owen versus Shawn Michaels on one of the episodes of Raw, and if you recall, I think this is a pretty famous clip that they've shown quite a few times, where like Owen has Shawn Michaels in the sharpshooter, and Triple H 
takes one of his crutches and smacks Owen in the face. Yes, yes, okay, now I remember that. Yeah, so that's the DQ, and they never, after that, they never go back to Owen versus Sean, because obviously at the Rumble, you know, Sean's facing The Undertaker, so... Uh, although, in retrospect, I bet Sean probably wishes he was facing Owen at that show instead, because it damn sure wouldn't have been a casket match. And he wouldn't have been out of wrestling for four years. Exactly. Um, no, you're right, because be- because of what Triple H did, that led to him and Triple H's feud going into Mania that year. Right, which led to Triple H beating him at Mania for some reason, and then beating <sighs> him the next month at Backlash. Or was it Backlash? Yeah, I think it was Backlash. Or no, Unforgiven. Sorry, it was Unforgiven. You, know, you want to know why Owen lost that match to Triple H? Because Triple H went uh, behind the scenes to Vince and was like, Hey, hey Vince, uh, I hear Owen doesn't want to do business. If he doesn't want to do business, we should do business for him. Uh, are you sure that wasn't uh, what he said about his brother? It sounds awfully familiar. I think that's where he got it from. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, after a commercial break, we go back into the arena where Shane McMahon, Pat Patterson, and Gerald Briscoe are walking to the ring. Shane grabs a microphone and says that Kane has been screwing up a lot lately, but last night, he finally did something right. Why? Because after the Royal Rumble went off the air, Kane went up to the McMahon family skybox and personally apologized to them. And of course, at this point, Michael Cole acts as the voice of the viewer and expresses quite a bit of skepticism as to whether or not that actually happened. So Shane then requests for Kane to come to the ring, and sure enough, the lights go out, and the big red machine emerges from backstage. And it appears that the boss's son has something he wants from Kane, so let's find out what it is. Now, Kane, last night's apology was so heartfelt. I would like you to repeat those very words, however, this time in public. Oh. What's well, a public apology from Kane? That's that device that Kane uses to speak with. I apologize. No! Kane, sir, sir, I didn't hear that. I apologize. I guess you heard that, didn't you, Michael? He apologized! He said I apologize! Hold on one second. That isn't good enough. Oh, no. Get down on your knee and apologize. Oh, come on now. <laughs> on your knee and apologize. He said he was sorry. That Shane is a chip off the old block. And he... My goodness, King. He already said he was sorry. On your knee, please. On your knee. Yeah, just like Mr. McMahon. Yeah, he's o- overbearing and humiliating. You'll be out of work. If you're on your kidding. knee, King. Shut the hell up! What? What? 
man, Kane, how much crap are you going to continue to take from these idiots, man? Listen to me. Dump the corporate idiots, and why don't you run with the DX crew, and we'll have your back. And you, get the hell out of here. And you, I've been old man, and I'm in my fighting clothes right now, so I'm going to kick your ass. X-Pac wants to pee. Wait a minute. No. What the hell is Kane doing? Oh, wait, 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 wait. Okay. Oh, the slam. Beautiful. Drag him in the corner. In the corner, right here in that corner, drag him. Well, X Pac, Big Mouth Punk's getting what he deserved. X Pac offered Kane to join a real family. DX. No. The Bronco Buster. That was the same move X Pac used on Shane a few weeks ago. Oh, how embarrassing, humiliating for X Pac. So yes, as you heard there, Shane was humiliating Kane by forcing him to publicly apologize, but then, of all people, X-Pac came down to the ring to stick up for Kane, and he even invited the Big Red Machine to join D-Generation X. I guess that'd make him the Big Green Machine. And in case you were wondering what was censored on the original broadcast there, it was X-Pac telling Shane that he had been fired by bigger assholes than his old man, so that's why there was a bit of a distortion in that clip. But anyway, when X-Pac threatened to beat up Shane, Kane grabbed X-Pac by the hair, picked him up, and chokeslammed him. And from there, Kane positioned X-Pac in one of the corners, which allowed Shane to hit Pac with a Bronco Buster. So yes, it appears that Kane has made his choice, and he has clearly chosen the corporation over DX. And after a quick commercial, we actually get footage from during the break where Triple H, the Road Dog, and Billy Gunn ran to the ring and beat up Patterson and Briscoe. So DX did gain some measure of revenge there, I suppose. But Sal, what were your thoughts on Kane deciding to stick with the corporation? I was a little bit surprised. I thought, for some reason, I thought, like, okay, maybe X-Pac's going to convince him and and he's kind of going to, like, beat up uh, the other people in the ring and then honestly without even blinking an eye behind the mask he just grabbed x-pac by the throat (laughs) yeah i was surprised at this too i thought he was actually going to to go along with this but no not not quite the case not even for a second (laughs) nope there was also a nice moment there too where like uh kane starts picking up x-pac and shane in the background is like wait 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 not yet not yet Okay, okay now. now, and then like, okay yeah, now. <laughs> I thought that was pretty. That was pretty good stuff. Shane McMahon is a very solid heel at this point in time. But oh, speaking uh, yeah. of which, was that Bronco Buster the first time he's actually done a wrestling move since you've been doing this podcast? Well, Shane, he did have a match against Mankind on one of the late December episodes of Raw, but he didn't get any offense in. No, he really didn't. That's a good point. I don't think. Maybe he like landed a jab or two at Mick Foley during that match, but that was it. So yeah, you, you may be right in terms of wrestling moves. I think that may be the first successfully executed wrestling move for Shane McMahon. So yeah, mark that one on your calendars right there. And it's a Bronco Buster of all things. Hey, it's one more successful move than his father can do. <laughs> that That is a fair <laughs> point. Well, he better learn quick because he has a main event at St. Valentine's Day Massacre coming up. Oh, good point. 
So yes, after that, after Kane decides to stay with the corporation, we get a quick cut backstage where we see Paul Bearer speaking with the Acolytes, Midian, and Mabel? Yes, that's right. The last time we saw Mabel, he was getting his ass kicked by the Ministry at the Rumble last night, but it appears that he has now joined the group for some reason. Anyway, all we can hear Paul Bearer say in this segment is that they all know what he wants, presumably referring to The Undertaker, so perhaps we'll find out what that's all about a little later on. And speaking of Mabel Sal, lately I've been recapping portions of the Wrestling Observer for the week that we're covering, and Meltzer actually takes the WWF to task for being hypocrites here, for firing Vader, yet they rehire Mabel, who is even fatter and has the reputation for legitimately injuring people. Oh, Imagine that, Meltzer has a problem with a wrestler's weight. <laughs> who, who could have guessed that, huh? Uh-huh. Uh, uh, wink, wink. Uh, Peyton Royce. He also writes, he also writes, quote, They should have just brought back Sid or Ahmed Johnson way before this clown. Ouch. I mean, wow. you know, he's, he's, he's right in the sense that almost anyone is better than Mabel, but still, ouch. I don't know, do you agree with Meltzer's uh, assessment there on that one? No, and I'll tell you why. No. I, I don't want to see Sid... In the in the ministry, I don't want to see Vader in the ministry. Like at this point, the ministry has been shown to us as nothing but a bunch of jobbers. So why do I want Sid or you know someone of of actual worth in the ministry of darkness? Well, would you have been okay with Dan the Beast Severn in the ministry of darkness? Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, with with six 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 across his forehead, the Beast. <laughs> that wouldn't have bothered me. There you go. I mean, hey, it's it's better than... It actually probably is better than what he was doing. It still probably would have sucked, but, I mean, he wasn't exactly setting the world on fire with his uh, with his existing... I don't even want to say gimmick, because he had no gimmick. He was I was just, just saying, you know, hopefully, if he was in the ministry as, you know, the 666 beast, um, hopefully he wouldn't speak, because when he talks, it ruins everything about Dan Severn. That's, that's a fair point. Him being in the Ministry of Darkness would be pretty darn silly. <laughs> <laughs> Fair point. <laughs> and, and in the Ministry of Darkness, would he still have been allowed to wear a gray T-shirt covered in sweat? I don't know. I don't know. Yes, but it would have said 666 on it. Oh, there you go. Good. Yeah, he could have moved some merchandise for once in his life. <laughs> so so anyway, from there, we cut to footage from earlier today where Terry Runnels and Jacqueline were forcing D'Lo Brown to do some shopping for them. We then go inside a Walgreens where it's revealed that they had asked D'Lo to buy them some Kotex security maxi pads, which completely embarrasses D'Lo for some reason. I mean, I get, yeah, it's a feminine hygiene product, har har, but it's not like anyone's going to think that he's using them. So, I mean, like, what what, what really is the big deal, you know? What a stupid bit. Yes. You would have thought this was like, I don't know, some type of variety show booked in like 1981. <laughs> like, really? It's 99 and it's... Oh my god, he has to go in there and buy them tampons. Oh no. How embarrassing. Just stop. That is like 80s sitcom level scenario right Right, there. Right, right. Actually, oh yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, that that is exactly what it is. It's it's like a a bad joke from, you know, what's happening or something like that. Yeah, like Three's Company. But uh, yeah, well actually it gets more sitcom-y from there because of course... The clerk ends up loudly asking for a price check, and then she says, in probably the most unconvincing line delivery of all time, Aren't you D'Lo Brown? She then calls her co-workers over, and they proceed to ask him why he's buying Kotex, so D'Lo tosses them some money and storms out. And Sal, I actually have to think the most unrealistic part of this whole skit 
was the fact that anyone would recognize or care about D'Lo Brown at this point in his career. That's exactly what I had written down, too. Aren't you D'Lo Brown? Said no one ever. <laughs> exactly. So, after another commercial break, Val Venus is heading to the ring. He then proceeds to grab a microphone and tell us that he's going to give us all a sneak preview of his newest movie, entitled Saving Ryan's Privates. Are you sure that's what it's entitled? Well, when the footage gets queued up on the Titantron, we see that it actually says the movie is called Sister Act. So great job with the continuity there, right? <laughs> but yes, the movie is called Sister Act because it stars Ken Shamrock's sister. And when I say that, I mean that the title screen of the movie literally says starring Ken Shamrock's sister. <laughs> it doesn't even give her a name, but I think we can safely assume at this point that her name is Ryan, based on the whole Saving Ryan's Privates line. So yes, we then get footage from Val's newest movie, where he steps into a shower, and Sister Shamrock is right there waiting for him. And at this point, it appears as though losing the tag titles tonight may be the least of Ken Shamrock's worries. So from there, we go back into the arena, where Test is now heading to the ring, so it appears that Val actually has an opponent. And tonight, it's a battle of two long-haired Canadians wearing purple tights. Who could ask for anything more? Unfortunately, this one only went for about a minute and a half, but you could probably guess what Val's fate was going to be after he showed us that new video. Tess threw Val over the top rope and then distracted referee Jimmy Corderas, which allowed Ken Shamrock to run out from backstage and clobber Val in the back with a steel chair. Shamrock then rolled Val into the ring, Tess hit him with a pump handle slam, covered him, and Corderas counted to three, giving the victory to Tess. And after the match, Shamrock rolled into the ring and started beating the crap out of Val as Test looked on, until badass Billy Gunn ran out from backstage to make the save. Test and Shamrock retreated, leaving Billy and Val alone in the ring. However, things then got a little bit confusing. Why? Because apparently Val Venus never saw Shamrock hit him in the back with the chair, so when he recovered and saw Billy Gunn standing in front of him, he assumed that it was Mr. Ass who was attacking him. Also, when Shamrock was beating on him after the match, Val was actually face down on the canvas, so he couldn't see who it was who was pummeling him. So yes, Val gets in Billy's face and blames him for attacking him, even though surely, if you're Val, wouldn't you have to assume that Ken Shamrock was going to retaliate after you just showed a video where you were banging his sister? I mean, come on, that's, that's just common sense, dude. So yes, Val then kicks Billy Gunn's injured ankle and starts beating the crap out of him until referees run out from backstage to break things up. And I should note that while Val is beating up Mr. Ass, the crowd is actually pretty quiet, and I think it's mainly because they were completely confused. Michael Cole on commentary is explaining the whole misunderstanding to us, the viewers, but if you're in the arena watching it live that night, you're probably like... Wait, did Val Venus just turn heel a couple minutes after he made the ultra babyface move of banging a hated wrestler's sister? Very bizarre. Very bizarre. And so, big Salboski, I must ask you, what did you think of Val's new movie, the Val vs. Test match, and the subsequent misunderstanding between Val and Billy Gunn? So, the movie needed to get the right title. <laughs> yes, Somebody that, in that... production needed to communicate that with Val better. Which is such an easy thing to do. I don't know how you could mess that up. Uh, also, so, is Jimmy Corderas, is he hearing impaired? Because I can <laughs> well, understand I can understand not seeing Shamrock hit Val with the chair, but 
the entire arena could hear Shamrock hitting Val with the chair. Right. Yeah. What was that loud clanging noise? That was probably nothing. Oh, nothing. Nothing. Don't worry about that. Um, <laughs> and I, I gotta say, I don't blame Val because he had no idea who hit him. You know. And then he he, he looks up. He sees Billy Gunn in the ring. But why Val Venus never joined DX seems to me like a miss. Ooh, that's an interesting point there. That would have been a, a good uh, freshen up for each. Uh, party, I believe. That would have made a lot of sense, actually. And think about the jokes. I mean, <laughs> Jesus. Between him and Triple H, it never would have stopped. They could just keep one-upping each other for like 25 straight minutes. <laughs> and keep pointing to girls in the crowd to show their boobs. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, initially, so when that whole happened, when that whole thing happened when, um, like, Val was confronting Billy Gunn, I mean, eventually Michael Cole starts explaining it, but at the time, were you also as confused as I was? Because I was like, why the hell... Why is why is Val getting in the face of the guy who just like saved his ass? You I know? I could kind of see it because the way Val was facing and then Billy was like backing into him, they were gonna turn around and do the whole like oh who's behind me type of thing. But right, um, yeah, it was it was dumbly played, and like you said, the audience was like, "What the fuck is going on?" Very bizarre, and uh, yeah, and the match itself was short once again. <laughs> another shocking moment on Raw: a short match. Who could who could possibly seen that coming? But. Yeah. Now, actually, I have another fun fact for you, Sal. Were you aware that Ken Shamrock and Ryan Shamrock were actually dating in real life? Yeah, I, I believe I did hear that before. It might have been from this very podcast. God, that's weird to think about. I know. Well, we, I should preface by saying they're not actually related in right, any way. Right, but, but at the same point, you're playing that on TV, which... Right. I'm sure that's occurred many, many times in the history of entertainment and movies and television, but... It's just got to be a weird dynamic that this person's supposed to be your sister, and then, like, you know, you leave the arena and, and you're going back to the hotel room to bang them. I <laughs> know. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Well, actually, so back in April of 2010, Ryan Shamrock, real name Alicia Webb, did an interview with a website called In Your Head Radio, where she said she actually started dating Ken Shamrock in real life shortly after she came into the WWF, which is, of course, right around this time. Now, funny enough, she actually tells an amusing story where a fan saw her and Ken Shamrock kissing in a parking lot, to which the fan yelled at them, I'd do the same if she were my sister. Funny. It's pretty funny stuff. (laughs) But of course, Sal, because these two were kayfabe brother and sister, but dating in real life, you probably know where Vince Russo wanted to take the angle on TV, don't you? Oh, God. Yes, that's right. Incest. But thankfully... Ken Shamrock shot that idea down, and honestly, I can't imagine someone trying to pitch that angle to him more than once without Shamrock attempting to kill them. And also, by the way, in that interview, Ryan Shamrock actually claims it was ultimately going to be revealed during the incest angle that her mother would end up being Deborah. Now, I I don't even know how that could have possibly played out, but that's what she claims in that shoot interview. Hey, Deborah, your face look makes you look look like you're 45. Let's make you the mother of Ryan Shamrock. I actually, I had to look up their age difference too. And it, it turns out actually, so it turns out Deborah actually is 19 years older than Ryan Shamrock in real life. So I guess that that's, that's conceivable. But by the same token, it's like, how would you have gotten there with the brother and sister fucking and then having it revealed that Deborah was Ryan Shamrock's mother? I, I, I'm sure it would have been riveting logical television, but I don't know. Would that be an angle you would have liked to have seen there, Sal? No. <laughs> <laughs> just, Simple, just fucking to the point. no. 
Absolutely not. Yeah. It's actually funny too, because when I was on, um, it was the, the mega episode I did with William Rankin, we were talking about the Terry Runnels miscarriage and how high that ranks on like most tasteless angles. And what William Rankin actually mentioned as the most tasteless was uh, the Stephanie and Vince incest storyline that never actually happened, but was rumored for quite a while. So I, I actually, we talked about it briefly on the show, how they did eventually get to incest with, uh, with Katie Lee Burchill and Paul Burchill somewhat, but apparently it was also on the table for this angle where, where Ken Shamrock and Ryan Shamrock would have been fucking on, on TV, not just behind the scenes. So yeah, it's, you just you just have to think like Vince Russo is there like which taboos can I put on TV and like incest was like the last one. Okay, so here's the thing, because I, I remember I remember hearing you and William talk about that. Yeah, I I don't doubt that the idea was thrown around, um, and I don't doubt that Stephanie reacted so uh, harshly toward it. Um, I do doubt at how serious they actually were, like. Were they just doing it to rib Stephanie, or were they actually going to go to TV with it? Ugh, I, I have I, no I, idea. I somehow doubt they would have actually went to TV with it. But then again, this is the guy who had Triple H fuck a corpse in a coffin. So <laughs> that's, that's true. I mean, as far as uh, Katie Lee Burchill and, and Paul Burchill, I mean, yeah, it was heavily implied. But even that was never, like, straight out, like, in your face as it would have been, I think, if they had Ken and Ryan Shamrock make out. Right, and if I recall correctly, they gave up on that angle really quickly into the run, where they just kind of made them, you know, brother and sister, but they, they heavily shied away from the implications of incest, so thankfully, thankfully very much so. But uh, would you have been on board if they had actually done the Vincest angle? Oh, no. I'm guessing no, probably not. No, 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 <laughs> that, that, and I'm not kidding, if they, because we all know that Stephanie is the biological daughter of Vince. Okay, that that's like a proven fact. It's, it's like you know. Well, hey, we don't, we don't know we don't know who Linda was with. Okay, fine, but <laughs> I I promise you this: if there was any type of intimate contact between Vince and Stephanie at any point on any WWE show, that might have been the death nail for me. Yeah, I don't think I could have watched wrestling after that. I think that's definitely fair. Boy, well, anyway. So after a commercial break, it's now time for our next match, and it is a hardcore tag team match. WWF hardcore champion The Road Dog and Al Snow versus Brood members Gangrel and Edge. Now as a reminder, over the past month, both Road Dog and Al Snow have been victims of bloodbaths by the Brood, so clearly they have a common enemy here. And before the match begins, Sal, Road Dog, and Al Snow have a pretty brilliant idea. When Gangrel and Edge make their entrance coming up through the Ring of Fire, Road Dog and Al spray them with fire extinguishers. Pretty funny visual, I have to admit. That was funny. First of all, the fire didn't go out, so it didn't work. <laughs> yeah, true. Second of all, how dare they? How dare they interrupt the greatest entrance in Attitude Era history? I That's a you know, very fair point. Not just Attitude Era history, one of the top of all time, I would say. Agreed. But because they jumped the brood on the stage, the match officially begins there, and, in short order, all four men head backstage and start brawling there. In addition to several headshots with that hardcore match standby, the cookie sheet, Gangrel and Edge also proceed to push a dumpster directly into Road Dog and Al, squishing them up against a wall, and that could not have felt very good. And shortly after that, the brood stacks their opponents on top of a stretcher, and I assume the intent was to roll them into something? But the stretcher completely collapsed after they pushed it about a foot, causing Road Dog and Al to just fall on the ground. Whoopsie. 
So from there, we got an amusing spot where Al Snow just picked up a tray full of silverware and threw it at Gangrel. And then after that, the teams exchanged chair shots to the skull. And really, Sal, at this point, I think we've officially entered the chair shot era. At this point, people are taking chairs to the skull so often that it's even occurring in these throwaway hardcore matches featuring guys who are very low on the totem pole. It's kind of crazy to watch in retrospect, especially one night removed from Mick Foley almost being murdered with a chair. Pretty crazy. I, I kind of blame Paul Heyman. He's the one that put this on front street. So. That's, a, that's a good point, actually, yeah. If it, and I know you did not watch as much uh, at this point, but dude, they were doing matches pretty much since 96 in ECW, and they would just be, you know, Axel Rotten and Balls Mahoney. Hit, he's going to hit me in the head with a chair, and then I'm going to hit him harder, and then he's going to hit me harder. It was, and like, at the age of 14, I was like, yeah, fuck yeah, hit him with a chair. But right. knowing what I know now, yeah, not so much. Let's also not forget... Um... Oh gosh, who who was it who used to have the matches? Was it Tanaka? Was that his name with uh, with Mike Awesome? Yes. Now that was at least in '99 and 2000. So that was, you know, a few years down the road as far as from when they started it in ECW. But yeah, Tanaka and Mike Awesome. That's another thing. They would they would literally give each other concussions every fucking match. Right. Well, I mean, Tanaka's whole gimmick was. He would take the chair shots and be like, yeah, give me some more. It was like he was impervious. His gimmick was that he was like impervious to the chair shots, the skull. So he would take pretty much, you know, multiple chair shots every fucking match he had. So, yeah, it's it's pretty brutal to watch in retrospect. And you know what? Maybe I shouldn't even blame Paul Heyman because the Japanese death match, when you think about like Vader and Foley, yeah, they were doing shit like that over there. You know, True. they were they were getting ultra vibe the staple you know, take a staple gun and put it in your forehead like Yeah. Jesus Christ. <laughs> well, unfortunately we never got a C four exploding ring match in the WWF, but probably probably not for lack of trying on Foley's end, I would imagine. Uh yeah, that explosion that just happened at the rumble when Foley fell into the uh circuit board, that was, that was pretty close. Yeah, yeah, it's true. But anyway, so continuing on with this match, Gangrel eventually knocked trays of perfectly good food all over the ground, then set Road Dog up on a table and jumped on him in what I assume had to be a callback to Road Dog and Gangrel's match last week, where the table refused to break. And then strangely, for the second night in a row, we got a spot where a bunch of guys entered the women's bathroom. The camera didn't follow them inside, but we saw the Godfather's hose scream and run away, and then when all four men reemerged. Al Snow had a toilet seat wrapped around his neck, because clearly, that's comedy. So finally, the match came to a close when all four men started climbing on top of some production crates, and then, out of nowhere, blue dust popped up from behind some scaffolding. He handed head to his job squad stablemate Al Snow, who then walloped Gangrel and Edge with it, and the impact caused the brood to fall through a nearby table, with Road Dog and Al Snow landing on top of them. Are you saying that he gave Al Snow walloping head? <laughs> That's exactly what I'm saying. Okay, just checking. And so, referee Mike Kyoto simply made a three count, and yes, that was enough to end the match. Your winners of this hardcore tag team match, the Road Dog and Al Snow. And as soon as the match ends, the winners run back into the arena to pose for the crowd, with Al being particularly ecstatic that he's been reunited with head. And that is how we wrap this one up. So, Sal, what did you think of this hardcore tag match? I'm not necessarily a fan of this 
even back then, this type of hardcore match, first of all, a hardcore tag match is, is probably going to be difficult to pull off. And and second of all, it you know, it just seemed like there was no direction. It was just you got you you four go backstage and just throw each other into shit, which believe it or not gets kind of boring. Yeah, I agree with you. This this was not nearly as good as some of the hardcore matches we've seen, particularly with Road Dog over the past few weeks. This was, yeah, like you said, it was a lot of just like, I'm going to hit you with this, I'm going to hit you with this, and like each guy just kind of doing his own thing. Yeah. It was very very haphazard. It was not, not one of the better hardcore matches we've seen lately. Exactly. But yes, so after that match concludes, we cut somewhere backstage where The Undertaker is now with the Ministry of Darkness. He says, Tonight it all begins. And then they cut him off in mid-sentence and go to a commercial. There aren't many ways to make Taker look like a total jobber, but that would certainly be one. So after the commercial break, Kevin Kelly is backstage with Road Dog and Al Snow. Al praises the D-O-double-G for being hardcore, but then, well, I'm just going to play Road Dog's response, because it was rather odd. Incredible of hardcore tag team oh, match. Man. That was absolutely incredible. You... Yes, that's right. Al Snow says Road Dog is hardcore, to which he responds by saying, quote, I don't know if I'm hardcore or just hard after that match. So, yes, apparently we now have confirmation that wrestling gives the Road Dog a raging boner. I guess now we know why he chose that profession. But anyway, from there, Al Snow has an idea. He wants a two out of three falls match against Road Dog for the hardcore title, and sure enough, Jesse James does indeed agree to it. Unfortunately, as soon as they make that official, the Acolytes, Midian, and Mabel jump Road Dog and Al Snow and beat the living shit out of them, leaving them both laying on the ground. And after the Ministry walks away from the carnage, we then pan over to the Undertaker, who is sitting on his badass throne with flames on each arm of it. Although I have to admit, it looks a lot less badass when he's just randomly sitting on it backstage somewhere. Is that what he does? Like, <laughs> like everybody else is, like, changing the locker room, and he's like, I'm just going to sit on my throne. And they're like, well, we yes. need to, like, move it because we're bringing these lighting pictures around. And he's like, just go around me. <laughs> he's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. But yeah, well actually we we get some we do get some taker audio from there because he then says to Paul Bearer, quote, This will be a holy war of epic proportion. And well, I might be more inclined to agree with him, except for the fact that a beating of Al Snow can in no way be considered epic. So I don't know, Sel, what what did you think of this random backstage appearance by the Ministry of Darkness? First of all, like you said, when Taker was uh, shown before the commercial break in his sentence gets cut off. Holy jobber city. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and it sounded like he said, it all begins again. And I was like, wait a minute, WrestleMania 10 not tonight. What the hell's going on here? <laughs> I thought that was WrestleMania 20 as well. Probably. They just keep recycling taglines. Then, you know, Al Snow and, and the Road Dogs little interview there. Yeah, that was a little bit weird. I don't even think he was implying that he gets hard from wrestling as much as he gets hard from hitting people in the face with metal objects. Fair point. Fair point. Uh, also, Al Snow called himself the Prince of Hardcore, and the o- and I'm thinking the only reason he said that was because if he called himself the King of Hardcore, probably about nine or ten other people would have jumped him in the back. 
Yeah, particularly Terry Funk. Terry Funk, Mick Foley. I'm sure you could throw Sabu and uh, some other people in there. So he was just like, I'll call myself the prince. Nobody wants to be the prince. <laughs> yeah, true. It's funny, too, because like, basically Al Snow just has that pedigree of coming from ECW, so he can get away with calling himself hardcore because it's like, well, yeah, he was an ECW, so okay, sure. Even though I don't know exactly, you know, compared to some of his you know, colleagues in ECW, how much punishment he was taking compared to, say, you know, a Tommy Dreamer or the Sandman or Sabu or Raven or whoever, you know, whoever else you might want to name. Uh, as but, as yeah. someone who watched a lot of it, uh, let me tell you that Leaf Cassidy never really took that much, you know, he never bladed, he never had a cheese grater rubbed off his face. He was uh, He was decent for what he was, but then he was moved on to WWE pretty quickly. You're saying he never cut his forehead along the backwards help me letters that were there? No, and that would have made the gimmick. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's true. And so, after one final commercial break, it is now time for your main event of the evening, and it is an I Quit match for the WWF Championship. Champion The Rock versus Challenger Triple H, who is accompanied by China. And Sal, I couldn't help but think of the fact that Triple H will eventually get the nickname The Cerebral Assassin later on in his career. But I think it's actually The Rock who earned that title last night. I mean, if you think about it, he was literally destroying Mick Foley's cerebrum. So I think the wrong man got that nickname. That's just me, though. Just a thought. Fair point. So early on in the match, Triple H is easily getting the better of The Rock. So Rocky rolls out of the ring and does the forget-about-it gesture with his arms. And then he starts walking up the ramp. To which I say, now, technically, doesn't that mean that he quits? I think Earl Hebner should just award the title to Triple H right now, quite frankly. But of course, that doesn't happen, and Hunter follows Rock up the ramp. Shortly after that, Triple H nails Rock with a clothesline right at the top of the stage, and that leads to Hunter putting the mic in Rock's face for the first time tonight. But instead, Rock responds that he's going to kick his monkey ass. Both men then brawl back toward the ring, and Rock manages to incapacitate Triple H for a bit by throwing him into the timekeeper's table. From there, as usual, Rock takes a seat at the announce table, and then, when Earl Hebner hands him the microphone... Uh, well, let's just say that Rock hits Triple H with an insult that clearly wouldn't fly these days. Come on, Triple H, you Rudy Pooh, you're half gay anyway, say you quit. Your future president of the United States calling your future WWE CEO half gay. Mark that one in your history books. Also, even though what Rock said was clearly messed up, I couldn't help but think... Was that a reference to King of the Ring 98 when Triple H delivered his infamous line where he said, there's a lot of bi things I am, but lingual isn't one of them? I think it might have actually been a reference to that. But anyway, Triple H does not say I quit, so they resume the match, brawling through the crowd, and then back over the guardrail, where Hunter starts choking Rock with an electrical cable. But still, the Great One refuses to quit. Rock then rolled into the ring, and Triple H proceeded to grab the timekeeper's bell and hammer. However, Rock nailed Hunter with a DDT, and then we got a rather interesting spot. With Triple H on the mat, Rock put the bell on top of Hunter's face, and instead of hitting him with a corporate elbow, Rock bounced off the ropes and used the hammer to ding the bell in Triple H's face on the way down. That is certainly a unique variation of the move, I'll give him that. From there, Rock asks Hunter if he quits, and the response he gets is, of course, suck it which really popped the crowd, actually. And after that, Triple H immediately mounted a comeback, and sure enough, he hit Rock with a pedigree. 
However, he wasn't done from there because he then rolled Rock outside of the ring and hit him with another pedigree right on the arena floor. And yet still, Triple H wasn't done because he then put Rock on top of the announce table and it seemed as though he was about to go for a third pedigree. However, at that point, corporation members Kane, Test, Ken Shamrock, and the big boss man emerged from backstage, so let's pick it up from there. So as you heard there, with Triple H about to pedigree The Rock through the announce table, Kane picked up China for a choke slam, but the big boss man told Triple H that Kane would release her if he said, I quit, and Hunter did just that, meaning that The Rock is the winner of the match and still the WWF champion. And after the match ends, true to his word, Kane does indeed put her down, the corporation exits the ring, and Triple H goes to check on China. However, Kane then stands back up on the ring apron and proceeds to have a stare down with Hunter. Meanwhile, in the background, China gets back up to her feet 
and hits Triple H with a low blow. That's right, after being by Hunter's side for almost two full years, China has turned her back on him. The corporation then resumes their beating of Triple H, and at this point, I was wondering why DX didn't come out to make the save, but actually, Sal, they played this very well, because if you recall, X-Pac got taken out by Kane earlier, Billy Gunn got his ankle re-injured by Val Venus, and Road Dog got beaten down by the Ministry of Darkness, so it actually kind of makes sense that DX wasn't there to save the day. And so, with the corporation putting the boots to Triple H, Vince McMahon, Shane McMahon, Pat Patterson, and Gerald Briscoe walked down to the ring. From there, Shane did indeed give China a hug, and Vince then followed with one as well, so it is apparently official. China has joined the corporation. And that is how we go off the air. So Sal, what did you think of the I Quit match and China's subsequent betrayal of Triple H? Okay, first of all, I have to address this because I did not realize that X-Pac, Road Dog, and Billy Gunn had all been taken out. I didn't. I didn't realize it at the time. I was definitely wondering, like, where is DX? And then, like, after the fact, I was like, "Oh, that's right. They all kind of got taken out in their own little ways." But that makes so much more sense now because I was thinking the same thing too. Like, where's DX? And then it didn't even like dawn on me. Like, yeah, they actually wrote them off the show perfectly, like in sequence. Like, you know, yeah, Billy it's... and then X Pac and then just now Road Dog. So that actually worked pretty good. Yeah, it's really brilliant because retroactively, you don't even realize it's happening at the time, but when you go back, you're like, oh shit, yeah, okay, that that does make sense. Right. So I thought Rock and Triple H had a decent match. Definitely. Uh, you know, especially, God, you just did what you did at the Rumble, and now you're giving us this match on USA. I mean, that's fucking awesome. Like, I know, I had no recollection of them having an I Quit match the night after the Royal Rumble. Also, I thought it was really smart, the way they... Because I was sitting there when they booked the match, like, how the fuck are they going to get Triple H to quit? Because I know Rock doesn't lose right. the belt. Uh, I actually thought, like, going into this match, I was like, okay, this is going to be a fucking no contest for sure. See, that's what I, I, that's what I thought. I thought they're just going to give us a fuck job finish, and the corporation is going to jump them, and they're going to call it a no contest. Right. Um, they played it really smart. But I will say that when Kane jumped on the apron and China stood up behind Triple H... You knew at that point. You instantly knew she was going to hit him in the nuts. You know what the funny thing is, though? I completely forgot this China heel turn ever happened the way it did. Like, in the future, obviously, I know Triple H turns heel. Spoiler. I won't say when that happens, but that happens at some point. I thought they actually turned heel together, which I guess they kind of do. But I never had any recollection of China breaking off from DX and joining the corporation before Triple H turns heel, if that makes sense. So this was actually a surprise to me going back and watching this, because I was like, I saw China behind Triple H, and I was like, okay, it looks like they're setting that up, but I don't think they do, and sure enough, they they sure enough, they, they did do it. So, yeah, it was, it was a surprise to me even watching it, you know, 19 years later, because I was like, oh, okay, didn't, didn't recall that at all. So I remember it happened. I did not remember it was in this match, and this was the setup to it. And how fucking brilliant. Like you said, China at this point has been with Triple H for th- four, three years? Something like that, two, like 96? Two years. Yeah, she, de- she debuted, I think it was the February pay-per-view where she attacked Marlena. Marlena at the time. It was February of 97, I think. So would that be Final Four? Yeah. Probably? Yeah. Yeah, it's been almost two straight years. And And then, you know, everybody thought China's with Triple H. There's no doubt about that. So for him to quit so that China doesn't get hurt 
you know, that perfect writing there. So it shows that Triple H's heart, you know, it, it's with China. He's not going to let her get hurt. Whether they're, you know, together or not, the story that they've shown on TV is that he cares about her. You know what I mean? Absolutely. It, it really is an a incredibly shocking moment because, yeah, like those two have been yeah, up and down the road together. They've been face and heel together. They pretty much did everything together. I mean, she's accompanying Triple H to every friggin' match pretty much over the past couple years. And then for it to just all kind of come to an end there, especially one week after this this big push China's been getting where, you know, one week ago she was humiliating Mark Henry being an ultra baby face. Yep. And, then, and then the previous night she was ultra baby face entering at number 30 at the Royal Rumble. Again, she only lasted about 30 seconds. But, you know, she had the crowd behind her. And then it's just kind of like, oh, we're going to completely swerve you and turn this, you know, ultra babyface character into a heel. So it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of what they did with Rock before Survivor Series, where he was, you know, big time babyface. And then they're like, no, nope, we're going to pull the wool out from under you. And now he's a super dickhead heel. But you know what? In retrospect, especially the way they book things now, it's smart. You know, as soon as somebody's getting really popular, you you turn them and and you instantly get all that heel heat back. And the corporation, like you said earlier, is the hottest heels in the company right now. Absolutely. And you're just making them even more hated. And by the same token, too, though, like in a case where you turn The Rock into the corporate dickhead heel, when he had the fans' support, now, eventually, when he does turn back face, the crowd's just going to be that much more behind him because it's going to be like, you know, we had babyface rock you took him away from us so when it comes back to the rock being a babyface again you're going to be like oh fuck yeah i'm, I'm behind this now i'm ready for this so yeah it, it's something in, in booking that they don't do enough today and the the more hated your heels it's so easy for your baby faces at that point to get over because they just want to see the heels get beat up it's it's you know it's simple wrestling booking 101 and right now the corporation is God, they could not get any more hated. And I'm actually, you know, again, having no recollection of this China heel turn, I'm actually pretty excited to see what they do with China in the coming weeks now as part of the corporation. I'm guessing because, as I said, I don't remember this happening. I'm guessing it probably tanks in short order and she probably just becomes like a background character in the corporation. But, you know, I, I'm definitely eager to see what they do with her, at least on the very, I'm sure on the very next episode of Raw, they'll address it. But, uh, yeah, a th thumbs up for me on the heel turn and thumbs up for the match as well. Again, I thought it was a strong main event, uh, even knowing, of course, that there was no way Triple H was going to win the title. I was also, like you said, curious to see how they were going to do an I quit finish if they even could. But that was actually really brilliant because clearly the corporation knew China was Triple H's weakness. And now they took her right from him. So. Very, very smart stuff there. And Henry, not to get too spoiler, spoilery, but I will finish with saying, I think you'll enjoy the way they handle China over the next few weeks. Oh, good. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I'm Now I'm really looking forward to it. All right. So yes, that was quite the way to wrap up Monday Night Raw, but we're not done with this episode yet. So on that note, let's take it to the wrap up. 
Yo, I slayed them seeds back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. I freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been thugging. Then he passed out more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas out of my fucking mind. It won't let me back in. Cause yeah. I was down before the hype like Dusty Rose and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Not a rockin' stone cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster pluckin'. Chickens when they pluckin'. The WWF stands for women where we fuckin'. The Ratings Recap So last week, Sal, the pre-taped Raw before the Rumble scored a whopping 5.55 in the ratings to Nitro's 4.87. And I must say, this week's results surprised me a little bit because the live Raw the night after the Royal Rumble actually went down in the ratings while Nitro went up. And of course, Raw was still easily victorious, 5.46 to 4.99, but I certainly expected a bit of a larger discrepancy between the two shows coming off the pay-per-view. But, with that being said, Sal, would you like to know what you could have been watching over on the TNT network on this night instead of Raw? Sure. Well, allow me to explain. Disco Inferno defeated Al Green. Ironically, the disco dancer defeats the guy named after the 1970s soul singer. Scott Hall and Bam Bam Bigelow had a 14-minute stun-gun ladder match, which ended in a no-contest when Goldberg ran in and attacked both men. And yes, you heard that correctly, a ladder match ended in a no-contest. Now that is vintage WCW. The Faces of Fear defeated Fit Finley and Dave Taylor in a tag-team title tournament match. Perry Saturn defeated Norman Smiley, and the highlight of this match would obviously be when Norman lifted up Saturn's dress and proceeded to do the big wiggle because, frankly, who doesn't love simulated sodomy? Bret Hart defeated Booker T in a really good 15-minute match that I had never realized that I wanted. Goldberg defeated Scott Norton, and, in your main event, Ric Flair, Chris Benoit, and Steve McMichael defeated Hulk Hogan, Kevin Nash, and Scott Steiner by disqualification. In addition to those matches, Sal, this show also gave us one of the few memorable WCW promos from the aforementioned Bret Hart. You may recall this one because Mean Gene Okerlund starts talking with Bret about who's a worthy contender to his United States title. And Sal, do you happen to remember who Bret singles out? I do not. Well, I'll tell you one thing about Booker T. This man has held numerous titles in world championship wrestling, and there's a guy that we would be deserving of a chance at your United States title. Let me tell you, me tell you about who deserves a shot at the United States heavyweight Let's hear it. I'm the champion. I ought to know. You know, I've, I've been sizing up guys since I came to the WCW, and I think the one guy that stands out the most, the guy that I think has earned a title shot, L. Dandy, I think you're a heck of a wrestler. You're a great technician in the ring, and you're a jam-up guy. Whoa. I don't see any Whoa. reason. Wait a minute. L. Dandy has been wrestling in, in, in the cruiserweight division here. Please. He's a great wrestler. He's a great wrestler, but, my goodness sakes, they're 50 pounds Who different. are you to, to, to doubt L. Dandy? Because this guy's a serious professional. Who are you to doubt L. Dandy? Words to live by, indeed. So with all that being said, Sal, do you think this is an episode of Nitro you would have wanted to watch? You know, I don't understand why they keep doing, like, the no finish for, like, promise matches. Like you, oh, yeah. like you said, who the fuck does a no contest on a ladder match? <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty impressive. So, no. No, I, I don't think I'd want to watch the show. Fair enough. I will say, though, Sal, by most accounts, I actually went back and I read some of the reviews for this Nitro. And this actually, by most accounts, was surprisingly a really fantastic episode of Nitro for a change. Credit where it's due. 
Uh, maybe that's why they managed to pull in such a strong rating, despite the fact that they were up against the post-Rumble Raw. I mean, hey, uh, imagine that, right? You put on compelling television, people will actually watch it, right? Too bad WCW doesn't exactly follow that format going forward, but for at least one night, anyway, they delivered the goods. I mean, on this show, four of those matches went at least 10 minutes, and the funny thing is, like, the early knock on Kevin Nash since he became Booker is that the wrestling, they've kind of been going the direction of Raw where they haven't been very wrestling heavy, but tonight, you know, four four matches that went at least 10 minutes, I think, if, I'm, if I recall correctly, three of them went at least, like, 12 or 13 minutes, so a very wrestling-heavy episode of Nitro, but uh, uh, spoiler on that account, Sal, pretty soon, about a month and a half from now, the first hour of Nitro Plus has zero wrestling matches. Ugh. It's all skits. It is all skits in one of the early episodes of Nitro. Skits, skits and interviews, I should say. Jesus. So it, it, it doesn't last too long before Kevin Nash is pretty much just like, hey, gotta, <laughs> we, we got to copy Raw with the minimal wrestling content. But yes, for one night anyway, it appears... WCW delivered the goods. But on that note, let's take it to the Raw synopsis. So, Sal, what were your thoughts on this episode of Monday Night Raw? I thought it was a really good show. I actually really enjoyed it. They they did a lot of with different storylines. They didn't just focus on one. I loved the setup with Austin uh, getting a cage match with McMahon at St. Valentine's Day Massacre. I loved the swerve at the end, which is the other thing, too, we talked about. Um, you know, the corporation kind of gets egg on their face at the beginning of the night, but then they end strong. They end strong with all that heat with China turning. I think the only reason I would venture to guess that the ratings went down is because people saw that McMahon won the Rumble and were, like, pissed off. Yeah, or, or maybe they saw that Austin wasn't in the arena, too, and they're like, oh, shit, so we'll just we'll turn on Nitro. I don't know if that would actually make people turn away, but, I mean, it's a pretty safe bet when you see Austin in the first segment in Texas that he's not going to be showing up in the arena later on in the show. So maybe that did turn off some viewers. I don't know. But yeah, I I agree with what you're saying. Again, in terms of the corporation, as I said, they went four for four on pay-per-view last night. And at the very end of this show, they're they're right there on top at the end because they've, you know, beaten Triple H and they've taken China from him. So I, I suppose it's an interesting thing to think about, you know, with these shows, are you okay with sending the fans home, quote unquote, unhappy? Uh, for something like this sell, because I'm totally fine with it, but I wonder if some of the fans were kind of like, oh, crap, you know, more of the same, more of the corporation going over. I'm I'm fine with it as long as there is a payoff. I think they ran into a, a spot a few years ago when they did this similar with the um, with the authority, and the problem is, is that every fucking night the authority was getting like, and there was never any payoff, because nobody was touching Stephanie. So... As long as there is a payoff, I, I don't mind sending the fans home unhappy. Well, backstage spoiler alert, somebody was definitely touching Stephanie. <laughs> so, <laughs> you could probably imagine. You could probably imagine who that was. But, uh, yeah, I agree with you in terms of this episode of Raw. Not a very wrestling-heavy show, but the matches that did get some time, for example, Rock versus Triple H and the tag title match, they were very entertaining matches. The hardcore match, I guess not so much. I mean, it, it, it's a garbage brawl. So, you know, your mileage may vary. I thought the finish was actually pretty stupid of just blue dust popping up out of nowhere. And it's like, oh, the brood just fell through a table, so we'll count them down. Okay, whatever. But, yeah, I mean, not in terms of uh, 
you know, the episodes of Raw we've seen over the past few weeks. This isn't one of the stronger ones, in my opinion, stacked up to those, but still a very solid episode of Raw. If given the choice between watching the Royal Rumble again and this episode of Raw, I would damn sure watch this episode of Raw again because I really couldn't stand watching the Rumble. I thought it was just a terrible show. Um, So yes, so I would say thumbs down for the Rumble, thumbs up for Raw. If you get a choice of watching either of the two of them, watch Raw because really, if you think about it, I mean, they basically use the Royal Rumble match as an angle on Raw, if you think about it, because yeah, Vince won, but then one night later, it's like, well, Vince just, he may have won the Rumble, but he just lost the number one contendership. So really, you know, that's that's one thing that's been a, a bit of a scourge of the Monday Night Wars is, you know, sometimes the pay-per-views end up setting up the Monday Night Show. And I think in this case, that was a pretty clear-cut example of it. W- would you agree with that, Sal, of them kind of using the Rumble as a setup for Raw? Right, and then I don't think, that's necessarily a good formula, but it's fine because of where we're going. You know, like I said, we get that Austin versus uh, McMahon match. So how can you not love that, right? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we the only other match we've really seen from them, and I say quote-unquote match, was way back in uh, whatever it was, April of 98, when WWF finally beat WCW and ended the 83-week winning streak when they teased the Austin versus McMahon main event. And, of course, you know, Dude Love ended up coming in and fucking it all up. But that was, if you recall, the match that ended the uh, the winning streak, or the show, I should say, that ended WCW's winning streak. So now all these months later, we're finally getting a quote-unquote rematch. Almost a year later, actually, we're finally getting the Austin-McMahon rematch. And it's going to be on pay-per-view in a steel and cage. it's going to so, be in a steel cage. Damn right. So that'll certainly be interesting to watch for. But, uh, yeah, and any other things to note about uh, the Royal Rumble or Raw? Uh, no, I think that's pretty much it. Um, it is it's great to see, obviously, Austin still, you know, red hot at this point. Uh, Foley still red hot at this point, uh, which is great because sometimes you can't have, you know, more than one super over baby face in the company. Um, but I think he's probably just as popular right now as Austin. And on that note of Foley, uh, of course, we'll cover Halftime Heat in the next episode of this show. So find out what happens again when Rock and Mankind once again go head-to-head. And, of course, in the coming weeks, we'll find out what happens with Austin and Vince. And apparently, according to you, we'll find out what happens with China being in the corporation. So there's a lot of stuff to look forward to here. And I suppose you could also say, as a spinoff of that, how will DX react to losing China as their enforcer after all those years? So hmm. good, good stuff. Good stuff coming forward, I think, in terms of of uh, the Raw Attitude podcast. So on that note, I think we can wrap this episode up. So as always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. And of course, don't forget patreon.com slash rawattitudepodcast where you can get all sorts of bonus content. I have nothing further to add about this episode, so Sal... As is the custom, whenever a guest host joins the Raw Attitude podcast, I must ask you, is there a particular audio clip you would like me to play at the end of this show? You know, now that I think about it, I think that the best clip for this show would be 
I'll tell you what. Let's let's play a very classic promo of Eric Bischoff challenging Vince McMahon to a fight on paper. Nice, Slambery '98. Find that promo because that will that is uh, where we were in the Monday Night Wars versus where we are today. That sounds good. I can. I'm sure I could probably find that for you. That's uh, that's a pretty famous one. So yes, absolutely. I will do that. I'll try to find that Bischoff promo. And also, as I promised earlier in the show, I'm also going to leave you with a clip from the documentary Beyond the Mat, where Mick Foley goes back and watches the footage of his family screaming in terror at ringside during the I Quit match, which causes him to realize that maybe he needs to tone things down a bit. So once again, Sal, a huge thank you for dedicating so much time to appear on this show. And perhaps you'd like to come on again another time in the future? Absolutely. It's been a blast. I love the rap. I think you do a great job here, Henry. And I'm uh, very excited and very happy that I was a part of this uh, this little recap here. Oh, fantastic. Well, I'm a big fan of WrestleMania Salvation as well. And i got to give you a quick plug there, too. If, you, if you'd like to plug Salvation as well, uh, by all means, go right ahead because I think it's a, a fantastic show. Well, thank you so much. WrestleMania Salvation can be found on the Rundown Wrestling Podcast feed. Uh, we are in the Attitude Era ourselves as we have just reviewed WrestleMania 16. Uh, no one will call it that, however, as it was <laughs> very, very frequently referred to as WrestleMania 2000. Mm-hmm. Come give us a listen. Uh, always a fun time. It's reviewing WrestleMania with a unique perspective, the unique perspective being mine. I'm actually psyched for the fact that you're doing WrestleMania 17 or, or X7 next because a lot of people think that is the greatest pay-per-view of all time and also of course for the purposes of this show that show marks the end of the attitude era that is going to be our final episode is wrestlemania x7 of course that's you know still quite a ways away and i'll probably never even get there but i'm actually psyched to hear what you say about about wrestlemania x7 whether or not it lives up to the hype of being the quote-unquote best pay-per-view of all time also i'm glad you reminded me i will have a special guest special guest host joining me for wrestlemania x7 uh, this is an exclusive for the Raw Attitude Ooh. Podcast because I did not announce this on my last episode because the, oh, wow. because the person had not committed yet. He has, however, committed, and I will once again be joined by my WrestleMania 10 guest, Adam, from the Rundown Wrestling Podcast and Nitromania, oh, nice. will be joining nice. me for WrestleMania X7 coming soon to a podcast feed near you. Beautiful. I'm looking forward to that. You guys obviously have – I know you You and Adam have known each other for a while, just like I've known Adam and I've known you for a while. So you guys have a great back-and-forth dynamics. That's definitely – that's going to be a fantastic episode of WrestleMania Salvation. So everybody, go and make sure that you subscribe to the Rundown Wrestling Podcast feed because you'll get WrestleMania Salvation when it comes out. Is there any potential time frame for when you think that episode's going to drop? should be uh, probably the second week of September. Excellent. There you go. Plenty of advanced warnings, so subscribe to it now. And subscribe to uh, the Rundown feed, WrestleMania Salvation. Get all that stuff there. You'll also get the Nitromania podcast, too, since Adam's going to be on that show. I think when you subscribe to the Rundown feed, you also get Nitromania, correct? You do. You get Nitromania. You get Glow Stick. You get NXT Revisited. You get WrestleMania Salvation. And, of course, you get the flagship, the Rundown Wrestling podcast. Excellent. So definitely do that. And be sure to listen for the next episode of the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we're going to cover Halftime Heat and, of course, the next episode of Monday Night Raw. And until then, enjoy those audio clips, and I will catch you next time. So Vince McMahon, this is for you. I'm coming to your backyard this Sunday. 
That's right, Worcester Mass. Got a little pay-per-view thing going on. And I got a hell of an idea. Just a hell of an idea. You want me? I'm going to be in your backyard. Consider this an open invitation, Vince McMahon. You show up at Slamboree. It'll be me and you, McMahon, in the ring. Well, he's got me with that when I buy a ticket. How about it, Vinny? But I want to warn you people right now, if you think Vince McMahon has got the guts to show up, don't buy this pay-per-view, because I guarantee you, he is not man enough to step into the ring with luck. But I'll be there, Vinnie Mac. I'll be waiting for you, and I'm going to knock you out. I was glad to see Mick was okay and was happy that he could walk out of the arena with his family that night. But the sight of Noel and Dewey watching their father being beaten up haunted me for weeks. I decided to go to Florida to show Mick the footage. Oh. That right there is where that picture was taken. That was even before things got... Oh, God. Oh. Oh. I don't feel like such a good dad anymore. I felt very guilty all of a sudden, like a real... Really, like my uh, my priorities were out of order. I can't. I, I mean, I feel like a bad dad, and I've never felt like that ever before. Right then, I just felt like I was like like I was I was a bad person. I don't I don't ever want to see my children like that again. I'll, I'll maybe I will be the guy who pulls his sock out of his tights for the next couple of years. That's uh, reading for the. Uh, uh, yeah, nothing. Nothing's worth that. Nothing. I don't. I, I will never do that again. I don't. I don't want my children um, involved in something like that. You know, I want our family to to have the last laugh.